This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Dude, I gotta do the <laughs> Wait, who are we? Crowley or Crowley? Crowley. Oh, I, oh, right. Well, you know, oh. I don't want to do. Well, you know what? We're gonna have to do the hacky cliche covering Crowley thing that people do, which is to mm. pronounce the name properly. We're not gonna linger on it too much, but the fact is, he rhymed his name in some of his obscene poetry, which we will explore uh, <laughs> today on the pod. Uh, he rhymed his name with unholy. So it stands mm. to reason that we would say Crowley. However, I may periodically, when I sing Mr. Crowley, I'm going to sing it like Ozzy did. Anyway, this yeah. is Art of Darkness. I'm Kevin Couchman. You know who we're covering. I've got my uh, magical partner here, Brad Kelly. How are you? Magical oh, K. that's me. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. me. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. What's up, Kevin? How are you? I am overwhelmed. I've uh, not that's yet. The, mm. That's the perfect spot to be in. Yes. To, to, to record an episode. So yeah, we're good. Pod, pod, what you will shall be the whole of the pod, I think is what we're doing here today. <laughs> uh, obviously, we are we're covering the great beast uh, 666, Rabo, the Obsissimus himself. It's like a warm up. And we're joined in this daunting task by the great Stephanie Leahy. Stephanie, how are you? I'm fantastic. And I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you. The outline that you constructed <laughs> uh, is incredible. I feel like I'm back in uh, university doing a group project and I'm not pulling my weight, but that stands <laughs> to reason because I am not an academe. I'm not an academic like you. Do you want to introduce yourself to listeners <laughs> of the pod? Yes, dis disgracefully, I am an academic. <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm a, a PhD medievalist. Um, I specialize in... The book before print, so paleography, codicology, old manuscripts. Um, I'm not an expert on Crowley. I'm not an expert on occultism. I am. I'm an interested nerd, but I am going to talk about grimoires later. So, oh, that's that's perfect. That's interested nerd. That is the the the, the hosts of the show, the audience of the show. It's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to come out right now and say Crowley is king of the nerds. He's Absolutely. there's. I don't. You don't get bigger in terms of of this. Incredible, an incredible life. And our, our goal on the podcast today is to really give not a comprehensive uh, overview because it would be impossible, but a really thorough look into the life of this misunderstood uh, genius, uh, you know, and to really kind of cleave to the, the biographical. A lot of pods about Crowley that I've listened to tend to be about the people recording the pod and their impressions of Crowley, which is kind of, that's fine. It's perfect in a way because he is, he was this incredible trickster. 
Uh, and he did rather uh, in a, in a rather grandiose fashion, declare that that Crowleyanity would be on the lips of people a thousand years after his death. And now, wherever you stand on this business, whether you're some ortho trad convert who eschews uh, everything satanic or even the whiff of Satanism, although of course we're not talking about Satanism per se with Crowley, or you're uh, a serious uh, sort of connoisseur of the weird and the occult, it behooves you to understand Mr. Crowley, Alistair Crowley. One argument I'm going to make sort of through the pod, but near the end is that, well, I'm going to make it now too. We live in Crowley's world. Crowley would be incredibly comfortable with uh, modern culture such that it is. And I think we'll see by examining his life, how he helped invent it. Uh, but we're going to get to that. So let's do um, a little bit, a little bit of housekeeping uh, before we uh, start the magical ritual. Before we don our robes and uh, light the incense and uh, uh, get our get our STD tests, uh, <laughs> we're going. To, I, <clears throat> uh, I, we'll we come to, to that part. <laughs> yeah. Right. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got to thank our Patreon subscri uh, subscribers. We love you. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Everybody who subscribes to Patreon gets an extra 20 or 30 minute episode after we do every episode that we do. This, of course, is a core episode. I have a feeling this After Dark Patreon only episode is going to run a little long. I think everything's going to go long today. I think it's going to go long, hard and deep. And I think that we uh, are going to persevere into, until the end, which which I think Crowley would appreciate. So please, uh, if you want to support the pod, subscribe at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We've got some really fun stuff coming. We're going into season three. Brad put out a, a banger 90-second trailer. Brad, <laughs> nice work. Hey, I missed this. Hey, thanks. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll make sure you see it. Oh. Yeah, no, it's my first video editing thing. And Fantastic. It took me, uh, you know, it took me like 10 hours to do but i love it so yeah check that out it's a little sneak peek of of who we're going to be covering in season three a couple other little easter eggs in there uh for folks who are eagerly anticipating 2023 for art of darkness very cool it's gonna be big we're i'm gonna declare right now on this very special episode that our goal is by the end of 2023 to have 333 patreon subscribers <laughs> I like minimum it. i like it we're I in like the it. 50s now People like the show. They're willing to support it. I think people see the effort that we put in. Brad, we call this an effort pod. Uh, you put that in the uh, the trailer. If you want to go see the trailer, you can go see it at artofdarkpod.com. I recently went on uh, a Polycule sibling podcast, New Right, uh, with with our friends there. And you'll be familiar with uh, at least one of the hosts, Dan Baltic, who came on our uh, Tool episode recently. Uh, and I give an entire... <laughs> profile of what's coming in season three on that podcast so if you want now to, you're uh, committed kind of, mm -hmm, yeah. right indeed yeah, yeah I, i've laid it the whole syllabus uh is there so uh go check out new right we we support our our podcast uh party circuit friends so it's all there right. uh and uh and the trailer is on the on the website which is at art of dark pod dot 2023 readers club art of darkness book club patreon only extra content going to be awesome. Uh, yeah, some yeah. very special stuff coming. That's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. For everybody, okay. not just for us. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, you know, we have a little active telegram channel, get on the website. There are lots of ways to get at us. All right. So 
Let's start with the classic Art of Darkness question. Brad Kelly, what do you know about Alistair Crowley? Exceptional haircut. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know a little bit about him. I mean, he is sort of the uh, sort of looming figure of 20th century occultism. Um, so his fingerprints are a little bit on everything from, yeah, from rock and roll to the tarot to astrology to, you know, these modern things that call themselves Satanism, uh, whatever those things are, Church of Satan, all that, to, you know, any any sort of anything that's going on. Um, I know um, he had some pretty monstrous tendencies that were sort of caught up in his magical practices where, you know, maybe he was using his magical practices to justify being a piece, you know, a terrible human being or something. I don't know that many details about that, but I know that's a thing. Um, drug addiction. I'm pretty sure. I think he was sort of a, a, a ahead of the curve on heroin, being a heroin, a junkie. If I Never, do right. Never do Never heroin. Never do heroin. Uh, and see, let's see what else um i mean that's sort of the general you know i know he was a mountaineer when he was a younger man i know he was a poet i uh, you know i know he wrote quite a bit and including um he was he ghost wrote for some folks at some points too so his fingerprints are even more in the occult scene than it even might seem at first he's sort of in front of the curtain and behind the curtain a little bit um yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's the general outline of what I know about him. But birth dates, death dates, I don't know any of that. I, you know, I kind of know uh, what I remember from looking at his Wikipedia page a couple times. Well, we <laughs> so. we celebrate Crowleymas on October twelfth, mm. which happens to be the oh. the day of my my eldest daughter's birthday. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> Stephanie, how would you say Brad did? Do you think that's think that's pretty accurate? Yeah, I think he. Most of the highlights, you know, there there yeah. might be a few things in there we need to refine a bit, and definitely okay, heaps of expanding upon we need to do for yes. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna hit the light, uh, the highlights, and the lowlights. Uh, and he was a prodigious uh, author. Whatever you think about Crowley and his ethics and uh, egomania and mon monomania, the man got around and produced <laughs> in every sense. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> and we will come to all of it uh, in this episode. I'm just going to say he wrote rather humorously. He, he's the only person who's ever written an autohagiography. And of course, uh, a hagiography is a life of a saint. So he's written, uh, he wrote something like nearly a thousand pages. And that was in middle age. It's <laughs> So you're dealing with a very humorous figure figure. And one of the, one of the reasons I've been a little intimidated by this episode, I'm not normally intimidated. Sometimes like the suicides will really get to me. Like if there's a real dark character, it's like, Oh man, you know, really got to kind of get into this headspace with Crowley. The intimidation part comes from the fact that I don't think there's any modern figure who has had it as much ink spilled about them. That is like simultaneously revealing and obscured. Yes. You frankly don't know what's flimflam and what's true. And a great deal of the magical writing is code for other things. 
fair to say, Stephanie? Yeah, and he's not an easy read. You know, um, mm. this is not surface level stuff, particularly a lot of the magical writing that you just wade into from nowhere and expect to grasp it very quickly. I mean, he he was quite learned. He wasn't. He's drawing on multiple traditions and quite deeply. And well, there's just such a volume of material. The output is incredible. The output and then the, I guess, the secondary literature, the mm-hmm. things that people have written about Crowley. And of course, we're we're dogpiling on and a lot of myths. and the myths and, and he engendered all of those and cultivated them. And it's going to be really, really wild. And if you're not familiar with Crowley, you're going to see him now everywhere, uh, which, for, again, for better Absolutely. or worse, it's it's Crowley's world. We just we just live in it. All right. So now this is where we tease the uh, the after dark. Um we're going to do some fun things on uh, the Patreon-only episode after the core episode here. And uh, we're going to uh, – let me see here. I've got it. Uh, so, okay. Today, if, if there's a little bit of stumbling or <laughs> moving back and forth – There's so much just, material. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. just know there is a 50-page outline in front of me. And, and we're going to do the our, outline. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, and we're yeah. going to do our best to get through all of it in an expeditious way. But I think this is going to be like – uh, climbing uh, K2 or... Uh, you know, he would appreciate what? that. He yeah. would like Indeed. that. As long as we don't kill each other on the way. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. So I am going to... So for the After Dark, uh, Stephanie is going to talk to us about uh, medieval grimoires, which she has some standing in. Uh, do you want to... Do you want to tease that a little bit, Stephanie? What are you What are you going to t- uh, tell us about? I'm talking about a particular type of magic book. I'm going to talk about Crowley's initial exposure to these kinds of documents, because they're not just medieval, they're also post-medieval. There's a very long Western tradition of these kinds of magical texts. And this is something, it was really access to a, a compilation of grimoires is what introduced him to the occult. This is how what got him on his path. So I'm going to look at that initial text that was his own introduction and give you a sense of it, and also look at where that text came from. What is the background of these materials? Um, what are some of the grimoires that survive? What what should you know about them? That's perfect. Awesome. Yeah, Local time, yeah, it's excellent. it's four twenty right now. I think we might turn into pumpkins. <laughs> it's gonna be good. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna throw uh, some some Toth tarot online about the future okay. of the pod. Uh, and and Brad and I guess the three of us are going to try and interpret it. Uh, sure. Kind of on yeah. the fly. And before we get into the the real body of the episode, uh, I'm going to throw a card. But but first, just to to begin the reading, and we'll finish the reading on the on the after dark. You see how I'm teasing? I'm teasing the after dark really really nice. hard. Very yeah, nice. because again, we've got goals for Patreon. If you're listening, if you enjoy the pod, please support the show. That's the, simply the best way. It's easy. Uh, all right, and then um, the third thing we're going to talk about on after dark is the Crowley connection to Jack Parsons and a great American flim flam artist, L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, oh, I gotta have to cut that. Yeah. We don't really have to cut legal. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw my uh, my, what is it called? Hiding now. Oh oh god. (laughs) I'm gonna I've got my rosary here and I'm going to draw the one true faith and I'm going to draw the what is it? The the pentagram of protection. Yes. Sort of yeah. Yes. That's what I'm doing. Yes. Okay. Very good. Banishing. We're banishing. Forget what I just said. Uh, in any case, we are going to talk about Parsons and the great L. Ron Hubbard uh, and their Babylon working 
on the After Dark. All right, that was a protracted intro, but we got a lot going on. So whew, are we ready? We're ready. Limbered up, ready to go. Whew. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Crowley's the kind of guy that before you went on a date with him, you probably wanted to stretch first, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, limber up. Yep. 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 Make sure you're well hydrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Jeez. Yeah. The cats hide the pets, you know, that kind of thing. Um, let's let's get into it. So the structure of this episode, we're gonna we're gonna go all the way up Crowley's tree of life from from Kether to Melkith. Uh, we're gonna talk about the sublime biography we're going to lean on the sublime biography by Kaczynski Perturabo the life of Alistair Crowley which is a banger uh to be clear too we don't do biography on this pod we do profiles and if it weren't for the biographers who do the work mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to do this show so if you you're interested in Crowley check that book out we we credit every biographer that we reference and lean on every book that we lean on in the show so please uh, you know yeah, go and support them uh if you're interested we're also going to look at a book by Richard B Spence called Secret Agent 666 mm-hmm. Alistair mm-hmm. Crowley British Intelligence and the Occult uh we're going to kind of skip over the surface of that a little bit because that could be its own pod entirely but yeah very interesting was mm-hmm. Crowley an intelligence asset. It's. It seems like he may have been. Uh, Every, everybody was. That the, you sure. Know. Well, you're right. It was. It was We're before social media. Yeah, exactly. Right. We're all feds now. Yeah. I mean, so. Mm. Yeah. Um, it would be interesting. Right. That would be. I'm fascinated to hear what what the circumstances are for that. So. Right. This is great. And, uh, oh. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you're excited. Uh, I don't know how excited you'll be by the end, Brad. We'll find out. <laughs> Is there anyone there to poke um, Brad when he falls asleep? Right. No, yeah. no. We're gonna, he, Brad's gonna be gonna be wide awake. You don't fall it. This this pod, the energy that I'm trying to bring to this pod, and I hope I hope you'll help me, Stephanie. Not I'm doing not my best. Weird, you're doing great already, but mm-hmm. not in a weird way. But I want it to feel like that eyes wide shut party. I mean, it really That's is. Why don't we get into the details of this fellow's life? I don't think he. I doubt he slept. Honestly, I, I don't know how he managed yeah. to do all the things he did. Well, so the answer, of course, is cocaine. Well, yes, uh, <laughs> there is that. That helps. That does yeah. help. Yeah, and in a, a prodigious use of heroin, which will mm-hmm. which will come to. Uh, mm-hmm. But boy, here we go. Art of darkness. Uh, again, an obscured life, but a well documented life. Uh, we're going to try to get it right. It is appropriate that a man call or the man who wrote the book of lies. Uh, which is also falsely called breaks the wandering or falsifications of the one thought of freighter per Durabo, which thought is itself untrue would have a bit of mystery behind it. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy we're dealing with. We're dealing with a very tricky, tricky guy here. So, all right, let's get into it. Uh, where is the, okay, brilliant. So what I want to do is start before. Crowley. Mm. So he came from uh, a sect. His family belonged to a sect called the Plymouth Brethren. They were fundamentalists, uh, but they were also a very wealthy family. And they had acquired their wealth through brewing, through ales, because they were allowed in their religion to 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 do that, but not to uh, not to make or indulge in spirits. Here's a little bit about um, Crowley Ales. Crowley was a trust fund kid. 
So <laughs> super important to understand that. Uh, it does seem to me that if you, and we'll come to this, but if you inherit $2 million when you're 18, you're a white Protestant Englishman uh, at the turn of the century, how the world might feel like magic to you. Yeah, it kind of affords <laughs> you a certain, uh, yeah. It affords you a certain leeway that is not yeah. granted to everyone else. For right. certain. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Indeed. So I'm going to read from the Perturabo here. Uh, Yeats's, and this is not Yeats, the poet, this is another Yeats, recollections and experiences recounted lunching at Crowley's Elton Alehouse, whose shops were exceedingly popular with young men who did not particularly care about hanging around the bars or taverns. taverns. Crowley's pub lunches offered high quality food and in time added other items like Bunbury cakes, Benbury cakes. Oh, pronunciations. We'll do our best. Uh, <laughs> I, I've spent a lot of time in the UK, but come on, you, you can tell I'm not from there. This prompted competitors to introduce the Melton Mulberry pork pie and ultimately the lunch encounter and grill room. They they kind of invented the the quick lunch. lunch. Yeah. The quick yeah. lunch. So you, yeah. you know, you're working, you're at the office, uh, you need a you need a little break. You want a pint, you want a sandwich. Crowley's Ales. So in a funny way, almost like a proto-Starbucks kind of a, a yeah. scenario. But right, with, yeah. Huh. Yeah, but with yeah, pop beer. Pop down, get a ham sandwich and a, you know, a glass of ale, sparkling mm -hmm. Crowley's Ale. And yeah. That sounds yeah. great. Right. They made it killing. So, They've been an absolute killing with it. They absolutely did. Mm -hmm. uh, and then later Crowley would make would literally make a killing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. The tremendous success and spread of the Elton Ale Houses also inspired parodies with a beer shop in City Road announcing a glass of ale and an electric shock for four pence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> People pay good money for that nowadays, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Fire the copywriter. In... Uh, <laughs> In response to their imitators, the Crowleys ran the following notice in the Times. Crowley's Elton Ale, being desirous that the public should not be deceived in purchasing a spurious article for their Elton Ale, ACS and H. Crowley beg to inform that they have no Elton Ale stores or any agent in London except at their Elton Ale Wharf, Upper Four Street, Lambeth. And whereas houses have been opened in imitation of their customers on the new ale and sandwich plan, they further state that they do not supply ale to any such house unless the name of Crowley's conspicuously written up. Elton, June, 1843. Hmm. I think of all the Starbucks knockoffs that there are, all of the different chains mm -hmm. and things. That's the best mm -hmm. comparison mm -hmm. I have. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll go on a little bit more because I think this is interesting. In subsequent years, Crowley's Ale Stores expanded into London locations like Bishopsgate, Kensington Park Terrace, London Bridge, Kingston, Fenchurch Street, and Wandsworth Road, with distribution channels to match. Their barge, Amelia, carried product along the Thames, while In Praise of Ale declared the London South and Southwestern Railway transports Alton Ale in large quantities to London. Indeed, their commercial success was so great that one city newspaper joked, some sensation was excited in the city towards the close of the day yesterday in consequence of a report that government intends to legalize the sale of the Bank of England and that a celebrated purveyor of ham and beef had made the directors a liberal offer on behalf of an Elton Ale brewer. But we think the rumor is premature. So they were so popular, they were going to buy the Bank of England. Uh, wow. That's cool. and that nice. Yeah. So you have to imagine before he was even born. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. And they didn't just sit on their laurels with the ale. Uh, they went on and invested in the railway, 
uh, waterways. They they were real money. They made their money and they and they held on it and, and they did well. And Crowley got to burn through it <laughs> in spectacular Excellent. fashion. He did, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? Well, so uh, I'm going to read from the beginning of his autohagiography. But after I do, uh, or or I'm going to do that after I just read the quick kind of overview. 1875, October 12th. Crowley was, was born at Leamington, Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, England, uh, at between 11 p.m. and midnight. His birth name was Edward Alexander Crowley, and he was known to family as Alec, C.K., which is interesting, Alec. In adulthood... <laughs> He would change his name to Alistair. He was tongue-tied, and within the first few days of his birth, a doctor cut the frenum that connected his tongue to the bottom of his mouth. Despite the intervention, he would never pronounce the letter R correctly. Crowley's parents were Emily Bertha Bishop Crowley and Edward Crowley Jr. Esquire. His father had trained as an engineer, but the family's lucrative brewing business, Crowley's Out Nails, enabled him to retire before young Alec was even born. Although born a Quaker, Crowley's father converted to fundamentalist uh, evangelical sect known as the Plymouth Bread Brethren or Darbyists, a denomination of pre-tribute. What is this? Pre-tribulational. Oh, pre-tribulational, premillennial biblical literalists, which, though only split in 1847 from a sect established in the 1820s, had already earned the distinction of being the narrowest and most bigoted sect on earth. Wow. Alex's father was intensely devout, a traveling preacher for the sect. He penned and disseminated copious tracts. Now, for our American friends, our our American listeners, I know we have listeners all over. We're, we're big and hungry. Hello. Uh, <laughs> for whatever reason, we're chart and hungry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, hello. Uh, but I think one, one thing about Crowley that is sort of, he's so English. He's so British that there can be a bit of a disconnect. Well, Think about whether you were raised evangelical or you have any friends who are maybe raised in certain fringe evangelical mm -hmm. sects. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, but yeah, like Westboro Baptist Church or something. For sure. He's not coming from, you know, the classical like high church Anglican background or anything like that. He is coming from, yeah. it's, in a way, it's almost quite American, you know, yeah. it's kind of intense <laughs> Protestant fundamentalism that anyone who is is not affiliated with you who does not think as you are that they're just persona non grata you can't even interact with them it's it's extraordinary the kind of the kind of families who break up over a slight disagreement mm. in doctrine mm -hmm. a borderline hysterical at and all and indeed times. that that did happen a little a mm -hmm. little later in his life right we'll we'll come yes, to that indeed so and i personally know people who grew up in environments like that and uh it's just it's very interesting to think of Crowley as someone like that. He did not he came from money, but he didn't come from old Episcopalian money or, <laughs> or Anglican money or whatever, whatever it is. Um, all right. So now I'm going to read. We got to get a little taste of of Crowley from the confessions, the autohagiography. Uh, now, <laughs> and his his how would you describe his style, Stephanie? Purple? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's florid. It's um, I mean, it's a his time, I suppose, you know, he's, he, he's not really, he's not a colloquial writer generally. I mean, he has his moments, but it's, uh, you have to pay attention reading him mm, for sure. Indeed. Indeed you do. It's so funny in this thousand page biography, 
he does not apologize once. Oh no, never. Of course not. He was he <laughs> was not. never in the wrong. No. <laughs> Ever. But you see where it comes from, right? When you mm. consider his religious upbringing, the intensity of the man and, you know, his utter intractability makes perfect sense when you consider, you know, his earliest years and what he's coming out of. Right? He gets right. it honestly. He just flipped the script and made himself the most figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've got that little cauldron going. All right. So this is Crowley writing of himself. Edward Crowley, the wealthy scion of a race of Quakers, was the father, or he's writing about his father here, was the father of a son born at 30 Clarendon Square, Leamington, Warwickshire, on the 12th day of October, 1875, between 11 and 12 at night. Leo was just rising at the time, as nearly as can be ascertained. The branch of the family of Crowley to which this man belonged has been settled in England since Tudor times. In the days of bad Queen Bess, there was a Bishop Crowley who wrote epigrams in the style of Maritol. One of them, the only one I know, runs thus. The bods of the stews be all turned out, but I think they inhabit all England throughout. I cannot find the modern book which quotes this as a footnote, and I have not been able to trace the original volume. So again, is he full of it? He's already... Toying with you. What is what is mm-hmm. truth? Mm. The Crowleys are, however, of Celtic origin. The name O. Crowley is common in Southwest Ireland, and the Breton family of de Carolet, that's tough to say, which gave England a Duchess of Portsmouth, or de, de Carval is of the same stock. Legend will have it that the then head of the family came to England when the Earl of Richmond, uh, with the Earl of Richmond, had helped to make him king of Bodsworth Field. So he goes on here. Um, I think there's a specific thing that I want to uh, cite. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, this but, is, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty accessible yeah. as Crowley goes. When you get into his magical work, it's incredibly dense. Uh, you know, he cites, uh, quotes silently. He draws on, you know, multiple. There's a great deal of silent intertextuality and things going on in him. But he, they're dense. His writing is dense. And you have to be prepared for it and pay attention. You're not sort of casually reading it on the bus. He covers a lot of ground and he rambles. So yeah, this is this yes. is pretty accessible as he goes. So yeah. indeed. And uh hmm. If you if you really want to get into Crowley at a basic level, I do recommend uh Magic Without Tears mm-hmm. uh is a very accessible introduction. We're gonna come to that to the end. I forgot something in the preamble here. I wanted to ask Brad a question. Brad. Hmm. Yeah. How would you define magic with a K? Magic with a K? I mean, I, I don't, I can't quote it verbatim, but um, I, my version, uh, memor, remembered version of Crowley's definition has always worked for me, which is basically like um, the art of applying your will to make, to change reality. Uh, and not necessarily in the in the supernatural way, like I'm going to make dragons fly around, but like to bend reality to you. That's how I think of it. All right, we're gonna we're gonna yeah. get to his precise definition at the end. I just wanted to okay. see what what level of initiate we were dealing with here uh, in, <laughs> in you, Brad. Uh, Brad clearly yeah. has grounding in the mysteries. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. What a what an oxymoron grounding in the grounding in the mysteries. Yes. Right? Uh, so here we go. So here's Crowley writing of himself. Uh, his firstborn son, 
the aforesaid, was remarkable from the moment of his arrival. He bore on his body the three most important distinguishing marks of a Buddha. He was tongue-tied, and on the second day of his incarnation, a surgeon cut the frenum linge. He had also the characteristic membrane which necessitated an operation for phimosis some three lustres later. I have no idea what that means. Probably three years later. Uh, lastly, he had upon the center of his heart four hairs curling from left to right in the exact form of a swastika. <laughs> okay. And of course, this was this was before the swastika had become the symbol yeah, right. it is now. But he's basically saying, I was born a, I was born with the, with the signs of the Buddha in, in England. Okay. He's not, right. he's not modest. A, a, a lustrum is... This is an ancient Roman term. I believe it's a four or five year period off the top ah, of my head. Ah, okay. So he's talking about he had um, phimosis. I just hit. I'm not a physician, but I believe it refers <laughs> to when the, when the foreskin will not retract properly. So you need to to cut it. Ah, oh. interesting. Hmm. Okay. That's an interesting note. Okay, all right. Uh his his wand was was damaged. Hmm. Uh, um he was baptized by the names of Edward Alexander, the latter being the surname of an old friend of his father's, deeply beloved by him for the holiness of his life. By Plymouth Brethren standards, one may suppose. It seems probable that the boy was deeply impressed by being told at what age before six does not appear that Alexander means helper of men. He is still giving himself passionately to the task, despite the intellectual cynicism inseparable from intelligence after one has reached 40. Uh, so, okay, we've got a little taste of Crowley and his uh, modesty. Self-effacing, yeah, self-effacing, <laughs> modest. Never one to stand up in a crowd, right? Yes. <laughs> right. He he describes a little bit of the, the family life, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this. Let's see. All children born into a family whose social and economic conditions are settled are bound to take them for granted as universal. Trust fund kids. It is only when they meet with incompatible facts that they begin to wonder whether they are suited to their original environment. In this particular case, the most trifling incidents of life were necessarily interpreted as part of a prearranged plan, like the beginning of Candide. The underlying theory of life, which was assumed in the household, showed, it, showed itself constantly in practice. It is strange that less than 50 years later, this theory should seem such fantastic folly as to require a detailed account. This is what the family believed. The universe was created by God in 4004 BC. The Bible authorized version was literally true, having been dictated by the Holy Ghost himself to scribes incapable of even clerical errors. King James translators enjoyed an equal immunity. It was considered unusual and therefore in doubtful taste to appeal to the original texts. All other versions were regarded as inferior. The revised version in particular savored of heresy. John Nelson Darby, the founder of the Plymouth Brethren, being a very famous biblical scholar, had been invited to sit on the committee and had refused on the ground that some of the other scholars were atheists. The second coming of the Lord Jesus was confidently, confidently expected to occur at any moment. So imminent was it that preparations for a distant future such as signing a lease or ensuring one's life, might be held to imply lack of confidence of the promise, behold, I come quickly. So wow. That's the very, level. Very millenarian, very end of the world. I mean, it's almost like a doomsday cult. Basically, wow. yes. They thought the second coming was just imminent. Any moment wow. Jesus is going to come. Um, 
So prepare yourselves, right? And then they gave birth to him, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I will at some point here, Stephanie, I'll tag you in because we got a lot to read. Uh, but this is this is a fascinating. I, I've learned so much for just preparing the episode. It's exciting. So going on. As the son of exclusive brethren, Crowley's was a Spartan childhood. The Crowley's did not celebrate the pagan festival of Christmas. Likewise, brethren prohibitions forbade toys. When he learned to read at age four, Alex's primary text was the Bible. And you can see that through his writing. He said himself, Crowley is not a man who invented himself. Crowley is a man who created himself in opposition to existing materials. He really was a creature of this upbringing. This isn't to say he didn't do a great job of creating his persona and this identity, but he you can clearly see how he did not emerge out of thin air. Absolutely. It, and as you say, he's he's in opposition, and yet there are through lines, really remarkable ones, quite staggering ones, you know, that things that hold over. So he's not entirely in opposition. There's, there's through a glass darkly, right? There's a mirroring, and yet not everything is distorted, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a reason people sometimes sneeringly call it Crowleyanity. Mm, for sure. He made himself into this this messianic rock and roll god before rock and roll. I wonder what he would have thought of rock and roll. Let's get to it later. Okay, all right. Um, he probably would have looked down at it, uh, down on it. Um, his world was small. Exclusive brethren associated only with other exclusive brethren. So the extended family were alienated. I okay. I hate. I mean, all but this. he, but he was that. he was happy though. He does right. say he was happy. I mean, this is a life of. It sounds horrible to us, but it's all he's known, right? And mm-hmm. and he's, you know, protected. He d- never wants physically or anything. You know, it's a life of remarkable privilege. You know, it's mm-hmm. a bit of a loaded term, but it, it's true. And it, he says, you know, he was happy until the age of 10. And his, his father, this absolute Bible-thumping, vehement, I mean, this man printing tracts and going about the countryside, preaching and handing out these things he's printed off. I mean, he adored him. You know, young Alec just absolutely, his father was almost like a god to him. And there he was, the only son with him. He was mm. in his glory, right? Right. And and traveling with his father and watching his father preach in this really unorthodox way. So I mm. uh, did not fall too far from uh, the tree. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're going to move along in the timeline here. Uh, when Alec was five, 1880, a sister was born, Grace Mary Elizabeth Crowley, but she lived only four hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's said that he it did not register with him. Well, he, was, uh, he was quite small. Yeah. I mean, I think that age, yeah. some kids might be traumatized and devastated. Others, I mean, it's kids vary considerably in their maturity at that age. That's the sort of kids starting primary school age. So I think we cannot, we'll, we'll give him a pass on that one. There are other things mm. later we will not give him a pass on. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But I'll let him yeah. have that. Okay. He was very small. Sure. Right? Sure. But it must have affected the family for, for I think certain. so. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it probably yeah. affected his parents and maybe how they related mm. to him, which, you know, would have its own knock-on effects later on. The next year, the Crowleys moved to the Grange, Red Hill, Surrey. When he was eight, we're talking about 82, uh, 83, he was sent to White Rock School at 10 Pevensey Road at St. Leonard's-on-Sea, an extreme evangelical Christian boarding school. Not long thereafter, he transferred to a school for Sons of the Brethren at 51 Bateman Street, Cambridge. 
It was run by a true zealot named Reverend Henry Darcy Champney. Quoting, although the boys played cricket, scoring was forbidden lest they commit the sin of emulation. <laughs> They're that yeah. kind. Have you ever been around that kind of fundamentalist like yeah. that where it's like, no, we can't watch that movie. We can watch Veggie Tales, but we can't watch this because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, so what? The, the talking vegetables are purity. okay. Yeah. yeah just... purity, and it's illusory. You're not going to, I mean, and apparently the headmaster was an absolute sadist, but he was so pious when he was young, still following in his parents' footsteps. That, I mean, he was at the outset, he was quite happy there, even though, mm. you know, this extreme evangelical zealotry and, and the sadism of the headmaster. But I suppose it was, you know, in keeping with what he already knew, right? Mm. So it wasn't yeah. that strange. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely, uh, back in English elite boarding school territory here. Which is its own sort of, yeah, yeah, its own kind of pathology, I guess. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I just did what the heck. But things are about to change. Things are about to change for him before. Yeah. Very quickly. I mean, the next year, the next spring, really. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to read something here uh, about Crowley's relationship to the Bible. Equally formative, and, and this is again from Perdurabo. If I don't say what book it's from, it's from Perdurabo. <laughs> Which is the <laughs> absolute, it's a, it's a masterpiece. Long, it's a slog, but it is an absolute masterpiece. You know, if you're going to read one book about Crowley, make it that one. And, and even if you didn't intend to read about, I mean, pick it up and read it. It's a, just absolutely amazing piece of work. You know, it really is. Absolutely it's, be yeah. commended for it. It's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Equally formative in Crowley's life were the family's daily Bible readings. After breakfast each morning, the three Crowleys and their four servants, that's the kind of family we're dealing with, four servants. More servants servants than family members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gathered in the dining room and took turns reading biblical verses aloud. Alec was captivated by the unusual sounding names, such as those in his favorite chapter, Genesis 5, and voraciously absorbed his father's sermons on those familiar passages. Nevertheless, it was the the woman whom he regarded as little more than one of the servants, his mother, who inspired Alec's greatest fascination with the Bible. In moments of exasperation with her son, she would say he was the beast prophesied in the book of Revelation. This curious assertion, Alec, you are the beast. You are the the beast right. from Revelation. You know, it's like you know, your mom <laughs> might have used your middle name. Brad, what's your middle right. name? William. Brad William Kelly. <laughs> you get your <laughs> act together, right? Right. I yeah. don't know a lot of that. This mother is saying, You are the Alec, you beast. are the beast from Revelation. <laughs> evangelical household mm. so he knows mm. what that means he it has a weight i mean right oh, you know yeah. it's, it's not cosmological I... and right. yeah that's heavy that's heavy wow this curious assertion piqued his curiosity whoops the precocious youngster scurried back to his bible and marveled at its apocalyptic conclusion describing the tribulations to befall mankind the appearance of the great beast 666 who branded his number on the foreheads of his followers and the war in heaven between the woman clothed with the sun and the devouring beasts which we'll find we'll see in the tarot later uh heaven's angels harps and miracles paled beside the dragon false prophet and scarlet woman he speculated on the message of this story and he pondered what it meant if his mother was right <laughs> mommy says i'm the great beast <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so you know if the shoe fits but I, yeah. when you once you're familiar with his biography um the pretentiousness of that passage is just absolutely mm. 
incredible, incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think if you if you listen to this whole episode of the podcast and you go back and just listen to, to the first few parts or you know read that section, it's amazing. The echoes, the through lines, the the yeah, it had a huge impact on him. Obviously, be really careful what you say to your kids. Words are very magic. Mm-hmm. And uh, they yeah. will echo. I, I forgot to throw the first tarot card, and and the des- the description of the whore of Babylon reminded me of the do the it, sun. It, or right wait, now. no, uh, the, what is it? Lust from the the Toth tarot deck. So, I, so I'm yeah. going to use the deck right it, here, so. this. This has been online forever. I'm doing this one online because it. we're a we're a very online podcast. Uh, this you can find this at fourthdimension.net slash toth t-h-o-t-h. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask them about the podcast. I'm gonna get the first card and then on the after dark we'll finish the reading. So that'll be fun. Okay. Oh, what's the first I'm a Luddite. The- I'm here with the deck, right? <laughs> <Yeah. through. laughs> there here we, we go. go. All, right, I'm, all right. I'm gonna throw the the tarot. Okay. <laughs> Let's, see, lost, Let's see what we got. Let's see what we got. What do we have? It's the sun. It's oh. the sun. Oh, lovely. So, Great. wow, that's a funny coincidence because that was what was that was what I just said. Hmm. hmm. I wonder why that how that would the, work. Yeah, I wonder why that would happen. Hmm. The the, the spirits are in the machine. Uh, all right, yeah, I just have a, a coincidence. More. Just a coincidence. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> let Let's pause and just reflect on what we're doing right now. Uh, tr- you know, triangulating this this conversation that's going to go out to thousands of people. Hopefully, in the future, tens of thousands of people. Uh, Technology indistinguishable from what they would have considered magic many, not that many years mm-hmm. ago. We're living it. The, mm-hmm. the, the world, it reminds me of Ernst Jünger and the stereoscopic vision. You can have your materialist sort of banal reality, but sitting right next to it is magic or something else anyway. All right. Continuing. Um, so he's he's eight years old. He's at the school. Uh, Before depositing his son at the school, Edward Crowley, his father, gave him one last lesson from Genesis, this time chapter 9. And Noah began to be a a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he uncovered within his tent, and Ham, is it Ham? Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without, and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. He closed the Bible, looked sternly into his son's eyes and enjoined him, never let anyone touch you there. Although the rendition greatly impressed Alec, the reference to sodomy was lost on the boy, who thought little of the injunction at the time. So they're talking around it. Uh, yeah, and it's going completely over his head, really. You know, I wonder at what point it kind of sunk in and given everything else he had rejected, hey, right? <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, the the passage doesn't even seem to suggest it to me, but apparently there's some subtext. There must uh, be, yeah. Or you know, what it is is it's a it's an English father sending his son to school, and they know, they know, they know what, what happens boarding schools. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He doesn't know, so. so the reference is lost on him, right? Right, oh. right. So there you go, and that's a theme that's been coming up again and again on the pod. Very interesting, uh, sort of a situation. Uh, so okay, very good. 
Wow, we, we, we're this is going to be. We've got so much to cover. Let's 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 go. Let's push on. Um, in the spring of 1886, we're coming to a very big um, moment in, in mm-hmm. Crowley's life. He was 11. He was called home from school due to his father's illness, cancer of the tongue. The irony, a preacher, right? <laughs> right, and a Crowley had the the odd thing with his tongue too when he was born. So sort yeah, of that's, weird. That's true. Mm, yeah. Initially, his father was under the care of the foremost physician of the age, Sir James Paget, or Paget, who recommended surgery. wasn't Wasn't Paget? I, I think I read that he he was the surgeon to the doctor to Queen Victoria at at one point. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. he, he's remembered for I don't know how to pronounce it either. If it's Paget's or Paget's disease, you know, there are diseases named after him. Um, mm. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I know he was certainly very prominent, but yeah, I think it's just helpful to uh, yeah, he was sort of appointed it. right surgeon extraordinaire to Queen Victoria, so the, a celebrity doctor. I, again, reiterating the contrast and the weirdness between the even evangel- the strict evangel- evangelicalism and uh, this status. I just think it's so fascinating. Yeah. Uh, it's hmm. interesting, isn't it? It really is. Um, he recommended surgery. The brethren refused. <laughs> Typical. Uh, we know better than the hitherto. Pray away the, the cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Instead, Edward Crowley began seeing Count Cesar Matei, inventor of electrohemiopathy, which purports to treat ailments through the therapeutic bioenergy in plant extracts. Flim flam. So right. I mean, this stuff we we look at situate. This stuff still goes on. I mean, not always yep. through the evangelical lens, although that happens too. But I mean, you know, look at Steve Jobs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know. Yep. Yeah. Homie. Hundred percent is is. Brand you don't need you know. surgery here. Take touch grass. <laughs> Take <Right>. these plants. <laughs> really. Yeah. Pet this yeah. crystal. Mm-hmm. Um. The Grange was sold and the family moved to Glen Burnie, Southampton, nearer to treatment. So they met a bit of a of a Svengali mm-hmm. healer. And now we're going to move closer to this healer who's going to heal dad's cancer with electro-homeopathy, mm-hmm. uh, which it all sounds rather pagan, to be mm-hmm. frank, Yeah, in a, in a funny a way. Yeah. Well, yeah, pl- like plant medicine kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? But with a mm-hmm. sort of a future, like a, a industrial age spin on it. Yeah, hmm. yeah it's interesting. Yeah, there's yeah. A, that. Um, I can't remember which chapter of Genesis off the top of my head. I usually do, but uh, I'm giving you all the seed bearing plants and herbs to use, right? That you know, God mm-hmm. puts plants on earth for the use of mankind and as food and also to heal, right? So it, mm-hmm. from that perspective, it may mm-hmm. have made a little more sense to them than cutting into the body. Right. Right. Well, and when you think about medical malpractice now today and the recent history, the Mm -hmm. Christian scientists are looking less and less wacky than than before. But let's not let's not go down that rabbit hole. That's for that's for a different podcast. (laughs) Uh, That's for the podcast down by the docks later. So we're we're now moving uh, into 1887 in March. Alec woke from a disturbing dream about his father's death. The next day, he learned his father had died the very night of mm-hmm. his dream. Crowley described this as a turning point in his life. He always maintained an admiration of his father, describing him as my hero and my friend. 
in in the confessions he wrote on March 5th, 1887, Edward Crowley died. The course of the disease had been practically painless. Only one point is of interest to our present purpose. On the night of March 5th, the boy, away at school, dreamed that his father was dead. There was no reason for this in the ordinary way, as the reports had been highly optimistic. The boy remembers that the quality of the dream was entirely different from anything that he had known. The news of the death did not arrive in Cambridge till the following morning. The interest of this fact depends on a subsequent parallel. During the years that followed, the boy and the man dreamed repeatedly that his mother was dead, but on the day of her death, he then, 3,000 miles away, had the same dream, save that it differed from the others by possessing this peculiar, indescribable, but unmistakable quality that he remembered in connection with the death of his father. From the moment of the funeral, the boy's life entered on an entirely new phase. The change was radical. Within three weeks of his return to school, he got into trouble for the first time. He does not remember uh, for what offense, but only that his punishment was diminished on account of his bereavement. This was the first symptom of a complete reversal of his attitude to life in every respect. It seems obvious that his father's death must have been causally connected with it, but even so, the event remain, events remain inexplicable. The conditions of his school life, for instance, can hardly have altered. Yet his reaction to them makes it almost incredible that it was the same boy. Previous to the, to the death of Edward Crowley, the recollections of his son, however vivid or detailed, appear to him strangely impersonal. In throwing back his mind to that period, he feels, although attention constantly elicits new facts, that he is investigating the behavior of somebody else. It is only from this point that he begins to think of himself in the first person. From this point, however, he does so and is able to continue this autohagiography in a more conventional style by speaking of himself as I. And in the in the hagiography prior to his father's death, he refers to himself in the third person, but thereafter mm. he says I. It's really yeah, rhetorically effective. You know, I, uh, I, it's almost it almost marks a kind of um this referentiality to self, the way it shifts, it it seems to uh Mark almost a kind of initiation in a way. Mm. And when you consider mm -hmm. as well as upbringing and the importance and the recurrence of prophetic dreams in the Bible, right? You've got Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Abraham's vision in the night, um, Pharaoh's dreams, you know, so on. This is something that keeps coming up. So it's very interesting that this, this change in him is presaged with these dreams. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or at least he claims that. <laughs> right, because this right. is Crowley right. we're dealing with, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy to say you had a you had a prophetic yeah. dream post hoc, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, I have another paragraph from Perturabo that says Alex's boyhood in hell, as he later called it, began after the funeral. That was when everything changed. Emily adop adopted Edward Crowley's cause, dutifully sending brethren literature to the people in her husband's address book. He was a mailing. He had a mailing list. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing changes. Nothing, uh, yeah. <laughs> nothing changes. Uh, let's not talk about what happened to my Twitter account. Uh, <clears throat> go, go to art of dark pod on, on Twitter. If you want to get in touch. Um, <laughs> she also sold their house and spent the next year or two living in various hotels. I posted too many guillotines. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating because it's not, it's not as if she needed to, like he was, right, right. when this man died, he, he was worth 150,000 pounds. That's like $6 million, right? right. Uh, she got a third 
Alec got a third, and then there was mm-hmm. another third that uh, it went to relatives, but it you know was coming to him. This is not a small sum of money, that, no, you know. Okay. And and she lived so narrowly that she wasn't going through it, so she he was going to get that third too, right? When she passed, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, listen to this. I mean, you know, they spent the next year or two living in various hotels, trying to think about it. this. Is crazy. I mean, it's a little maybe a little different over there, but. In any case, beneath the surface, however, she also changed as a person. This transformation resulted from yet another schism in the exclusive brethren. Ultra-Protestant, just keep winnowing it down until you're broken into right. just these cults, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Twitter. Twitter's inherently Protestant, right? All these infighting and these factions on each other's throats. No, we're going to bring it back. Yeah, yeah, Deus yeah. Volt, we're going to bring it back. Twitter, <laughs> it's Catholic. We're going to be heterodox, the one true faith. Yeah, Twitter integralism. Somebody somebody DM us. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine why I got banned. Um, right. This tra- yeah, right. Uh, yet another schism known as the Raven Division after Brother Frederick Edward Raven. It bitterly sundered friends and families over a doctrinal point regarding baptism, whether one was reborn into eternal life or whether eternal life was attained through faith alone. Again, what do they say in the Netherlands? They're fucking ants. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> And you're just, it's just an excuse to just, yeah. A bunch of ant fuckers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just ant fucking, yeah, right. We are all good. We are all in so much trouble with so many people right now. (laughs) We are, this this podcast, we are starting to offend people on all sides. So good job. Um, Emily Crowley took the minority view and willfully cut herself off from her dissenting intimates. Despite the love she once professed for them, none she now believed would reach heaven. Great. Uh, sadly, just as Edward Crowley's faith had estranged Emily from most of her family, her own fanaticism now separated her from her friends. I'm sure that's what that's what Jesus would want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this had, connection from yeah. all of the other people, and this had a huge and... impact on him. I mean, his world was fairly small anyway, and now he's lost his father, and now that he later he described her as quote a brainless bigot of the most narrow, logical, and inhuman type. And he said, wow. the whole business of religion became intolerable. I did not hate God or Christ, but merely the God and Christ of the people whom I hated. The Christianity of hypocrisy and cruelty was not true Christianity. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can see. Uh, yeah. So, so you can see, uh, well, it sounds like a lot of his life was a sort of a rebellion against this. Which, yeah, you can, you can understand it, I think. You know, you mm-hmm. tend to go one yeah. way or another in those situations, probably. Mm-hmm. One, one can also imagine a, a little alternate universe where Crowley's raised by Satanists who are similarly insufferable. And becomes a bishop becomes, or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Starts his own church, right? It's, right. it's yeah. So, right. In, in the big upside down. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So, he began misbehaving in school, harshly punished by the headmaster, although... Uh, I don't know if I have the passage in front of me. They would not. Uh, they would not lash you on the buttocks. Rather, oh, they yeah. inspire arousal. Yeah. Can't have that, right? So we've got to be very careful. Um, after he developed albuminaria, now do we know what this is? If not, I'm going to look it up because he he was plagued with with health problems. Uh, I think it was it's a kidney disease. It means that you have too much albumin in your urine. Uh, it's a protein hmm. found in the blood. So he had kidney problems, essentially. Yeah, yeah that's about the extent uh, okay. of my knowledge of it. I, at least yeah. I think that's what it is. 
he would also deal with with asthma, uh, which he had in common with Francis Bacon, who we've covered mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, and of course, it's worth pointing out we're dealing now with a with a young person who loses a parent. We have a mm-hmm. lot of that on the pod. It, a it lot comes of that. Up and, mm-hmm. I mean, it's huge, and especially I mean, he was eleven. That's a difficult age, anyway, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. and if, it's it's you're old enough to to no, feel yeah. the absence and to yeah. 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 And then embarking, I mean, on you know, on adolescence and going into manhood without a father figure there. Right. Especially right. one that you idolized. I mean, it, it would have been incredibly traumatic. Yeah. Well, at the age of eleven, he was worth two million dollars in today's money. Probably probably three million now. Thank thanks, Joe mm-hmm. Biden. Kidding. <laughs> but you <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Inflation. Yeah. Um yeah. right. So let's see here. Well, they pulled him out uh, of school. Right, pull him out you of know. school. Yep, and then now, they sent him to mm-hmm. one school, and then they sent him to another school, and he, he hated both of them. And mm. of course, you know, he made kind of made his own problems. So I mean, he he indicates that at this point, in addition to starting smoking, masturbating, the general sort of rebellious things that young teenagers often do, especially if they've been mm. through you know incredible personal adversity, he had a tendency to point out inconsistencies in the Bible mm. to his fundamentalist evangelical teachers, which did not land very well. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine he was he was that kid in class, huh? He was that kid, yeah. yeah. And so he became increasingly <laughs> skeptical of Christianity, right? And I'm sure there was a vicious feedback loop there, right? Where I mean, he's just in turmoil, and you are anyway at that age, and then add these things, and he's acting out, and then they're punishing him because they're not understanding mm-hmm. at all. And, you know, then he gears up because, you know, as Kevin points out, he never says sorry. Nothing is ever right. his fault, right? And it just goes on and on, snowballs, right? Mm-hmm. I have a few things from this period. Uh, I can't recall the exact passage, but it's quite funny. He was talking with his uncle at some point, and his uncle warned him about the the two ki- the two kings smoke king and drink king and crowley said what about the third king and his and his <laughs> uncle was like oh no <laughs> too late already <laughs> uh, too late too, too late um well so uh one of the children and we're back at the school here one of the children had described crowley's latest misdeed and champney wanted a confession uh let me see if i can find the the deed uh well of course he doesn't admit any of them um, this is the one where he he doesn't actually. They never tell him because he's supposed to know. It's not mm. this episode. There were so many episodes of trouble with this kid. Right, um, yeah. right. And so yeah, he's supposed yeah. to confess and be con- contrite, but he refused. To, and I, I understand. I feel the same that way. He refused sense. to do it because yeah. you know I don't even know what I'm confessing for. I'm not going to say that I'm right. guilty and yeah. you know express contrition and do penance or whatever when I don't even know what I'm supposed to have done. Right, right. right. Well, right. and and so he just gave him the silent treatment and his mm-hmm. punishment for this was placement in Coventry, meaning that no master or boy could speak to Alec nor he to them. During play hours, he would work. During work hours, he would wander the empty schoolyard. Social contact was forbidden. And in the isolation, he would receive only bread and water. To end it all, all Alec had to do was confess. So he's put, the, put him yeah. in, his father's just died and now these geniuses, these crazy cultists are are punishing him with the silent treatment. Great. Wow. And he doesn't yeah, even understand why, you know, and, and perhaps yeah. there was nothing in particular that he did. I mean, kids can be spiteful, you know, someone mm, decided he yeah. didn't like him or whatever and made something up. It happens, right? I yeah. mean, I'm yeah. not saying that's what happened. I have no idea, but 
it's it's just the whole incident, the whole episode's spectacularly Oof. perverse to me. Yeah, yeah. Could, I could almost feel him getting angry. Yes, like you, you know, like yeah, in that in that moment, in that period of isolation, unfairness, and your father taken from you, and your mother's not great, and yeah, yeah, I can mm-hmm. I could feel the young man getting all rage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, here it is. I found the passage. Uh let's see here. Alec was soon well enough to attend part-time at Streatham Day School, so they're moving him around schools south of London. Here he discovered smoking, one of the top two of his Uncle Tom's hit parade of sin. He recalled with amusement his uncle's, so the uncle's come into his life a bit, right, with his father's death. Uh, He recalled with amusement his uncle's attempt to convey to him the moral of an article that he had written for Boys Magazine on the evils of drinking and smoking, the two wicked kings. Alec, my lad, he summoned the boy over. Yes, uncle? Tom replied predictably, oh, my prophetic soul, mine uncle. Alec knew this response well, and having by now learned Hamlet, quickly completed the quote, I, that incestuous, that adulterate beast. Do you know of the two wicked kings, Tom continued undaunted? After a pause, he answered for Alec, drink king and smoke king. Alec, having read the article, pointed out, but uncle, you have forgotten to mention a third, the most dangerous and deadly of all. Uncle Tom pondered the riddle for a moment and drew a blank. Alec's crude but astute identification, whether it was fucking or wanking, he does not say, stunned him. (laughs) Um, To Alec, this wicked king business was just another example of Uncle Tom's misguided enthusiasm. Papa had drunk wine, claiming he would rather preach to miserable drunkards than self-righteous teetotalers. Drinking, therefore, couldn't be a serious offense. But Papa had also said, if God had intended man to smoke, he would have supplied a chimney at the top of his head. The observation did nothing to deter the habit Alec uh, had learned at Streatham. So he's already... Uh, <clears throat> getting there and then of course now we have the third king and i'm going to go on uh as he recovered from his medical condition alec became a handsome young man his hair was neatly cropped and his eyes dark penetrating brooding expressive lips and a wide square chin supported his features his body possessed a sinew and virality of a young man in his prime suddenly he found himself desirable to young women alec thrilled when the new parlor maid flirted with him but too inexperienced to know how to respond, he shied away until, on her night off, he worked up the courage to flirt with her during a cab ride. Then, one Sunday, when Alec made some excuse not to join the family at church, he led the maid into his mother's bedroom. For Alec, the thrill of seducing her on the bed of his pious mother was more than just an adolescent expression of Oedipal urge. It was a victory over religious oppression. Uh, I'm going to go on because this is an important incident. Now, um, Stephanie, this isn't where he lost his virginity, was it? Uh, this- I, I'm not sure. He says that he, well, he, around this time, and I'm not sure exactly when, but um, he was, uh, his mother hired a, a tutor for him, I think. Mm-hmm. No, he was sent on a rest cure for whooping cough. Right. Uh, this was via bicycle. And there was a tutor assigned to him, this fellow James Archibald Douglas. And he was, you know, in his 20s. Um, he taught arts and philosophy. He was from Yorkshire. And, you know, he, he was actually quite a positive influence in Alex's life, right? He had 
well, he was normal. <laughs> as loaded <laughs> as that word is, he smoked, he drank, you know, not in excess or anything. He, he was a normal 25-year-old man. He played cards. He played billiards. He thought women were this, like, welcome pleasure in life, where you're companions instead of vehicles of sin. And mm-hmm. he showed Alex that you could enjoy these things in moderation, right? And so he's coming out of this really stifling home life. And here's this completely new outlook that uh, seemed to be a really, really important influence for him. He wrote later, he taught me sense and manhood, and I shall not easily forget my debt to him. Now, Crowley says during this trip with this tutor, this um, Douglas fellow, um, he claimed that he supposedly lost his virginity to a girl from a local theater. And he, reported, ah. yeah, he reports that this experience led him to, quote, realize that sex was not a subject of evil and sin. Right? So he understands it's, that it's, it, this is joy. It can be beautiful. And in that awakening, he shed his obsession with sin like a heavy winter jacket. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, he says, OK, here is what he, you know, he frolicking in the fields, loses his virginity to a theater girl, you know, as one does, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet we that have this other right. story about the, about the maid, right? And it, it is yeah, yeah, it might have been after. It's Maybe it's not it entirely. After. Yeah, it might have been after. But apparently, he went on this trip, and they went they went climbing. And we're going to get into the mountaineering side of Crowley. Yeah. I hadn't realized that his his interest in climbing had begun at such a young age. Quite, but it sounds early. like, yeah, did he go? To this by, place. by 1890, I mean, as all this is happening and they're sort of ostracizing him, he's not just, you know, wallowing in, in misery. He was developing interest in chess and, and already developing interest in, in poetry. And by 1890, so he's, he's quite young then, he's what, 15, I think, um, he was interested in mountain climbing. And he's, this is getting ahead of us quite a bit, but he's the first Westerner to attempt, attempt K2. In, in 1902, um, he went on that expedition with Eckenstein and uh, led an attempt on Kachinyunga. Uh, that expedition was unsuccessful. We're, we're um, going to get to that. It was worse we're than, get to worse that. than it was, Yeah, I don't yeah. want to. Crowley was almost yeah. criminally negligent. It, it was it definitely hurt his. We'll get yeah. there. I may have named my business after Crowley's ascent to K2. Oh really? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I will yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and these were the only ones, right? Like he he um mm-hmm. he expressed a belief. Yeah, you don't go right to you know, that. You you work your way up to that. You work sure. your way up to that. And and you know, mm-hmm. he he you know had comments later about which approach would be best if you were going to conquer these. And and subsequent when these peaks were summited later, 50, 60 years later, he was proven correct, right? Um mm-hmm. He, he was a really early pioneer of balance-based climbing, and he climbed all through the Lake District in the 1890s, um, solo ascents. He's, he's climbing the chalk cliffs down at Beachy Head. He, he, he oh. wrote a climbing book, you know. So the, the chalk cliffs, there was one move he made, which is mm-hmm. still talked about, where he used his chin to get yeah. leverage. So I like this image. You sort of think of Crowley as a Satanist, although he wasn't, right? He's like almost like a goat. He's like, ah, scramble right. it up. Yeah. And right. Using his chin. There's still a place, uh, I think it's at Beachy Head, one of these uh, mm-hmm. that he Is and that a, the and Cullen a, Crack? Yeah, yeah. They still call it the Crowley, the Crowley Crack mm-hmm. uh, because he was the first mm-hmm. one to climb it and he figured out the, the path. And these things are related. Like chess, mountaineering has a, an element of chess. It's you uh-huh. against the climb, you against the mountain. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it sounds like in – I'm reading the outline here. And in 1891 on Easter – Oh, he yeah. climbed Scotland's highest summit, Ben Macdui, 
uh, which is 4,300 feet and that's something a, happened. That's a great yeah. story. Yeah. This is, we're getting into slowly creeping into the more kind of, I guess, occult esoteric aspects of, of his life, right? This is okay. We'll, we'll have a digression here. One of my digressions, I'm sorry, we're going <laughs> to digress. So he, the Bemekri is in the Cairngorms. It, it's the highest peak in that plateau and it's the second highest mountain in Scotland. And there are tales that long predate Crowley of this strange specter or, or an entity that haunts the summit and Farlath Moor, the great gray man. And the accounts date back centuries. So the, the same year Crowley crime, for instance, this fellow John Norman Colley had a strange experience near the summit. He was University of London's first professor of organic chemistry, right? An intelligent, sensible fellow, he was a fellow of the Royal Society. He was a great climber, honorary president of the Cairngorm Club, right? He was very well respected. He'd climbed Everest. He climbed the Rockies. And he was a great storyteller. He was a raconteur. And at a club dinner in Edinburgh one time, he, he recounted that he was returning. I'll, I'll read from his account here. I was returning from the cairn on the summit in a mist when I began to think I heard something else than merely the noise of my own footsteps. Every few steps I took, I heard a crunch. Then another crunch, as if someone was walking after me, but taking steps three or four times the length of my own. I said to myself, oh, this is all nonsense. I listened and I heard it again, but I could see nothing in the mist. And as I walked on and the eerie crunch, crunch, sounded behind me, I was then seized with terror and I took to my heels, staggering blindly among the boulders for four or five miles, nearly down to the forest. And whatever you make of it, I don't know, but there's something very queer about the top of Bemakdui and I will not go back there again. Now, this is the kind of form these stories generally take, these strange crunching sounds and a clear sense that you are being followed by something malevolent. Now, mm. It's worth noting here that this fellow Collie, he, although he, you know, was a scientist, he believed in the occult and he really delayed in telling strange tales. Um, and the stories tend to bristle with, you know, Gaelic mountain deities and strange entities. And no one was quite clear on how much he believed or whether he was just yanking people's change. But this was not the first such encounter, right? So even a century prior, 1791, James Hogg, this who is a poet, you can access some of his work online. He was a young man then about 20, 21, and he was working as a shepherd. And he was tending his flock up on the mountain. And suddenly there loomed up this giant black feature, a figure. He said, you know, quote, at least 30 feet high and equally proportioned and very near me. And I was struck powerless with astonishment and terror. So he gathered his wits and he took off, fleeing homewards. I have no idea what became of the sheep. He doesn't tell us. Poor little sheep. <laughs> so he goes home, he throws himself down, he has a meal, he gets cleaned up and he goes to bed. And the next day he's feeling a little braver and he, he goes back up the mountain and he encounters the same entity. But this time, because he was expecting, he was a little more prepared, he noticed when he froze in horror, this massive specter also froze. And so he steeled himself and he thought, you know, very quick thinking in the moment, I'm, I'm going to try something. And he doffed his cap and the monster mimicked his motions. Uh... And so he instantly recognized that this is just his own shadow cast on the fog around the sun summit. And he works this experience later into one of his, um, his works, the Confessions of a Justified Sinner. So wow. the gray man is, 
you know, then an atmospheric phenomenon known as a Brocken specter. Yes, named for the Brocken, a peak in, in Germany's Hartz Mountains. And it occurs when you climb such that the sun casts your shadow onto fog below. And it's documented from as early as 1780, probably earlier. Mm-hmm. But there's one problem. Brocken specters are silent. And then almost all the accounts of encounters with this great gray man, they don't describe a specter. They describe crunching sounds and being followed and this intense fear or dread. And Crowley's experiences of this type, he insisted when 1891 Easter, when he ascends this mountain in the Cairngorm, he was followed. And he, he didn't know by what. He refused to speculate. People asked him repeatedly over the years and he wouldn't say. But, I mean, he's fearless and quite supernaturally enamored. He spent his honeymoon, as, as we'll hear, reading, you know, a demonic text inside the Great Pyramid in Egypt. But he remarked, quote, no power on earth will ever take me up Ben McDuey again. And he loved climbing, but he kept his word. Whoa. So, I love Heart that. of Darkness field yeah. trip. Let's go. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's podcast from the from Scotland. Yeah. Uh, oh my cool. gosh. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool? That'd be uh, very that was a great uh, interlude. I really appreciate that, that coverage. Yeah, I, awesome. I wasn't aware of some of that stuff. Um, well, so now he's about to turn 16 years old, uh, and we're in 1891. He's already well into his teenage rebellion. Alec brought a 10-pound jar home from the grocer and filled it with <laughs> two pounds of gunpowder. <laughs> this, this he topped with metallic salts, sugar, and potassium chlorate. He dug a hole in the ground, inserted the jar, and lit the concoction. The explosion shattered windows nearby and left a large crater in the ground. Alec fell unconscious on the ground without ever hearing the boom. Countless pieces of gravel embedded in his face. It would be Christmas before his eyes healed enough to be briefly exposed to light. Oh, my. Uh, So he almost killed it. I mean, he almost blew himself up. Right. It, It is the sort of thing boys in early adolescence do though i mean not to stereotype but this is kind of reckless i I know i know a couple people who maybe not at that scale but something similar where in hindsight you're like yeah that was probably the stupidest thing you've ever done ever done yes it's something about the age but it makes me wonder and i you know a retroactive like historical diagnosis is is fraught and nobody should be doing it (laughs) at all Mm -hmm. but it does kind of make you wonder you know uh, is there a you know, a TBI here, uh, you know, traumatic brain injury. Yeah, that's it's possibly possible, right? Later, some of his reckless right. behavior. The, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe the business that happens in the Great Pyramid later started when he nearly <laughs> yeah. blew himself up. Yeah. Uh, and he's hearing things on the mountain. And okay, all yeah. right, interesting. Yeah, okay, fun. Uh, moving along in the timeline, the spring of 92. Uh, yeah, well, of yeah. course, his, his uncle's like, that's it. You know, the, we've got to get him out of here. He's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He's going to blow the place up. He's going to burn yeah. down. There's right? a pretty, yeah, sometimes boarding school, it's yeah. the best thing. It's the best yeah. thing for you. Um, Alec is sent off to school. Huntington's number four in Malvern, Worcestershire, a small town in the English Midlands. Here he enrolled in a militia, the first Worcestershire artillery volunteers. He was bullied. Buggery was widespread. And his it's, study companion yeah. even made money as a prostitute. Uh, he oh. parlayed this information into a speedy transfer the, for the following year. He wanted to get out of that place. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's that Bible verse, right? He can he can hearken back to that and get mm-hmm. me out of here. Right. You're right. Yeah. Right. So he's still willing to leverage the family's 
puritanical evangelicalism mm-hmm. when it suits him, uh, which I guess is maybe the best thing you can do with that kind of uh, mental uh, landscape. Mm-hmm. He's, he spent that summer on the Isle of Skye with his mother, and there he met Sir Joseph Lister. An avid, mountain, avid mountaineer, he persuaded a group of climbers to take Alec up the 3,162-foot Sir Nongillian. Crowley was hooked by the experience, which marked the first of many competitive climbs. He actually began climbing as early as 1890, but Lister opened his eyes to the idea that it could be a competitive sport. So uh, now he has an outlet. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. In the fall of 92, he transferred to Tunbridge School, Kent. Uh, His house was Ferrex Hall. Here, he, in his own words, in his personal copy of World's Tragedy, caught the clap from a Glasgow prostitute. So, all right. Yeah, we're into it. So we're not just uh, shtooping the maid, uh, you know, on your mother's bed anymore. We're going out looking for it. Mm -hmm. His mother then sent him to Eastburn to live with a brethren tutor named Lambert. Uh, In 94. So we're going to move. We're going to move forward here. Is there anything, Stephanie, we're missing? missing I don't think anything major. I mean, I might be entirely wrong with that. There's probably, I'm hoping. He probably probably continued to screw the help. Uh, I would say, yeah, Yeah, this is like a a fine (laughs) upper class tradition, right? Mm, Um, right. But he's going on, he's playing chess, he's climbing. This is around the time when he's engaging in chalk cliff climbing on on Beachy Head. And then he goes to the Alps um, and he joins the Scottish Mountaineering Club. Um, He uh, was approved for membership in the Scottish Mountaineering Club, I think, uh, around this time. And, And then, yeah, went to the Alps, the Bernese Alps. He climbed a whole the Wetterhorn and then a whole series of other mountains. Oh. I don't know how to pronounce because I, I don't have any German. Well, let me, let me, I'll, I'll try to do my best. So he, he, in the Bernese Alps, he climbed the Eiger, the Trift, the Jungfrau, Munk, and the Wetterhorn. Um, and let's, let's not forget that at this point he has his $2 million. He yes. has, he's footloose and fancy free. He's got it. I don't know if he has access to all of it at this point, but he has no worries. He can go all around mm. Europe. Right. He can mountaineer. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, and so this is, to be clear, this is serious mountaineering. This is oh, not yes. a hob- yeah, hobby the, stuff. I, the Eiger, the Eiger is a big deal. I don't know much about the other mountains, but yeah, those are that's those are serious mountains. Yeah, he's hard. And they don't have gear. They don't have gear there than like we do, or you know, even protection from the cold no. like we do. So no, it, even I mean, his climbing buddy, the fellow he ascended um, K two and Kachunga with, he would later invent the crampon, right? So right. they don't even have right. this. Yeah, right? yeah, which yeah, it's a basic piece of equipment now for mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And that chalk cliff climbing is it's extraordinarily difficult and hazardous oh, yeah. because it will pull away. You yeah. can't, you have Riddle. to be really, really careful. Uh, you know, if you want to have a little bit of, if you want to do your own research into sort of this stuff, look up, you know, Crowley Chalk Cliff climbing, Crowley mm-hmm. Beachy Head. There's a picture of him sitting on top of this. Was it the devil, Devil's Needle, I think it's called? Yeah, it's, yeah, else? right. Like, and it's right, it's literally in the ocean, you mm-hmm. know. And I mean, very, very dangerous, very real stuff. Uh, daredevil, daredevil stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh trying to paint a picture of mm-hmm. of the great beast 666 someone who is uh, um attention well maybe, i don't know if it is attention seeking doing that at this point it's more like sensation seeking mm-hmm. and, and pushing yourself right 
extremes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. He would do the spiritual equivalent of this mm -hmm. uh, as well. Uh, so now it's uh, 1895. Crowley begins his studies at Trinity College, Cambridge. Mm -hmm. He enters that on, yeah, three, the, the, I mean, this is where things start to really kind of really get going and start really changing. And mm. he enters, he's, he's sitting this um, moral science tripos. If it's yeah. tripos or tripos, I can't remember how it's pronounced, mm -hmm. um, but it's a three-year program. He was studying philosophy originally, and then he changed to English literature. I think actually everyone here, Crowley and all three of us were English literature majors. I don't know what that <laughs> says about us. <laughs> so, sort of. I mean, I studied history yeah. and philosophy and, and, yeah, and we got our MFAs, right. but yeah, right. Yeah. And and yeah. remember, going way back to an Art of Darkness deep cut, you go way back in the catalog, Oscar Wilde. We're in the yeah. Oscar Wilde period. We, we are, are in the, where they're wearing their their fancy cravats and their mm -hmm. uh, scar, scarves and all the rest of it. Um, Cambridge is a pretty good school. It is, uh, <laughs> although English lit, English lit at that time wasn't part of the curriculum offered. So mm. he, he went to his mm. tutor and basically said, you know, I'm in, look, I'm in love with poetry. I want to study it. And, and huh. okay, well, we'll see what we can do sort of thing. Right? Interesting. <laughs> and right? Interesting. It's amazing when you have money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll build a wing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he, he devoted himself to the study of poetry, <laughs> especially the works of Richard Francis Burton and Percy by Shelley. He published his own verses, but also practiced chess uh, two hours per day. Now, and he was no slouch. He beat the president of the chess club, mm -hmm. uh, but then was also trounced by somebody who I think went on to be like a world champion uh, mm -hmm. grandmaster. So he was sort of in there good enough to be like he became president of the club at Cambridge. So yeah. no yeah. slouch. Um mm -hmm. And this is not the first time, or it's rather, it's not the last time he would enter an organization and try to take it over, <laughs> which we'll we'll get to when we get to the golden dawn. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he's also gaining notoriety in the climbing uh, community. He returned to the Alps every year, uh, 94 through 98. Uh, he and made climbing first... alone, often mm. without a guide, which in itself is, isn't, right. you know. I mean, it's dangerous. It's impressive. Well, I mean, it's saying making the first ascent of the Munch without a guide in 1897. Do they mean his first ascent? Uh, I'm not sure about that. If it's his or the first by anyone. I mean, either interpretation is plausible knowing, knowing hmm. Crowley. But he did set a lot of records and he did yeah. uh, create a lot of paths and do a lot of things. And in mountaineering, it's a very niche thing, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, Crowley was the first person to do this and this is how he did it. And this is the path he took. And it's very uh, clinical because of course it's a well, matter it's of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's a matter of life or death. Mm -hmm. um, here. He also changed his name. For many years, I had loathed being called Alec, partly because of the unpleasant sound and sight of the word, partly because it was the name by which my mother called me. Edward did not seem to suit me, and the diminutives Ted or Ned were even less appropriate. Alexander was too long, and Sandy suggested tow hair and freckles. I had read in some book or other that the most favorable name for becoming famous was one consisting of a dactyl followed by a spondee, as at the end of a hexameter, like Jeremy Taylor. Alistair Crowley fulfilled these conditions, and Alistair is the Gaelic form to, uh, of Alexander. To adopt it would satisfy my romantic ideals. Now, we have to pause here. <laughs> yeah, it, it hasn't worked for me, right? Stephanie uh, <laughs> yeah, Leahy is also a dactyl followed by a spondy, and it just, yeah. I don't know. Is that right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. so, his, so his theory is a bit flawed. 
But yeah. okay, well, let he is in. It. He is <laughs> in at Cambridge. Uh, this milieu, and we'll get uh, we'll go a little deeper into this too. But he's in this milieu that's informed by the decadent movement, which mm. Oscar Wilde typified. Uh, but there was more to it than just Oscar Wilde. It's sort of the thing that they came out of, uh, and very poetic and, and sensual and kind of over the top in a way. Uh, and also the, the Celtic revival. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And so they would, it was fashionable to stylize yourself as, uh, a a Celtic person. And so he changed his name to Alistair partly mm-hmm. for that, for that reason. Um, now this is a very important moment in December of yes. 96 on holiday in Stockholm. So, so much money. I love how people with money, they're always on holiday. Let's just go to stock. Just, uh, yeah. They're always yeah, on holiday. Just, some always exotic on holiday. Locale. Right, 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 right. Crowley had his first significant mystical, mystical experience. Many biographers believe that it was linked to his first sexual experience with a man. He wrote, I was awakened. Oh, this episode, super gay, as gay as Francis Bacon. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and we really? mean that, we mean oh, that yeah. as positively. Yeah, sure. As yeah. possible. It is. Of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. Just be, yeah. yeah. If you're not aware that Crowley was, Crowley was the most bisexual person who ever who lived. Ever, ever. Yeah. He, he leans hmm. all in. Absolutely. He, he gives the lie to the idea that people aren't, aren't really bisexual. Like some people yeah. even, in, you know, go, ah, it's not a real thing. It's like. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Crowley's 100% bisexual. Um, And he wrote, I was awakened to the knowledge that I possessed a magical means of becoming conscious and of satisfying a part of my nature which had up to that time concealed itself from me. It was an experience of horror and pain combined with a certain ghostly terror. Yet at the same time, it was the key to the purest and holiest spiritual ecstasies that exist. Now let's... Note, we're when did Wilde have his trial uh, and everything? Uh, let me look it up. I, I can't recall. It's been so long. I mean, it's, uh, 1895. It yeah. It, right. Just yes. happened. It just had happened. already happened. So like that's just it. happened. Just yeah, happened. Right. And that's super important to note because everything Crowley writes about. It's coded. Yeah. It's deeply deeply coded uh, Mm -hmm. because they've seen what can happen. It's no more fun in games. Uh, Not that people were advertising it before, but while they pushed the It becomes a matter of life and death, really. Another life and death matter, for sure. At this this point in time, Oscar Wilde is on a treadmill in Reading 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 Jail. Yeah. 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 So So, understandably, I mean, later he's a little more explicit about it, but at this stage... You know, he, he composes poetry about it. He, he writes, we could not speak, although the sudden glow of passion mantling to the crimson cheek of either told our tale of love, although we could not speak. And he describes this period as one in which he hunted new sins till October 97, when one of them turned to bay and helped me to experience the trance of sorrow. Now, he had enjoyed a really enthusiastic sex life at Cambridge with women, you know, of various you know, state status in society. But this trance of sorrow thing seems to be a reference to a very specific, major and important relationship, right? He, the, in 97 at Cambridge, he met Herbert Charles Pollitt, 
aka Jerome Pollitt. Now, this fellow, he was involved with the drama club at Cambridge, the Footlights Dramatic Club, and he performed as a female impersonator using the stage name Diane de Ruffy. And it was claimed that his veil dance would suffuse any natal woman with envy. He was stunning when he was done up, right? There are pictures of him and he and he's, he's, he's a, beautiful a woman. very handsome man. Yeah, a very handsome yeah. man and a very, very handsome Yeah, yeah. He, he really does. He does, in the pictures anyway, passes. You Absolutely. kind of go, yeah. Without question, yeah. Oh, and right, so watching right. Jerome perform, Crowley was just, he was smitten. And they start wow. seeing each other daily and they struck up this relationship. And in his confessions, Crowley later described this as, quote, that ideal intimacy, which the Greeks considered the greatest glory of manhood, end quote. And then for further removal of doubt, in his own personal copy of Confessions, many years later, he wrote in a marginal note at this point, specifying, quote, I lived with Paulette as his wife for some six months and he made a poet out of me, end quote. Whoa. Yeah. And this is a period in which he is publishing his poetry, including this decadent erotic collection called White Stains. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the publisher of that, this fellow Smithers, Leonard Charles Smithers, he also published Aubrey Beardsley and he he was Oscar Wilde's Mm -hmm. publisher. And Oscar had just then been released from jail that, that year, May 1897, right, where he had been sentenced to two years hard labor for sodomy and gross indecency. So, I mean, even writing these things, you can imagine what the mental Som-to-be. state at the time. Yeah. Somdeby. Somdeby. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize. I had no idea that Crowley was so close to that world. I kind of knew about the 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 bisexuality thing. I always thought of him like as what I think they call pansexual now, or just sort of yeah, whatever. More just randomly promiscuous. By. But it wasn't just yeah, promiscuity. Yeah. He seems to have. I mean, he will discuss Jerome more later. You know, Jerome slash uh, Diane. I don't know if he lived now. How how he or she may have preferred to be identified, mm-hmm. but um. Mm-hmm. It, it's clear that this was an extremely important relationship to Crowley. It wasn't just a fling. It wasn't just experimentation. He he loved yeah. this man or woman wow. or he loved Jerome. Jerome. So. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to read a little bit from White Stains. And of course, he, he had to he had to write this under uh, a pseudonym. Uh, mm-hmm. Paulette, they said, was... So he wrote two books of poetry at this time. One's called Akeldama. The other's called White Stains. I think Akeldama was the first. Um, the subtitle is and, A Place to Bury Strangers In. Yeah. A, which a I place love. to oh, bury strangers metal. in is one. It's metal, metal as hell. That name in Hebrew, It I think it literally means, if, if I understand correctly, field of blood. It's uh, Matthew 27. It's the name of a potter's field in Jerusalem. And uh, supposedly mm. the soil could consume a corpse in a single day. And this is supposedly the spot where Judas hanged himself. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read uh, one of these poems from White Stains. I think I'll read the first one. It's called Deda Dedicace. Uh, you crown me king and queen. There is a name for whose soft sound I would abandon all this pomp. I, w- I liefer would have had you call some soft, sweet title of beloved shame. Gold coronets be seemly, but bright flame. I choose for diadem. I would let fall all crowns, all kingdoms for one rhythmical caress of thine, one kiss my soul to tame. 
You crown me king and queen, I crown thee lover. I bid thee hasten, nay, I plead with thee. Come in the thick, dear darkness to my bed. Head not, heed not my sighs, but eagerly uncover, as our mouths mingle my sweet infamy, and rob thy lover of his maiden head. Lie close, no pity, but a little love. Kiss me but once, and all my pain is paid. Hurt me or soothe, stretch out one limb above, like a strong man who would constrain a maid. Touch me, I shudder, and my lips turn back over my shoulder, if so be that thus my mouth may find thy mouth, if aught there lack to thy desire, till love is one with us. God, I shall faint with pain. I hide my face for shame. I am disturbed. I cannot rise. I breathe hard with thy breath. Thy quick embrace crushes. Thy teeth are agony. Pain dies in deadly passion. Ah, you come. You kill me. Christ, God, bite, bite. Ah, bite. Love's fountains fill me. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the the end. I think I may have read forward to a second poem, but I mean, it's just like that's what we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it's I, not. It's not half bad. It, it kind of. I was just about to say it stands up. You know, I, I even now. It's, it's definitely mm-hmm. of a time for sure. Uh, yeah. So and yeah, yeah. It's. Um. I think it. I think it still has things to say to us, probably, you know? Mm, yeah. All right. A very, very interesting fellow. All right. So we're going to move, keep moving on. Uh, the Christmas of 97 while wandering Amsterdam. Like so he's holidaying again, as one mm-hmm. does. All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> right. Just down from Cambridge, you know, over the water. Let's pop over um, to Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Crowley had a crisis of faith. I can't imagine why. <laughs> he had intended he had intended to pursue a diplomatic career. So now we're going to start to get a whiff of that thread of was he a spy mm. uh, or a double agent? Hmm. He even traveled to Russia but abandoned the plan. The idea of becoming a professional poet also seemed a misstep. Uh so in it 80- usually is. Or- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just even that the phrase, also stands up. <laughs> that also still has things to say to us, right? Nothing ever changes. I, <laughs> I keep keep saying it. Yeah. Um, in 98 and 90, or, uh, 98 and 99, it's almost the turn of the century. Uh, he publishes Akeldama, a place to bury strangers in, metal, small print run, not sent out for reviews. Uh, it did receive some review you know induced by we know not what course of reading the book is not one that can be rec- recommended to the young for though its stanzas are sufficiently musical there runs through them a vein of skepticism and licentiousness which requires to be treated with cough, uh, caution i mean fair enough uh, mm-hmm. uh he also published uh, jezebel and other tragic poems tales of archaeus Here's a review from this. A certain command of facile r- rhythm, spurious romanticized mythology. This is the maybe the one apology Crowley ever really gave. Yeah. He regretted publishing it as early as 1905 and recalled it yeah. as simply jejune. I apologize. So I apologize. He apologized <laughs> I apologize for one. Yeah, because yeah. I'm embarrassed. I'm going to apologize. Yeah. I'm going to self-cancel. Yeah. A, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. The only thing Crowley ever apologized for was one book Crap of poetry. juvenile poetry <laughs> that he shouldn't. Not the death slater, not the, the, the tortured lovers, not the, the heroin use, all of it. Yeah. No, I'm sorry for my bad youthful poetry. Which, I mean, he uh, should hey, apologize for that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. There's a special place in hell for young poets, for sure. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah. You have to be able to write. Um, 
But he also so, published Song of the Spirit at the same time. And, and like the Manchester Guardian praised that. And, uh, you know, the Outlook said it called him a poet of fine taste and accomplishment, contains much that is beautiful, although other reviews said it's difficult to read. And when they touch definite things, they're more sensual than sensuous, which is throwing shade for 1898, right? Mm, yeah, so, yeah. Mm. Right. Huh. And also trying okay. to sort of warn you away. Like, yeah. Where this is, yeah. Uh, Verging hmm. on, it's getting a little towards the filthy. You might not want to pick that one up. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. go Amsterdam. on, Stephanie. Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. He's wandering yep. Amsterdam, right? He doesn't know what to do with himself. So poetry is not the right path, right? He, he doesn't want to go embark on this diplomatic career. And he prays to Jesus and to God for guidance. So there's this persistence, right, from, from his upbringing, right? And, but he receives silence. It's kind of the ultimate betrayal in a way, right? Dead air. Dead God's air. God's not yeah. picking up the phone. No. Yeah, it's all on you. So he turns his back on both, and he embraces the only alternative he knew, the devil. And he starts hunting for more information. And in a, a bookshop, he finds Arthur Edgar Ed, Arthur Edward Waits, The Book of Black Magic, and a Pax. This is a collection of excerpts from medieval um, and early modern magical texts, grimoires, um, and discussion of them. And then at the end, wait, we'll get into it in the after dark, but at, at the end, wait presents a sort of consolidated, compiled grimoire. So, uh, you know, here's how you practice ceremonial magic, basically, right? So wait was, he was a poet, he was a mystic, he was also a scholar, and he focused on tackling esoteric subjects. But He's probably best known, actually, I think he has come up with you before because he's one of the co-creators of the Rider Waite Smith tarot deck, right? Pamela yeah, Coleman Smith right. was his collaborator yes. on this thing. You've covered her. Right? Yeah, yeah. He also he also wrote one of still the most accessible books on the Kabbalah for, for like yeah. Westerners. Yeah. And Crowley plagiarized from it liberally. <laughs> Lifted from it liberally. We're going to be getting to it, but Crowleyism... I mean, Kabbalah is central to the oh, central to the Golden Dawn. It's central. It's the thing that you inevitably need to look into, even mm-hmm. if you want. If you want to understand how to read tarot, you need to understand absolutely Kabbalah. Yeah, yeah. I, and wait. I mean, he's he's an interesting fellow in himself. He he tried. He was a Freemason, and he was a Rosicrucian. He was a member of. As we say, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. We keep throwing this name around, and we don't. So it's a British secret society. It was, and um, it was a ceremonial magical order, and it was founded in 1887 by a couple of Freemasons: um, William Robert Woodman, William Wynne Westcott, and Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, who will be an important figure in, in Crowley's life. So Waite is himself a ceremonial magician, and he's studying Western occultism in this systematic fashion, right? And this book, the book of black magic and a pax, it just, it transformed Crowley's life. He wrote to Waite and Waite replied, right? Right to the author. He does, he gets this response. Waite directs him to, um, I think it's von Eckertshausen's, The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary. This was a German Christian mystical text that came to be embraced by a cultist. It had just been translated into English. And he said, oh, you like that? Okay, have a look at this, right, for sure. So Crowley spent his holiday thereafter with Jerome, of course, and climbing and reading. But Jerome wasn't really into either of these. They were starting to, to drift apart. And the relationship ended that summer. 
But the reason it ended is that Crowley decided that he wanted to devote his energies to magic. He was going to become an occultist. He finally found his path. And mm. it's, it's important to note here, and we'll get into this more in the after dark, that you know at this stage, Crowley was not yet practicing sex magic. We'll discuss that a little later. Sex magic is, is a really important current and topic in, in his life. And the early source material on ceremonial magic in the West tends to stress the chastity and continence of the magicians. So if, if you are going to consort with spirits, you need to keep it in your pants, basically. Yeah, so yeah. if he was going to no, devote his- No nut, no nut, November. November all forever, time. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am, I'm a Leo and it occurs, <laughs> I think no nut November is a war on Leos. They're trying to make <laughs> less of us- I'm quite is that right? This is, <laughs> you know that's that checks out. <laughs> I don't like that. The quad, our our fabulous hair. The world needs Leos. <laughs> okay, well, it's a shame that this podcast is audio only and people can't see yeah, your yeah, amazing yeah, hair. Yeah. It really is right. Yeah, right, not naturally November. I'm, I'm fine. There you go. Starting new movement. Starting new movement. Right. Nut for procreation Leos. only November. Yeah, not there you go. Leos. Right, right. Yeah. 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 yeah, like once again, we just revert to Catholic doctrine. <laughs> again we twitter integralism podcast yeah. integralism it's it's happening i think okay, we're finding Stephanie, our own great. religious order here <laughs> well <laughs> i already have my magical name so you know we'll, okay we're yeah. set oh i didn't we'll talk about it for okay. the after dark we'll talk about after dark. Okay. i'll reveal so, my magical name okay go ahead the scandal the scandal don't tell anyone okay so he's devoting his life to occultism and so as a result, and given the text he's reading, you know, he felt, okay, he has to part ways with his beloved. And this was a choice he mourned forever. Even late in his life, he wrote that leaving Jerome, quote, has been my lifelong regret, end quote. He, he absolutely loved this man, and he set him aside in order to devote his life to esotericism. So he broke up with Jerome. And then that summer, he just left Cambridge. He didn't bother taking his degree, although he had had first-class showings previously. It's, but but it's that so wasn't that unusual. It's like, it's like rich kid problems. Like, I don't yeah. even need this degree. Pretty much, <laughs> right? I'm out of here. And, I mean, he's in a long, proud tradition of people showing up at Cambridge, you know, dilly-dallying, maybe, you know, spending a year or two there, tupping the help, and then leaving. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is not that unusual. So... Then in August, the next month, of course, he goes climbing in Switzerland because he always goes climbing, right? And here he meets, meets Julian Baker, and he's a chemist, but he's also interested in alchemy. And Crowley was interested in alchemy, you know, for obvious reasons. He's, he's interested in, he's reading a lot of magical texts, esoteric texts, and so on. And Crowley had been yearning for kind of mystical guidance, you know, for, for a master to sort of show up in his life and help direct him. And because he didn't know where else to look, right? He's sort of corresponding with weight and he's reading books. But where, where do you find these people, right, to, well, to learn? And this is a formal concept. And I'm not sure that he's aware of it at this point yet. But there is a, a thing yeah, the, yeah. in a, the Secret Chiefs. He mm -hmm. must have known about it by now. Maybe Blavatsky talk. Him. Right. Yeah. And so he's he's looking for the secret chiefs who are the people who are, uh, I guess, the holders of the ancient wisdom that mm -hmm. the esoteric tradition uh, I think represents. He, yeah. I think he does know because he, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if it's retrospective or not, but at one point he, you know, indicates, you know, speculating that 
was, you know, this Dr. Baker, was he one of the secret chiefs, right? Um, but so any case, he took this meeting for a sign. And indeed, when they were back in London, Baker introduced him to his brother-in-law, George Cecil Jones, who was also a chemist, but was a member of the Golden Dawn. So here's his in, right? Finally, he's he's found someone and he can sort of get drawn into, into a mystical order. So in November, this is 1898, November 18th, he is initiated into the outer order of the Golden Dawn as a neophyte. And he's initiated by Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, right? So this is one of the original founders we had mentioned earlier. The ceremony took place in the Isis Urania Temple in, in London. And Crowley took this magical model and name Frater Perdurabo, and he interpreted it as uh, I shall endure to the end. This adoption of names is really common in mystical and, and ritual orders, right? The names are sort of symbols of embarking on a new life. They're also aliases, right? So mm -hmm. you can write or practice and people don't necessarily know who you are. They protect you from persecution, protect your family, but they also often have numerological significance or they might you know have some kind of significance in, in gematria which is a kind of cabalistic numerology um he also came to call himself tomegatarian which is the, the great beast and he called himself baphomet he, he had a bunch of names for himself wow, so, wow. but yeah, yeah he goes protorabo is what he chooses here nice so I like that. I hadn't heard. I'd heard. It, I'd heard that, that heard, use of that name. Hmm. I didn't know what it meant. That's great. Well, it comes from it comes from Mark thirteen thirteen, uh, which is a Bible verse. So let me grab it uh, here. 13. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So the one who endures. Stand so endures what an interesting yeah. uh, quotation. Even his magical name relates to the, to the Bible. Yes. Uh, and is this aspiration. Uh, and of course, he would become hated. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He would become their favorite villain, the tabloid villain. He was the he was the Marilyn Manson of his time for, yeah. for a period Notorious. of time. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, mm -hmm. Marilyn, Man Marilyn Manson riffs on off Crowley all the time. Uh, so in any case. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. he's finally got a foothold and he's on a path. He's on a cold path, right? And he, he moves into this flat in Chancery Lane, and he invites a senior Golden Dawn member, this fellow Alan Bennett, to live with him and his private as his private magical tutor. So come live okay. with me, come stay with me, and tutor. I, I, yeah, I just want to pause and, and just reflect on how bonkers this is. I know. Right? I, I've <laughs> dropped out of Cambridge. Uh, I have. I was the wife of the like one of the leading uh, actors at Cambridge. We've drifted apart because I now intend to devote my life to ceremonial, to ritual magic, to uh, to the occult. And I meet a fellow named Alan Bennett who has a bit of a like an Eastern vibe, if I'm not mistaken. He's really <laughs> important in introducing Buddhism and yoga to the West, and he ultimately we will hear becomes a Buddhist. He enters a monastery. In, right in Asia, yeah, yeah. Come and live with me and, and teach, teach me, magic. me and help me. All right, like this is what we're. You what, can smell uh, the money, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it definitely has the whiff of that. Now, that said, I I don't want to. Um, it's easy to chuckle at Crowley, and I'm guilty yeah. of it too. And I and I want you know we don't want this to be a dirge of an episode. It is no. silly. This stuff. <laughs> there is a silliness to this, but he was aware of that. And and he was very playful and humorous in his oh, writing, yeah. uh, if if not always in his actions. Uh, but he did take this deadly seriously. He mm -hmm. he devoted his life to this. Uh, so yeah, he was yeah. a person who when he when he was when he went in, 
he was all in. And his relationships are like this too. He would meet someone and he falls in love. That's it. And he is passionately in love. Marry me. You know, I've known you for half an hour. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We are destined to be together. You must marry me. But he also lost interest in just the same kind of way, right? He, he's hot, he's cold, he's never in between, right? So, so Bennett does move in with him. And he, he teaches Crowley about ceremonial magic, including the, the guisha, so the invocation of demons and ritual use of drugs. Um, and, you know, Crowley is still, he's, he's publishing at this time. And occasionally one of his works, um, Jephtha, was published around this time. And it was a, a critical success. But mainly his preoccupation here is magic. And he rapidly advances through the first five lower grades of the Golden Dawn system. So he's, he starts as a neophyte. This is November 18th. He's initiated. In December, he advances to the first degree, the, the grade of Zelator. January, he's Theoricus, the second degree. February, he's Practicus, the third degree. May, he's Philosophus, the fourth degree. So he's just burning through these, you know, like an astonishing rate, because it's all he's doing with his time, right? Yeah. He's like a man obsessed, and he is his private tutor and magic. And the next step would have been... <laughs> what? what? Oh, God. No, what? I just, I have to interject and just say, and for a lot of these people, the Golden Dawn, it's a social club. Yeah. Were a lot. That, oh yeah, we like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, wasn't it? Those people didn't make through grades. No, they no, showed up serious. and hung out, and yeah, yeah. Throw up, have have a ritual, and then hang around and drink the sherry, yeah. right? Yeah, it's so, right. It's sort of, it's sort of interesting to them, but but not. But they're but not interesting. Devoted. Like going to your friend's show, that mm. <laughs> theater troupe, and you're like, yeah, well, I helped build the background, and then we have drinks after. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> and like Crowley is treating it as if he has entered holy orders, right? He is he is not messing around and he is intentioned. He is moving through this, right? So he wants next would be the portal to the second order, right? There's this outer order and then there are layers upon layers. And each of these layers has different grades within them and so on. And the Golden Dawn told him no. So which sounds a bit odd at first because you're thinking, oh, I mean, he's incredibly dedicated, this passionate fellow. Someone's going to have to take over, run this place eventually. He's only fairly right. young. Wouldn't you want to encourage him? But he had this really libertine lifestyle and it gave him a bad reputation. Plus, and this is probably the real reason, he was feuding with other people in the order, particularly Yates, right? Um, although Stoker might have been involved while, they, you know, it's... Um, and then on top of this, there is this suspicion of sexual intemperance quote in order to gain magical power both sexes are here connoted this is from the letter that they sent back to him saying you know no you're not proceeding to the second order now relatedly this is january 1900 so he's he's what i think he's made what the 25. third degree you know he's i think he's made the third yeah january 1900 no he just made the second degree so he kept on going but in in january these two letters arrived and they warned him that the police were watching him and his associates and regarding some matter with, quote, the brother of a college chum, end quote. And this seems to be an allusion to his relationship with Pollitt back at Cambridge with Jerome, right? So these are a, really, they're a veiled threat of at least a homosexual scandal and possibly legal prosecution. I mean, homosexuality was still extremely illegal, right? Mm. So... 
they're refusing to admit him to the second order and they claim, you know, sexual impropriety and so on. Personally, I find it a bit unjust. I mean, he ended his relationship with Jerome in order to devote himself to magic. Yeah, maybe there was sexual impropriety, but he consciously set it aside because he decided this was his path and they're punishing him for something in his past that they can't help. Mm -hmm. But so after he's refused and then, you know, I'm receiving these letters, he goes to Paris to see his mentor, Samuel Mathers. He leaves London on the 15th of January and the next day, in Paris, Mathers initiates him into the first grade of the second order, or of the second order, mm-hmm. Adeptus Minor. Now that did not go down well with the Temple back in London. This became <laughs> a war, right? This schism develops between Mathers and Crowley and the London members. They were really unhappy with Mathers generally. They thought he was an autocrat, right? Mm-hmm. And then acting under orders from Mathers, Crowley, with a you know a conspirator, Elaine Simpson. Uh, attempted to seize the vault of the Adepts. This is a temple space at Blythe Road in in West Kensington. He's trying to seize this. It's a heist. It's a magic heist. We're arriving at the the Battle of Blythe Road or the Blather of Blythe Road because it's (laughs) a lot of nerds kind of. Oh, it's theater kids fighting. Yeah, it's a a theater troupe uh, battle. Oscar Wilde's wife was also involved in in the Golden Dawn here. And of course, and and, uh, Brett, West Kensington, this is it's still the most the most Tony neighborhood. Oh, really? Okay. there's no there's no wealthier. Yeah, they're not going to accept riffraff like us. Right. Right. Sure. (laughs) Sure. You, yeah. you you were doing a fine job there, Stephanie. Do you want to okay. keep going and get us get us yeah. through the Golden Dawn business, and then I'll pick okay. it up? Okay. Well, I don't know if you want to pick up the Blather of Blythe Road. Okay. I'm why don't I? Why don't I? Page. Yeah. Right. Right. I'll pick it up. Um, so of course, you know, he uh, he's uh, not admitted to the second order, so he's totally uh, furious about it. Uh, they they attempt to seize this vault of the adepts, and then I've got uh, I've got a link here, <laughs> and it's it's about him and and Yates. Uh, and uh, oh, you know, from from the the Otto Hayes geography, I forgot to read a little passage where Crowley uh, talks about the county that he was born in. He wrote about saying how amazing it was that uh, a one little county would produce two of England's greatest poets, Shakespeare and, and Alistair Crowley. Crowley. Right. And of course, <laughs> and he's, and he makes enemies with Yates and, and it, it must have rubbed him raw that Yates was a real article. Crowley okay. could never, yeah. could never be a poet the way Yates was. No. But. So here's the story. Uh, Richard Elmond, uh, Yates biographer explained in a 1948 edition of the Partisan Review, Crowley and Yates were part of a secret order called the Hermetic Students of the Golden Dawn, along with some other folks you may have heard of, like Bram Stoker and Algernon Blackwood. This esoteric posse shared an interest in magic and the occult, but Yates was concerned, perhaps even legitimately, that Crowley might abuse their arcane knowledge for evil ends. So they tried to banish him from the group's inner circle. <laughs> Again, so here's Crowley. Nobody has said no to Alistair ever for a a good minute, for a good while. Well, a good minute, not Uh, ever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Needless to say, Crowley was not pleased. From Elman writing, Crowley refused to accept their decision. He went to Paris and there persuaded the chief of the Golden Dawn, a a Celtophile magician named McGrether Mathers, to deputize him to wrest control of the London Temple of the Order away from Yeats and his friends. uh, (laughs) Mathers furnished Crowley with appropriate charms and exorcisms to use against recalcitrant members. 
and instructed him to wear a Celtic dress, equipped accordingly in Highlander tartan with a black crusader's cross on his breast, with a dirk at his side and a skindu at his knee, making the sign of the pentacle inverted and shouting menaces at the adepts. Crowley climbed the stairs, but Yates and two other magicians came resolutely forward to meet him, ready to protect the holy place at all costs. When Crowley came within range, the forces of good struck out with their feet and kicked him downstairs. Now, that's apocryphal. Yes. Nobody. Yeah. Nobody. It, it, it was, yeah. yeah, really came into this. So sort they of had a little, yeah, shouting match and, and called the cops. The cops, said, you know, you can take it to court. Yeah. This isn't a legal matter. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, Get out listen, of here. Listen, listen nerds. Are you for Just real? keep it down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, this yeah, is why it's really, really called funny. the blather of blather. The blather of blather. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. If this was anywhere else in the world and did not involve Yates and Crowley, it would just be. It's just another yeah. Friday uh, <laughs> in thousands of bars across the the. Yeah, you know, two guys, chest to chest. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. You're not getting into the second order. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're still t- it's like the bouncer kicks you out and you talk about it for forever it's like okay, yeah. you, you had <laughs> a bad sure. night yeah. you had a bad night yeah um but so the, yeah. but the case did go to court they weren't messing around oh, did it? they actually oh, did really? take the case to court and wow. the judge ruled in favor of the london lodge because they had paid the rent i mean fair enough right that's but right. yeah possession is what nine tenths of the yeah. law or whatever right yeah, yeah. so Crowley, Crowley and mothers are they're isolated from the group and over the next few years in golden dawn gets Splinter is the theater kid wars, right? It splinters. Mm-hmm. Um, but, not dissimilar, not dissimilar to Crowley's upbringing in the, yes, the extreme even jealous. That's a good point. You know, there it is. Here we are. We can't come together. <laughs> we can't come together. You know, it's just yeah. these constant factions, you know, bickering, fighting with each other over absolute petty foolishness. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. It seems to be something we can't eradicate as a species. It's, it's. Yeah. I have to say here, uh, that in our outline is part one of three. Yeah. (laughs) If you need to pee, you should pause and go pee. Pause the podcast now. Here's your chance. I don't want to have to do any editing. I am going to. We're just going to persevere. We're going to go on. Uh, This is an audio podcast, so you won't you won't see me stand up. uh, But you know, I may stand up at one point. But we're so. What did I? What did we we are tag teaming so people can have you know breaks and right, right. I mean, so we called part one was was youth to golden dawn part two now is, is the book of the, the book law of the law i subtitled it will yeah mm-hmm. go ahead, in, go ahead. In, our, in our outline i subtitled it women and men and sex magic oh my <laughs> <laughs> mm, very good very good fun, fun, yes fun. And so now now in part two we are going to and this is all going out as one podcast i'm not uh, we're not doing multiple parts yet maybe in the future art of darkness will be a multi-pod multi-episode no don't do it day. fight, it. Uh, fight oh, it okay all right all right good <laughs> I like it. Listen, you know, this might be a five hour podcast. You can pause at any time. You know, please, please. You mm-hmm. know, exactly. You you know, come back I mean, to it. Yeah. People complain mm-hmm. about long ones, but you, you do have a pause button. It's not like once mm-hmm. you hit it, you're it's trapped true. forever. Yeah. Right? Oh, no. Man, <laughs> totally. I agree. And and while we're coming to, to this sort of brief intermission, this this change, let me remind you, please, if you're enjoying the pod, patreon.com slash art of dark pod, help us meet our, our uh, meet, meet our goal of, you know, 333 Patreon subscribers by the end 
end of 2023. We put in the work, we bring great guests, people who have standing, people who understand the subjects that we're talking about. Sometimes they come on and help us do core episodes like the great Dr. Leahy. Uh, sometimes they, oh, they come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but you understand. I understand. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes they come on, they do darkroom episodes with us. We put in the work. This is an effort mm-hmm. pod. So please support the show if you can't. Uh, well, let me also say the base rate to get in to join the book. It's going to go up. It's going to go up. It's at three. But like like uh, Perturabo, uh, it's going to shimmy to the top of the mountain pretty mm-hmm. soon here. We're going to scramble yeah. up. It's going to be $5 from January 1st. Scandalous. The, mm, I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. The uh, uh, the $3 subscribers are going to be grandfathered in. The five, you know, but, uh, you know, barring that, you can get in at $5 later. But we figured, you know, it's at least worth $5 a month. The, the effort we put yeah. in, you know. We do one core episode a month a piece is our target. So that's going to be 24 artists we cover-ish. You know, we might miss one or mm-hmm. two, but like 20 to 24 artists a year that we cover, you know, in this depth, in addition to getting the the darkroom episodes where we have the guests come on, in addition to the after dark, in addition to the new readers club we're doing. Uh it's it's I think it's I think it's worth it. So please support so. the pod. Yeah, yeah and go, go on iTunes, five star, leave a review. Uh, find us on Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. Yes, that's another thing. Yes. We're trying to get those YouTube numbers up because YouTube uh, bases their monetiz- monetization on the number of subscribers you have. That's correct. So because yes. we know we're getting the streams. Like I think we passed 50,000 streams last month. Uh, we're going to go for... 10 times as much next year. Uh, that's not nothing, but that subscriber count, it doesn't cost you anything. Go go to YouTube, yep. find the channel. Uh, you can find the links at artofdarkpod.com. Support your favorite effort pod. All right. Uh, oh, we ready to yeah. we ready to go? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up for 60 seconds, but but before I do, I'm going to ask you, Brad, like, where are you at right now in, in Crowley's life where, where how are you feeling are about you, are you Mr. did you expect this <laughs> well there's a couple of things i didn't sort of expect i mean i i sort of didn't i had never really read any of his poetry though i was uh, aware that he'd had um a sort of a career or made attempts at poetry uh, that <clears throat> the reading that you did kevin was a little more sentimental in some ways. I mean, I know it had sort of an edge to it and it has an eroticism to it, but it was also felt a little more sentimental than I was anticipating. Because I, my image of him is sort of like a sociopath. Um, yeah. And maybe that's still true. And this is sort of a poetic, you know, he was uh, by, you know, using this sort of aesthetic tradition that his this type of poetry comes out of. So that was kind of interesting for me to see. Um, I I liked to have the details on the the blather. Um, I, I'm I'm aware of the work of some of the the Golden Dawn people, um, uh, and so it's kind of cool to get some of that some of that actual story, which I wasn't super familiar with. I mean, I knew Crowley was involved. Um, I knew Yates was involved, and a number of others. I've read some stuff about them, but that's that's really cool. And that scene, oh, Kevin. One day we're gonna do a Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn episode. Oh, much wow, like the that'd Chelsea be huge. Yeah. yeah. So it'll be, you know, it'll be a little bit of Crowley, a little bit of Yates, a little bit of Bram Stoker and and some of these but other darn people. near everyone. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's such an interesting, I mean, it's right there, right there at the turn of the century. Everybody is, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of crammed between the Industrial Revolution and World War One, and there's a little bit of millenarianism. There's a little, it's just, it's such a fascinating little period right there. Mm-hmm. And, and he's right at the center of it. I mean, he knows Yates personally, who's, who's almost like a m- mythological figure almost, yes. you know? So it's really, it's really cool. And and we have arrived right at the turn of the century. And of course it is only because of the, the two world wars that this period in time feels as far away as it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I make yeah. the argument, I contend that we're, we're still living in this, this mm-hmm. through line. Uh, mm-hmm. There are lots of things that seem to obscure it, but we're really not that far away from from this mm-hmm. world. Uh, yeah, it seems like you agree, Stephanie. Yeah, culturally, aesthetically, I mean, you can see this persistence in multiple media. It's it's it almost fascinating. Yeah. These these yeah. folks right here uh, in Tony London in Tony Kensington invented the '60s, 60 years ahead of the '60s in a lot of ways. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, yeah, and fair. so there you have it. Uh, and one wonders what what would have happened if the wars had not popped off, if that timeline would have been moved forward or or what. It, this is all speculative and kind of getting mm-hmm. to be historiographical. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, very curious. Should we get into uh, part two? The Book of the Law? Let's do it. I mean, sure. Yeah. He, yeah. When all this is going on, these fightings and the lawsuits and, you know, the, the, the drama, the hashtag drama, um, he buys his place, Bolskin House. This is on the shores of Loch Ness, right? And um, <laughs> Apparently, he he hanged uh, signs on the edges of the property saying "Beware the Ichthyosaurus," which <laughs> is amusing. Oh, but that's, that's awesome. What what he's doing buying this place, and and he goes all in, like, as usual for Crowley. He goes all in on this, right? He's wearing kilts. He's he's um you know presenting himself as a Scottish laird. He's kind of getting into character here with this place, and he's lord of this manor on the shores of Loch Ness. Uh, but what he's doing there... He's, he's about 25 him. right now? He's about yeah. 25? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've met this guy. I know this Absolutely. guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So he, he's preparing for something called the Appermelon working, starting with his Oath of the Beginning. Now, here we're getting into magic properly. This is a ritual. It's a centerpiece of the Book of Abermelon. I said I wasn't going to talk about grimoires in the main episode, and I lied. I'm sorry. I forgot. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to lie on I'm allowed, That's true. The Book of yeah. Lies. We're coming to it. So the, this is a magical text which presents its content through this frame narrative in which a German Jew named Abraham of Worms I think it's Worms, actually, sorry, recounts to his son, Lamech, how he traveled from Germany to Egypt, and there he met this Egyptian mage, Abramelin, and the mage tutored him in magic and the Kabbalah. Now, Kabbalah is a Hebrew word, and it means something like tradition or reception. The definition of this, of Kabbalah, it varies, and it's contested. Apparently, Crowley was once asked, what is the Kabbalah? And he replied that answering the question would take 30 years of study. So I am not going to even attempt it here, but just know that it's an esoteric school uh, of thought or, or a philosophical system that comes out of Jewish mysticism. And it's really prominent in Western occultism. You really have to have some kind of sense of this. You will encounter it over and over and over again. So this book of Abermelon, it it's a grimoire. It claims to date from 1458. Um, some people have attributed it to this 15th century Talmudist and Posek, but that's disputed. 
It survives in about a dozen manuscripts and there's an early printed edition, all post-1458, <laughs> it's probably later. Uh, it was translated into English by Mathers. And it's an interesting one because compared to other grimoires, the system for working with spirits is pretty simple. There's this central element of a long retreat, six months where you, you cloister yourself and you're fasting and you engage in daily prayer and meditation and you're trying to sort of um, cleanse yourself spiritually and physically and so on. And if it's performed correctly, the magician is supposed to meet their holy guardian angel who will then guide and, and aid them in accessing the true sacred magic, right? Now, to manage this, the magician also needs to invoke the 12 kings and dukes of hell, including Lucifer, Satan, and Leviathan, and Belial, and bind them, right, as a way of binding all that is, is malevolent yeah. <laughs> in themselves, yeah. Well, as a little fundamentalist it's, Christian it's boy, you're playing with fire, yeah. It, it kind of is. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this ritual, it influenced the Golden Dawn, and it influenced, I'm going to drop a word here that we haven't mentioned, I don't think yet, but we're going to Thalema, but we'll come to that. But very few people have actually tried it, in, intriguingly, um, and Crowley resolved to do so. But the preparation is long and, and difficult. Um, now, around this time, I think it's really just before this, you know, he supposedly became, we're going to take another kind of digression here, supposedly became engaged to this American op operatic soprano, Susan Strong. The only delay, reportedly, was the disposal of her husband, who was back in Texas. But the marriage never came to pass, and all, all her press cuttings referred to her as Miss Susan Strong. And now Crowley's biographer, Kaczynski, right, this author of um, Proterabo, he reports, he's looked and he has not found any record of a marriage with her. So maybe he, she was so estranged from her husband that he just never came up in the press and they didn't know, or maybe this was a convenient excuse for her part to not like to put off the marriage to Crowley. I don't right. know. Um, she did share his interest in the occult and she was again, a member of the Golden Dawn, supposedly. And yet, Again, her name doesn't appear on any Golden Dawn membership roles. So, I mean, who knows, right? Anyway, he knew her at the height of her career. She sang for a few more years, and then she retired and opened a high-class laundry in, in London. It was called Nettoyage de Linge de Luxe. <laughs> so, <Ooh>. anyway, <laughs> he's wow. sort of getting right. ready for this ritual. He was maybe engaged, right? He, 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 he heads to the USA. He's in New York, which he hated. It, it was crowded. It was hot. It was humid. Get me out of here. The people give me no room. The usual complaints about New York. Then he goes on to Mexico where he's writing poetry. He's practicing magic and he, he, he's climbing. And the next year, 1901, he heads off to Asia. And here again, and, and in this second part, one of the things we're going to do is look at this endless stream of mainly women. It's just like a parade, okay? So he <laughs> he's sailing to Asia, and during the journey, he has an affair with a married woman from Salt Lake City, Mary Alice Rogers. The relationship <laughs> lasted 38 days. It ended before they even landed in Hong Kong, right? So between when they met there and, and when he broke up with her, 50 days passed. And he seems to have known at the outset that this wasn't going to be you know, a permanent relationship. He was just sort of enjoying himself. On, on the trip, the ship fling. It's a ship yeah, fling, yeah. exactly. And yeah, yet, yeah. Crowley being Crowley, I mean, he's funny because he he writes to, you know, his friends about her, and he's kind of crude, you know, in the way he talks about it. He's a bit crude in his letters, and yet he also wrote and published Alice, an adultery, 
right? And this is a collection. Oh my God. <laughs> sonnets, one for each day that they knew each other, right? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Later, he says, he, he, he ponders how, how absurd it was is that he traveled all that way just to fall in love with a white woman. I mean, he could have done that back in England. There's no reason to go to Asia for that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a bit of maybe a hint of duplicity there where he's a bit crude in how he's discussing this, you know, with um, friends and letters, and yet he's professing love to her and he writes these sonnets and everything. But who knows? I mean, maybe, you know, his letters, it was kind of a defensiveness, hiding a, a part of himself. From his friends, you know, so he's not vulnerable. I don't know. I'm not sure. Right. I, I don't have enough of a sense of his psychology to yeah, say what it is. Interesting. But it, it's a fascinating little episode, the different facets of his his personality that come up. So they land in Hong Kong and go their separate ways. And he, he's traveling through Asia, then he's you know, Japan, he's he goes to Sri Lanka, where he meets again Alan Bennett, right? The ah. fellow who had been his tutor back there. And he, you know, was there studying Buddhism. And um then you know while Crowley was there, he he entered a monastery and he became a Buddhist monk. If you if you Google him, you'll find pictures of him in his monk's robe with his shaven head and stuff. Yeah, this is one of Crowley's uh, magical stratagem uh, that he even he even writes about in uh, I think it might be is it book four? It might be the big the mm. big book. He has an essay or or it's like an idea he has, which is uh, roll a dice. You know, make a make a list of the world's major religions, roll the dice, and practice that religion for a year. Yeah, this kind of like <gasps> syncretism like, as praxis. Yeah, right, and just sort of like and trying to shake your mind up out of whatever ideological stupor you're in. Now, of course, that's extraordinarily offensive to to <laughs> billions yeah. of people, people on yeah. on paper, and yet there's something to be said about that. Mm-hmm. That willingness to inhabit to op- the, the other mindset, yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very curious. But go on, Stephanie. Yeah, well, he's he's, he's even when he, yeah when he's I can't remember if it's now or if it comes later. I don't I don't remember if it survived in our, our outline. But when he's in India, he even sort of puts his clothes aside and has uh, you know a loincloth and a bowl and carries on as if he's sort of an Indian must be begging on the street, right? Like it's he goes yeah. on. We're reaching a, a new level of uh, seriousness here that is that di- is a di- how to say diverts from the rich kid LARP in London. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. going to say. I mean, he's getting to this point where if you LARP hard enough, it becomes real, and sounds like this is maybe at yeah. that point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So he reaches India, right? This is sort of winter months. He, he had malaria. He contracted malaria and he was, he was struggling with it. Although he, he did climb several peaks and this is when he, he tackles K2 with, with Eckenstein. I don't know. I, I think you looked into that is sort of in detail, didn't you, Kevin? Or- yeah. Let me, let me get, uh, get into a little bit of this. So like you say, he's in India, he's going to climb K2. K2, if I'm not mistaken, it's in, it's in the Himalayas. Uh, and it, I think it's considered to be the most difficult ascent. Uh, yeah, that's generally right. It's shorter than Everest, but it's, it's much more dangerous. Isn't it called, um, the Savage Mountain sort of, Mm, that it tries to kill you? Yeah. 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 It's a lot of people have died on it. Yeah. Right. So Eckenstein was the leader of the first serious attempt to climb K2 in 1902. The attempt was on the Northeast Ridge, and Alistair Crowley was also a member of the expedition. Upon arrival in India, Eckenstein was detained by British authorities for three weeks on suspicion of being a spy. 
So again, we're getting, hmm, and it's not Crowley, but somebody mm-hmm. he knows. Hmm. And knows and well, a, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, and not allowed to enter Kashmir, the name of a uh, uh, Led Zeppelin tune. Um, he and Crowley were convinced <laughs> yeah. that Martin Conway w- was responsible for trying to interfere with their attempt on K2. And only when they threatened to take the matter to the, n- the newspapers was Eckenstein released. I don't know who Martin Conway is, but there was some drama. There's always drama with these people. Uh, <laughs> in the in the early 1900s, modern, modern transportation did not exist around those peaks. It took 14 days just to reach the foot of the mountain. After five serious and costly attempts, the team reached... Uh, 21,407 feet or 6,500-ish meters. Although considering the difficulty of the challenge and the lack of modern climbing equipment Mm -hmm. or or weatherproof fabrics, Crowley's statement that neither man nor beast was injured highlights the pioneering spirit and bravery of the attempt. The failures were also attributed to sickness. Crowley was suffering the residual effects of malaria, a combination of questionable physical training, personality conflicts, and poor weather conditions. Of 68 days spent on K2, at the time the record for the longest time spent at such an altitude, only eight provided clear weather. An Austrian climber named Fanel became sick with pulmonary edema at the high point, which Crowley diagnosed. The climb was abandoned and Fani was evacuated to lower elevations and survived. Not LARPing. No, extraordinary. No. They're doing this. They don't have bottled oxygen, I don't think, at this point. No. You know, it's, you know, they don't even have technical fabrics, really. It's No, no. It's hemp and canvas and wool and, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, leather and that kind of thing. I was just reading something really quick, just put this per put this into perspective um as of now as of last year um only 377 people have summited k2 wow and everest is like four thousand and something mm-hmm. people have summited Everest. well people right? do it's not like everest yeah. sort of on a recreationally they yes yeah compared to k2 for sure so mm-hmm. yeah this is this is this is trying to do it's like trying to do the hardest thing you can do basically mm-hmm. and that is why i named my agency k2 it's an aspirational yeah there you go it's a little secret i think people think it's my name but it's not it's not anyway i mean um, it could be yeah it's got multiple reasons it's got a both you know yeah there you go lots of things but i I love this story Hmm. i mean it's great i mean and then he went back to europe um he he went to paris right which another great experience he meets up with gerald kelly and kelly was Ah. a a portraitist Ah. Here come the Kellys. We're getting Here to the, the Kellys. Where the Kellys, yeah, the Kellys arrive. You, you people. <laughs> You're everywhere. <laughs> You're in Paris. With the introducing, yeah. yeah, introducing mountain mm-hmm. climbers and occultists to you know uh, authors and and yeah, he's collaborating with Rodin there, and and he he wrote about this. It's yeah, really. Um, I don't know too too much about it. Yeah, that. why don't I? I want to read about this. So he's so he's in Paris. I'm going to read again from his uh, hagiography, just because in the course <laughs> of this epic pod we're doing on Crowley, I think it's important to get his voice in. So mm-hmm. he he met Rodin and. Here's Crowley saying, but as luck would have it, I had arrived in Paris on an occasion which history in France can hardly duplicate. Rodin was being attacked for his statue of Balzac. I was introduced to Rodin at once uh, and at once fell in love with the superb old man and his colossal work. I still think his Balzac is the most interesting and important thing he did. It was a new idea in sculpture. Before Rodin, there had been certain attempts to convey spiritual truth by plastic methods, but they were always limited by the supposed necessity of representing what people call nature. 
scare quotes on representing in nature. The soul was to be the servant of the eye. One could only suggest the relations of a great man with the universe by surrounding a more or less photographic portrait of him with the apparatus of his life work. Nelson was painted with a background of three deckers and a telescope under his arm. Wren with a pair of compasses in front of St. Paul's. Rodin told me how he had conceived his Balzac. He had armed himself with all the documents, and they had reduced him to despair. Let me say at once that Rodin was not a man, but a god. He had no intellect in the true sense of the word. His was a virility so superabundant that it constantly overflowed into the creation of vibrating visions. Naively enough, I haunted him in order to extract firsthand information about art from the fountainhead. I have never met anyone, white, black, brown, yellow, pink, or spot blue, who was so completely ignorant of art as Auguste Rodin. At his best, he would stammer out that nature was the great teacher or some equally puerile platitude. The books on art attributed to him are, of course, the compilation of journalists. I'm going to go on because it's, this is a very interesting insight into Crowley's um, uh, uh, psychology. I'm going to read maybe one more uh, para. He was seized with a sort of rage of destruction, abandoned his pathetically pedantic program, filled with the sublime synthesis of the data which had failed to convey a concrete impression to his mind. He set to work and produced the existing Balzac, this statue of, of Balzac. This consequently bore no relation to the incidents of Balzac's personal appearance at any given period. These things are only veils. Shakespeare would have, would still have been Shakespeare if someone had thrown sulfur, sulfuric acid on his face. The real Balzac is the writer of the Commedia Humane. And what Rodin has done is to suggest this spiritual abstraction through the medium of form. That art criticism, that assessment of Rodin, mm -hmm. that's so sophisticated and even postmodern. Mm -hmm. It's 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 very ahead of its time. Crowley is no slouch. He's a, he's no. a sophisticated, yeah. intelligent, artistic person. He, he would go on and paint poorly, mm -hmm. but he would he would have <laughs> his hand at at painting as well. Uh, so yeah, just an interesting, um, uh, an interesting and, little uh, yeah yeah. Yeah, and he defends yeah. him when people were were. I mean, then collaborated with him. I I think he what wrote uh, a sonnet. You know, first away. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read this sonnet that he wrote to Balzac. And he said uh, uh, that it marked a new stage, stage in, in his own art. So he wrote he wrote this about Balzac. He said, giant with iron secrecies enighted, cloaked, Balzac stands and sees immense disdain, Egyptian silence, master of pain, gargantuan laughter, shaker still the ignited, stature of the master, vivid, far affrighted. The stunned air shudders on the skin, in vain, the master of la comedie, uh, humane, shadows the deep set eyes, genius lighted, epithalamia. Uh, birth songs, epitaphs, are written in the mystery of his lips, sad wisdom, scornful shame, grand agony, in the coffin folds of the cloak, scarred mountains lie, and pity hides, I thy heart, grim knowledge grips the essential manhood, Balzac stands and laughs. I mean, it's great. I encourage people listening to just, you know, right now, search for uh, Rodin Balzac, and look, you can see the statue yourself, and it, you know, makes a the poem make a, a little more sense, right? So hmm. Rodin was thrilled that someone was defending him, right? He, he made this experiment and people were panning it and he invited him to come, Crowley, come stay with me. So, you know, to give poetic interpretations of, of his masterpieces. And he did. And he wrote these poems like this one about that statue of, of Balzac and published them. 
and a critical review, the weekly critical review, the, to try and, as he says, an attempt to establish an artistic entente cordiale. And the entire series is then pulled together in this Rodin and Rhyme. It's uh, illustrated by lithograph sketches that Rodin had made. So they collaborated well, together on this volume. I, I mean, and now to this day, you can go to the Rodin scu- uh, sculpture dar- garden at Stanford. And Rodin is recognized for what he is and what he did. Mm-hmm. And there's Crowley right there. Mm-hmm. Crowley, there's a bit of a um, oh, what's the uh, what's the Woody Allen movie about the um, the the person who's there in in uh, uh, all of history? What's it called? Oh, oh bugger! Uh, I'll I'll find it. I'll find it. But he's <laughs> he's everywhere. We're we're reaching mm-hmm. the point where Crowley shows up in places that you did not expect. I had no idea that he had this no. association with Rodin and well, uh, I, I attributed Rodin. I actually looked it up. I attributed him to earlier generations. And this is sort of the end of Rodin's life. He feels older. It's, yeah. 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 It's interesting. I mean, Crowley's still kind of a young man. Rodin's born in 1840. So this is, you know, yeah. his grandfather's generation or something. Zelig almost is the Woody Allen movie. But, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, Zelig. And, and so there is that element here now with Crowley. And Crowley be- kind of ends up being famous for being wicked and famous, which is partly why I think now today there's this just whiff of kind of weirdness about him. But mm. I I think he's due for, for a reassessment. Um yeah, I don't think I'm alone. Uh, so I, yeah, just he he even he even makes an appearance in Hemingway in A Movable Feast, uh, mm-hmm. where Hemingway spots him and uh, says, "Ah, that's the wickedest man in the world," or "That's the diabolist, Alistair Crowley." They say he's the wickedest man in the world. You know, and he, yeah. you know, he's there. He is in Hemingway. You just go, mm-hmm. where, where wasn't this guy? Uh, <laughs> he keeps cropping I mean, up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and if we if we stopped now. And he haven't he hasn't even done the his life's work, which is the book of the mm-hmm. law. He hasn't even delivered his great spiritual vision yet. This is enough biography. For yeah, he's still twenty five. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and we're not, arguably yeah. his his you know frontal cortex hasn't even entirely. It's about to entirely mature, right? Like, <laughs> I don't I don't know that he's ever did. I think he pickled yeah. his before. Um, Probably. Do, do we do we know when he really began to to use heroin? Uh, do we, oh, do we know? Uh, well, it's interesting because he was prescribed it early on as uh, he had asthma, you know, which certainly wasn't helped mm-hmm. by all this climbing, you know, high altitude stuff without the kind of protective equipment we have now and everything. But it, apparently it, you know, um, was a sort of lifelong issue. I don't know if it ran his family or whatever. And he was prescribed heroin for this. He did stop it for a while in the middle of his life. And then towards the end, when he started having a lot of breathing difficulties, it was prescribed again and he got hooked again. I'm not quite sure when he started using it. It might be, might be as early as this time. I mean, you know, when Bennett was tutoring him, he teaches him ceremonial magic and, and you know, the Goetia and things. And he also started teaching about ritual use of drugs. So that might've been the context, but I'd have to look that up. I don't know. Well, it, it had to be before 1922. We're still at the turn of the century in mm-hmm. our uh, biography, but uh, it, it had to be by 22 because it was in 22 that he released Diary of a Drug Fiend, which yeah. is his first novel. We'll we'll come to it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read forward here now. So uh, he leaves Paris. He returns to Valeskin, 1903. Mm-hmm. He attempts the operation of Abermelon. <laughs> well, he starts uh, right, right, <laughs> and then he stops. He interrupts mm-hmm. the operation. <laughs> right. right, because 
the house might be. <laughs> well, he, might, he mm-hmm, yeah, he um, he gets married. <laughs> Ah, he, he, right. It's a girl again. It's a it's a woman, right? I, I'm <laughs> and another and another Kelly. Yes. And this this is the big one. This is the big well, Kelly is, that's showing. This up. is the <laughs> sister of the the previous Kelly, right? So I mean, it, it's interesting. It's by way of digression here first. You know, he he starts this operation, and you have to see it through because you're invoking demons and things, right? Um, now this this site, this house, it already had. I don't know if he knew or if it's unlocked nest. Yeah, it already had a bit of a reputation, like for strange happenings, long before he was even born. Right, the parish dates back to the high medieval era, and uh, you know, in the early modern period, there's there's tales of of the uh, local churchmen having to lay animated corpses back in in their grave that there was a, a wizard oh. who would animate them. Right, all fun. And it also the house itself is built on the site of, of a kirk, which, according to legend, caught fire and burned to the ground, killing the entire congregation inside and the priest. Right. So, it, I mean, it's quite, yeah, quite the place. Metal, right? rock Cue and roll. guitar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, of course, Jimmy Page bought Boleskin. He uh, did. Right. Later, um, because Page was, you know, super into Crowley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, I, I mean, this was originally a hunting lodge, and then it kept getting expanded by the Fraser family in, until the early 19th century. It was just kind of a sort of a one level thing and then an upper kind of attic bedroom for the servants and stuff like this. Right. And there's also a tunnel that links it to the graveyard as, as one does. Right. So he bought it as a site where he was going to have this ritual. So I, I'm assuming he was probably aware of the lichens and that might've been the appeal, right. That it would, and also it's an isolated sort of space and this sort of thing. So, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, well, he starts this ritual, he gets distracted and will he stops it. He never finishes it, you know, quite disastrously. We'll come back to that in, in a bit why. But intriguingly, I mean, much later, Jimmy Page bought the house and it was in a terrible state when he bought it, but he, he the atmosphere appealed to him. He thought this would be a good creative space, right? And he, he had it restored, but he didn't spend a lot of time there despite all this. And he was asked, you know, why? I mean, it had been a wreck. It had been abandoned. And there had been at least one fire. Parts of the building had fallen down. They were missing. The grounds had just gone wild. And now people have asked Paige about this. And they've, they've asked um, also, um, uh, what's his name? Malcolm Dent about this. And Dent came and he stayed there for a while with Paige, with this place. And he was a complete skeptic. But even he reported strange things going on apparently there, there were these rumblings from the hallway and as soon as you'd investigate they'd stop mm. and you'd open the bedroom door and they would start again this rumbling like something rolling down the hall and apparently the, the legend is this is the head of lord lovett although he was executed in london um, <laughs> you know, so, but there's also a place nearby, which is the ge- geographical center of the highlands. Um, it's a consecrated space and it's thought his soul was, was returning back. And Dent said the most terrifying knife night of his life was in this house. He, he woke wow. one night and he heard, it sounded like an animal snorting in the hallway, like breathing trapped in the hallway, somehow got in and couldn't get out. Right. And it went on for some time and it was so persistent that he became frightened to open the door and it went on in, until dawn. And as the sun was rising, he got enough courage to crack open the door and there was nothing there. 
despite all this loud sound. And and he said, I don't know what was there, but it, it was it was evil. And another person who stayed there claimed to be attacked by the, the devil. There are this, you know, poltergeist phenomena, you know, doors slamming, rugs just inexplicably rolling up, this sort of, of, of thing. And so Jimmy Page, he he tried to restore it as to exactly how it looked when Crowley owned it, right? Even commissioning artists to, to paint murals and things that were based on the Abbey of Thelema, which we'll come to. Um, but finally, he just, he just put it on the market, you know, um, and sold yeah. it. Uh, well, and, it, and it's since burned down. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 2015. Yeah. Just, maybe um, for the best. Oh, maybe boy. for the best. I mean, it yeah. was, I don't even know who <laughs> owned it. It was, uh, you know, someone bought it and then it was, it was, they died, I think, and it was put up for sale again. And I don't think we know who, who bought it, but then it, um, apparently the owners went shopping and returned to find the house just basically not there, <laughs> burned oh, to the wow. ground. Right. So wow. it, it was almost totally destroyed, although part of the roof and some of the walls survive. Yeah. Um, a lesson, a, a lesson. foundation. Lesson for the audience, finish your demonic conjuring. <laughs> yes, right. don't, don't start this stop in the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. For sure. Right. So you gotta clo- you gotta close that portal. Yes. Subscribe yeah. to Patreon. <laughs> then the demons back to, to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> after you've summoned them. Yeah. Right. Right. An amazing site, an amazing, amazing story. It's, um, and there's right. a foundation uh-huh. looking to restore it despite all this. Still, there's a foundation looking to rest- oh, restore the house. Who I'm working sure. on Somebody getting the funds to them. Yeah. Well, maybe you could... restore it and go in and close the portal. Like I've seen this horror movie. Go in and <laughs> right. I, so... I have the idea for a play that it, where it's a bunch of like American uh, college students who summon Alistair Crowley to help them pay off their student loans, and it all oh goes God. terribly wrong. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, it's pretty funny. Um, well, so I want to I want to get into the the business with a uh, Rose Edith, Edith yeah. Kelly. Well, so, well, this is why he he yeah. he starts the operation. And then he's, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out with with this his fellow Kelly, and he starts talking to his sister Rose Edith Kelly, and her parents are pressuring her to marry this fellow, uh, you know, another man, and she's in love with a third man, and you know she's pouring out her heart about this to to Crowley, and Crowley being Crowley says, you know what? Forget about them pressuring you. I think the other man was married, and so she couldn't marry him. But her parents wanted her to get married to this other guy. You know, you're it's enough. It's enough. You're at an age. You need to get married. Crowley said, "You know what? Forget about it. Marry me. Let's go get married. I don't care who you have an affair with. You know, just marriage your convenience. Marry me, then they'll be off your case. They can't get you to marry anyone else. And you, if you want to have an affair with him, go right ahead. Knock yourself out. Um, so the next day they elope." <laughs> <laughs> and they go off on a honeymoon. So that was the end of the ritual. That's it. That seems like a weirdly decent thing to do. It does. You it know, does. in a sort of an unorthodox way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, he, he's, yeah, so just, just marry me and, and they elope the next day. And here we go. I'm going to, and now I'm going to get into this. Yeah. So I'm going to pick this up. So it's, and we're going to, we're going to make some moves here. Egypt and the Book of the Law, 1904. So put yourself in. In 1904, these newlyweds, they arrive in Cairo, rent an apartment. Crowley sets up a temple room, like you do, and begins to invoke Egyptian deities. So he's left a portal to hell open in Scotland. Uh, (laughs) And now he's invoking ancient Egyptian uh, gods uh, in Cairo. Uh, According to. As one does. According <laughs> to Crowley, during this period, Rose repeatedly fell into light trances, telling Crowley, they're waiting for you. This I've seen Crowley, that horror movie, too. <laughs> uh-huh, right. Yes. 
This led Crowley to consider Rose as a potential magical partner. On the 18th of March, she clarified that they was the deity Horus, an ancient Egyptian deity of kingship, the sky, usually depicted as a falcon or a man with the head of a falcon. At a nearby museum, she directed him to, to the stele of Ankh and F.N. Kansu, a 7th century BCE mortuary stele with the exhibit number 666, a detail which jumped out to Crowley as the number of the beast. Next, on the uh, on April 8th to the 10th in their rooms in Cairo, Crowley received a message. A disembodied voice spoke to him, claiming to be Iwas, the messenger of Horus. Following Rose's directions, for the next three days at precisely noon, he wrote down what this voice told him. The end result was Liberal Vel Legis, the Book of the Law. It was a collaborative endeavor. At one point, Crowley misheard the voice, but Rose amended the manuscript. This work is sometimes referred to as Liber CCXX because it, it contains 220 verses. This is super important stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep reading this. This is it. This is where he becomes the prophet of the new aeon through this voice, Iwas. The text proclaimed Crowley a prophet tasked with ushering in a new aeon for humanity, the aeon of Horus, asserting that humans must learn to live in accordance with their will, capital W, will. The voice had declared that the aeon would be governed by a single moral precept or law summed up in two phrases from the book. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, and love is the law, love under will. This philosophy formed the bedrock of Crowley's new religion, Thelema, Telema, a Greek word meaning will. The central aim of Thelemites is to discover and enact their own true will, that is, their innermost nature or their individual proper life course. Another saying Crowley had was, every man and every woman is a star. Meaning, which of course is very funny, it's almost like a proto-Warhol um, statement. Everyone will have their 15 minutes of fame in a funny way. But what Crowley meant by it is that everyone has their own orbit. And if you, the goal of magic, the aim of magic in Crowley's system, partly is to bring yourself into your truest orbit. And if you do this, you will never find any confrontation with anyone else who's in their own true mm -hmm. orbit. It's it's a lovely concept, yeah. uh, and 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 there contains contains it at the germs of some real moral philosophy, uh, which isn't to be uh, taken lightly. I'm going to continue here. Um, so, hang on. The techniques used to do so fall to to discover your true will fall under the general rubric of magic with a K, and of course he he distinguishes his practice of magic, which is a spiritual practice from lay magic, illusionism, yeah. stage With magic. Magic, M-A-G-I-C, right? yeah. that's Penn and Teller, right? Where yeah. Crowley's M-A-G-I-C-K. This is, um, you know, ceremonial magic as opposed to illusionism. Right. Uh, this is interesting. As an aside here, this is something you you pulled out mm. here, Stephanie. The title of this book is significant. In addition to his poems, etc., uh, Crowley composed dozens of libri, Latin for books, a group of texts intended to instruct the students of the AA, which, which is the initi initiatory magical order Crowley founded in 1907. It's yeah. always written as 
these two, two, two A's. magical magical mm-hmm. A's, and then they each are followed by a little tiny triangle of three dots. That's, that's sometimes called the pyramid of fire. It's used in Masonic abbreviations. So the the abbreviation for the order, and he never tells us. There are there's speculation about what it stands for, and it's usually sort of people will say it's a Latin version of the Silver Star, but he doesn't actually tell us. So it's just C A A. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've been to some AA meetings in my time. Hello. Yes. Well, <laughs> uh, so he has all these libri. different order. Yeah, different yeah. order, right? The, mm-hmm. This is one yeah. libri of of one libra of many libri. It, he has all these books, and they're you know, um, book three three three, book two o two, book. They're all numbered for various reasons. Each they're all assigned a Roman numeral and also a class, class A, B, C, D, or E. And that class they're put in explains their nature. This is a system that Crowley himself designed. I mean, he seemed to be aware that he was incredibly prolific. He's churning out all this stuff and he's founded this magical order and and he wants people to be able to make sense of all these texts and, you know, give initiates a sense of what they should look at and when. So all of these books, because the the numbers they're assigned, they don't reflect the order in which they're written, right? They're they're they have various, there are various reasons they're given the, the numbers they are, and then they always have a subtitle as well. So he assigns them classes. So for instance, class A, these are books that are basically the utterances of the adept. They're like scripture, right? The holy scripture mm. of, of, mm-hmm. of his religion. You can't change even a letter. They cannot be altered, right? They're they're holy writ. And class B, these are his works of scholarship. So some of you know the history of magic. He does this sort of thing. Is is philosophizing about magic, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Class D, these are official rituals and instructions. So if you're looking for, you know, rituals, or you're looking for kind of um, how the order conducts itself and the the way in which things are done or not done, you you need to look at the D class books. So he he has mm-hmm. them all organized, which it was nice of him because there's a heck of a lot, <laughs> a heck of a lot of That's them. It. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, you need to have a sort of a hierarchical organization of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit like the 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 sort of tiers of texts that are associated with uh, like serious Jewish practice, right? Yeah. Where you have you have the you have the actual biblical works, and then you have the midrash, and you have all these other things, mm-hmm. and they're 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 all part of it, but they all belong. That's a they're great all, note. They all belong you. in their place in relationship to each other. Absolutely, yeah. that's a perfect mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly the sort of thing you're dealing with. We did skip a beat here uh, in relation to the Book of the Law, and I'm going to read this. According to Crowley, the story began on the 16th of March when he tried to show the sylphs oh, right. by use of the bornless <laughs> ritual to his wife, Rosie the Kelly, while spending the night in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Although she could see nothing, she did seem to enter into a light trance and repeatedly said, they're waiting for you. Mm-hmm. So that's where it began. The Book of the Law was received inside the Great Pyramid at Giza while Trustafarian, chess playing, <laughs> buggery enjoying oh, yeah. Alistair Crowley with his wife of convenience uh, were Honey on a trip. Moon. Yeah, Honey, in the Great Pyramid yeah, yeah. reading demonic texts. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. yeah. I mean, the world that we inhabit uh, is infinitely stranger than anything that we were ever taught in schools. I'll tell you that. It's vastly, we live in a very, very weird world. And Art of Darkness is here for you. We're here to, <laughs> That's right. we're here to take you through the darkness and through the weirdness. All right, we're gonna we're gonna press on. Um, this is fascinating. There's so much going on. Uh, so Crowley wasn't sure 
what to do with the manuscript. And it would be some time uh, before he took any action with it. Mm. But it is the origin of Thelema. Now, I want to read from the Book of the Law. Uh, Stephanie, do you have something? No, yeah, he. It's not as if he came, you know, emerged from the hotel room in Cairo proclaiming this new religion. He was quite conflicted about this. He didn't know what to do with this thing. Um, you know, the the voice which dictated it to him offered guidance. You know, he you should steal the funerary stone, you know, and then get a fortified right. island and translate the book into seventy through. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I'm really down with that. Mm. Right? It takes him a few years. Wow. To sort of, figure out what he's going well, to do well that that alone that biographical note alone kind of gives it some kind of validity right because as soon as yeah. you say oh, okay this is a chance this is a sort of a channeled voice or whatever you immediately say, ah, well, this yeah, is a yeah, bunch yeah. of flim flam right <laughs> but they went through something they had some kind of experience mm-hmm. right and you know how much they embellished it or whatever is, is probably mm-hmm. a matter of debate but they certainly things got weird in that king's chamber <laughs> For yeah, sure. yeah. and it would be a while before he was okay with what happened and felt that he, yeah. okay, he was going to act on this after all. He, he did not want to. He wasn't comfortable with it. There is some controversy about the exact timeline of the reception of the Book of mm-hmm. the Law. Uh, we're not going to get into the weeds there, but if you want to yeah. dig into it, you certainly can. He would sign this Baphomet. Uh, I'm going to read the beginning of the Book of the Law because it's so essential. Hey, a new Patreon subscriber just now. Thank you. Woo-hoo. Uh, we're not even live. (laughs) This is (laughs) pre-recorded. How do they know? Um, I'm going to read this. Had, the manifestation of Nuit, the unveiling of the company of heaven. Every man and every woman is a star. Every number is infinite. There is no difference. Help me, O warrior lord of Thebes, in my unveiling before the children of men. Be thou Hadith, my secret center, my heart and my tongue. Behold, it is revealed by Iwas, the minister of Horpar Krat. The Cobbs is in the Ku, not the Ku in the Cobbs. Worship then the Cobbs, and behold my light shed over you. Let my servants be few in secret. They shall rule the many and the know, the known. These are fools that men adore, but their gods and their men are fools. Come forth, O children under the stars, and take your fill of love. I am above you and in you. My ecstasy is in yours. My joy is to see your joy. Above the gemmed azure is the naked splendor of Nuit. She bends in ecstasy to kiss the secret ardors of Hadith. The winged globe, the starry blue, are mine, O Ankh Afna Kansu. Now you shall know that the chosen priest and apostle of infinite space is the prince priest, the beast. And in his woman called the scarlet woman is all power given. They shall gather my children into their fold. They shall bring the glory of the stars into the hearts of men. For he is ever a sun and she a moon. But to him is the winged secret flame and to her the stooping starlet, starlight. But ye are not so chosen. Burn upon their brows, O splendorous serpent, O azure-lidded woman, bend upon them. The key of the rituals is in the secret word which I have given unto him. With the God and the adorer, I am nothing. They do not see me. They are as upon the earth. I am heaven, and there is no other God than me and my Lord Hadith. Now, therefore, I am known to ye by my name, Nuit, and to him by a secret name, which I will give him when at last he knoweth me. Since I am infinite space and the infinite stars thereof, do ye also thus find nothing. Let there be no difference made among you between any one thing and any other thing, and thereby there cometh hurt. So I'm just going to pause here. Now, knowing the biography, 
mm-hmm. knowing the background. Listen, since I am infinite space and the infinite stars thereof, do ye also thus bind nothing. Let there be no difference made among you between any one thing and any other thing, and thereby there cometh hurt. Don't don't mm-hmm. divide, right? Mm-hmm. So interesting. Mm-hmm. And I could go on. This is you yeah. know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read just another little bit. And he says, "The word of the law is Thelema. Who calls us Thelemites will do no wrong. But if you look, uh, if you look but close into the word." For there are there in three grades, the hermit and the lover and the man of earth. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And it goes on. But, and what, it's such a, it does have the sound of a. Literally. Real, yeah, yeah, revealed. uh, Yeah, it sounds like the Emerald Tablets or or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deny it's a work of ins- it's an inspired piece of writing? I I'm not going to sit down and write something like this with you know, <laughs> I don't think anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's, it, I was struck there. You know, that I'm glad you read that because he mentions the the Scarlet Woman, and and this is this is a, a concept that recurs. Like that wasn't a one off. I guess in passing, right? This is um, it's a goddess. In his system, right? And here's where, again, we, we get in this drawing upon the Christian tradition in which he was he was raised, and in, in particular, um, Revelation, right? So the Scarlet Woman is, he, he says, is Babylon, the great mother, the mother of abom- abominations. And, you know, he's clearly driving inspiration from the whore of Babylon, from the book of Revelation, right? This, this book that he became obsessed with as a child. So, sorry, excuse me. Yeah. The sex worker of Babylon. Yes, sorry, the sex worker of Babylon. That was terrible of me, of course. The sex worker of Babylon, mother of abominations, right? So <laughs> that's that, that okay. Much that better. Is fair thank enough, you. Right? Yes, thank thank you. She has an only I think she's got an OnlyFans if you <laughs> Right. Yeah. She's she's doing yes, way mother. more numbers. She's doing way um, more numbers than we are, Brad. For sure. I mean, yeah, we gotta, yeah. 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 We yeah. don't need to push. Stephanie, keep going. I'm gonna top off top off my water. Yeah. Well, go, on, go on. I mean, remember when he misbehaved, his mother had called him the great beast, right? And he em- embraced that de- uh, designation. And there there are when you look at Revelation, there are actually two beasts in there technically. So the first emerges from the abyss in chapter 11, and it's described in chapter 13, and that's explained in chapter 17. And the second emerges out of the earth, and it directs all the peoples of the earth to worship that first one that emerged earlier. But the second one is associated with the false prophet, and both beasts align themselves with the dragon, and they defy God. Now, in chapter 17, the narrator of Revelation, John, he, he describes the sex worker of Babylon. He, he recounts how he was carried away in the spirit into a wilderness where he saw, quote, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon, the great mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly amazed. I mean, you would be, right? So, yeah, right. That's intense. You know, like, I, I would be amazed. <laughs> yeah. So, Crowley, he embraced this symbolism, right? And this mm. scarlet woman, Babylon, represents the fertility of Mother Earth, 
but also mm-hmm. female sexual desire and a sexually liberated woman, right? Mm-hmm. She's she's a tree of life. She's a physical realm. And in Telema, a real living woman embodies the scarlet woman as her kind of material avatar. It's a spiritual office in this religion. Mm-hmm. She's the natural counterpart to Ptolemaetherion, the great beast 666, that is Crowley or whoever is in that position, right? So you have this this kind of like, you know, in, in the uh, Egyptian tradition and many other traditions, it's kind of like a hero scamos, right? It's a sacred marriage mm-hmm. where you have this, the beast figure and then his sacred consort who is also a whore. She's of the earth. And, and they're, they're spiritual emissaries, right? She assists him in manifesting on this realm the the energies of this new aeon that's coming, right? He writes later in, in the book of Thoth that we're going to come to. He's discussing the philosophy underpinning the tarot deck he's going to co-design later. This is much later with Lady Frieda Harris. He describes the Scarlet Woman. She appears on a on a one of the cards. Quote, rides astride the beast. In her left hand, she holds reins, representing the passion which unites them. In her right, she holds aloft the cup, the holy grail, aflame with love and death. And in this cup are mingled the elements of the sacrament of the aeon. So Babylon, this scarlet woman, I mean, she's mentioned in several texts, not just that one. She crops up again in the Gnostic Mass, he would pen later, 1913. That's um, Liber 105, where she's framed not as a whore, but as the archetypal mother. Right? There's one earth, mother of us all, one womb, wherein all men are begotten, and wherein they shall rest. Mystery of mystery, in her name, Babylon. Now, I mentioned that this figure, the scarlet woman, the whore, the mother of abominations, she is his goddess figure, the counterpart to the beast in, in Telema, but she's also an office, and you know, a sacred office in the religion. And in addition to being his wife, Rose is the first woman to occupy this office, right? She she becomes not just his life partner, the sexual partner, but his magical partner. She is she becomes the Scarlet Woman, the inaugural one. She takes this magical name Varda, the Seer, um, and uh, you know she she takes that, but not just because she's his wife, right? The the consort of the Beast doesn't like the wife, the partner, sexual partner of the beast, doesn't magically become just automatically the scarlet woman. It's um, She's a true mistress of the beast, but she has to be formally consecrated. And so throughout his life, he has multiple scarlet women. He's, he, he provides a list of them at one point. And he also has a heap of other magical sexual partners, both female and male, often multiple at once. You know, so mm. we're, just, we're gearing up here. He, he has this book of the law. Um, he's starting to flesh out the shape of this thing and what the underpinning philosophy and ideology is and identify these kinds of offices. So, right, he, he is the great beast, Plomegatherion 666. And then there is his, mm. his concert, this counterpart, the Scarlet Woman. And, um, you know, he's going to, over time, start fleshing this out and start working out how these energies are manifested. And, yeah. And and just to be that was a great coverage of the Scarlet Woman uh, yeah. con, uh, concept. So thank you for that. Uh, just to be clear about what these basic practices are, we're talking about a kind of meditation that involves mm-hmm. what they call astral projection, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a meditation where you visualize and you record your visions. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he he applied a kind of scientific rigor to his work too. Uh, when we finally, yeah, he would write everything down. He would talk mm-hmm. about having a magical diary, a magical journal, meticulous uh, records. Yeah, and and he yeah. he talks. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where, and I don't, uh, you know, where he talks about um, at one point that the kind of magic he was interested in pursuing and part of his broader project is to sort of approach magic in a scientific way. He wants to merge them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I think he, yeah, he and said it's, the it's aim like of religion, this... the aim of religion, the method of science, that was the yes, name. That That's was what it. he put in front of the equinox, which is mm-hmm. his um, journal that would come out later. Brad. No, that was basically what I was going to say with, with less uh, direct reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was quite literally what he, how he did, how he described it. Um, so, I mean, Years earlier, when he was going through that Golden Dawn initiation and getting his uh, uh, instructions getting from these fellows, yeah, I mean, you know, you to do the, this practice, you do uh, you create a magical circle, you do the banishing ritual of the pentagram, you maybe take some drugs, mm-hmm. uh, and you visualize scenarios in your mind and and or respond to sort of the things that come into your mind, and you attempt to to craft almost like an astral projection of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hesse book, Demian, kind of gives a good um, idea of sort of some of the some of what's going on. So I just want to place that for people who have no idea what the hell they're talking. What do you mean? Yeah. It, it's it's a lot of, uh, it's like almost like a Western answer to sort of Eastern practices. They're really not that mm-hmm. different. Uh, yeah. You're, yeah. And so, yeah. so Crowley's not inventing these practices no. out of whole cloth, right? These are coming out of other traditions and they've been followed up on by other, you know, it's, it's not, and that's not to d- diminish like innovations he may have made in this world, but he, he's in like, there is kind of a vague tradition that he's in. Mm-hmm. That he's not even that, not there. even that vague. Uh, really, yeah, I mean, right. it's, yeah, it's, it's syncretic it's and then little, it's like pulling right. from uh, dif- different areas, but yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and when you, when you combine sex, uh, with the, uh, with this type of magical practice, it does have the potential to, to supercharge it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to sound maybe crazy to people who don't dabble in this stuff but it's mm-hmm. pretty well accepted as true among um occultists oh definitely yeah 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 when you just think when you when you when you just think about how powerful sex and human sexuality is in terms of moving the the world there's no doubt that it that it um has a power so mm-hmm. in any case um shall shall we move forward let's move forward so there to, to continue with the the uh, the biography, are, are we yeah. good? Do, do you feel I, I good? I think we're good. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. We're yeah, good. let I me. Mean, yeah, yeah. We can yeah. we could just like we could do an entire episode on the scar. Uh, we could do it women. again, yeah. or or yeah. on you know sex magic. I mean that we will discuss again, or even on astral projection. I mean, there's this interesting right. kind of interlude later where you know with I think it's with Elaine Simpson, but I might be wrong. Mm. Um, another Golden Dawn initiate, a, a woman. Um, he has this experiment he runs with her where they agree that they're each going to astral project in the evening at designated times and record what they see, what they're doing, and then report back to each other to see if it's accurate. So to see if this is actually working. So yeah, he is a- approaching this very like methodically, scientifically. He's he's genuinely interested in in seeing whether there's any validity and and how one does these things. And for anybody who's interested in looking at how this is actually done in the present day, I strongly recommend uh, Googling Grant Morrison mm-hmm. Sigil Magic Lecture. And that that is the quickest shot in the arm that you'll get uh, in terms of 
how this stuff can be applied in the present day if you're interested in going down that rabbit hole. Because uh, this is still like a living tradition, you know, and not just, um, I mean, ceremonial magic, there are multiple faces of it in the West and, it, and it's ongoing. And there are, you know, ceremonial magicians alive today and practicing and, and have they have fascinating work, you know, I mean, Phil Hines brings to mind, but there are all kinds, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's heaps of work still being put out in this stuff and people engaging in these practices, which, I mean, you know, you can approach it as, as saying, Oh well, this is just foolishness. Magic isn't real, but there there are a variety of ways to come at magic. You might take it quite literally. You might approach it as meditation. You know, a form of self actualization. I mean, you know, having a coherent kind of philosophy just as a, a sort of framework on which to hang your life can be incredibly helpful to people, regardless of whether they ever report paranormal experiences. It, it's multifaceted, right? And I, I think there must be some use some utility some validity in it or you i mean i can't see so many people doing it for so long right yeah and some of it starts off quite simple like i i did um i worked significantly through the uh self-initiation into the hermetic order of the golden dawns book mm -hmm. by Ch yes. Ch cicero who's still around and literally the first week of it is it's just concentration and, and paying attention exercises. There's nothing, yeah. there's no, there's no burn incense. There's no, no improve your mind, words. learn to focus. It's literally just every day for five to 10 minutes, go for a walk and notice as many details as you possibly mm -hmm. can. Yeah. And then eventually, mm -hmm, and it, it works. It, it does tune mm -hmm. your mind in a particular way. There's, there's, and so if that's the, that if that's the first seed of magic, then there's certainly something for sure it, right? and i mean that's a really old yeah. tradition there's one of the grimoires mm -hmm. where to uh, talk about one of the actual texts we're talking about ars notoria afterwards i mean this dates back to the medieval era and it's it's basically a core a series of exercises you know for a dedic mem memory and learning material i mean it's useful if you're a scholar you should check out this mm -hmm. this grimoire and and uh, you know practice some of these exercises you know it's, yeah and the memory the memory palace stuff fits it right in there absolutely. too i mean that was sort of thought of almost as a magical practice and now you can watch a ted talk like mm -hmm. you want to remember everything here's what you do you <laughs> yeah. you know and it's like it's like yeah that was a cult really old that, yeah that. yeah yeah exactly yeah interesting Fun. Fun. All right. Moving on with the bio. Let's go. All right. So they returned to Boleskine 1905. This guy's jamming a lot of life in here. We haven't even reached the, the Great War. No, we haven't. Oh, now, sure. it's the birth of Nuit Ma Ahatur Hecate Sappho Jezebel Lilith Crowley. <laughs> so when she gets in trouble... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is his first child. She's born in twenty eighth July, nineteen o five. Right, she's born. So they they're going back to Scotland because you know clearly Rose is very heavily pregnant. She's going to pop any moment. <laughs> they go back, and their daughter's born. Great. He he amuses after in the wake of her birth. He he amuses Rose by writing pornographic poetry and things. <laughs> Mm. And then as soon as she's sort of on her feet, he buggers off to go climbing in, in the Himalayas, I guess, you know. And, yes, um, yes. And I'm yeah. going to cover this because this is a very important expedition that he would go on in the Himalayas. Uh, Kanchenjunga expedition. Uh, this is Crowley right after his daughter was born writing about what happened. And I'm going to read this whole thing. It's important. On September 1st, we renewed the assault on the mountain. Raymond, Posh, and Salama went up the slopes on the rope and got over the bad patch. They were so much encouraged by their, their success that they went out of sight and hearing contrary to my instructions. Now, remember, this is Crowley describing a very controversial event. So he's always going to come out rosy here. Uh, 
I needed them to help me help the three coolies with loads over there uh, over the the hard part. They preferred to leave the whole responsibility to me, but I could not bring three heavily loaded men up such slopes without assistance, and there was nothing to do but await their return. In the meantime, I saw to my surprise that a large party had arrived at Camp Five. When I got uh, down, I found oh, got down. I found that. Tartarin's hysteric hysteria and Piggy's malignant stupidity had created yet another muddle. They had arrived at the camp, bringing with them some 17 or 20 coolies, and they had not brought any of the things of which we stood in such need. Their behavior was utterly unintelligible. The doctor did not, did not seem to know what he was saying. His remarks were merely confusedly irritated. He did not seem to be able to answer any of my questions or give any explanation of what had happened in the past. His one idea was to hold a Derber and have himself elected leader in my place. There was no provision in our agreement for any such folly. I'm Crowley. I'm the man. He pointed out that it was merely a scrap of paper. When the others arrived, an excited argument began. There was no suggestion that I had acted improperly in any way. From first to last, I was merely the feeling of it was merely the feeling of foreigners against being bossed by an Englishman. <laughs> the same thing had happened with Fani in Choco Re. On the present occasion, however, the Englishman was in a minority of one. He had a mutiny on his hands. <laughs> Fortunately, I had never heard that a fact of that sort makes any difference to an Englishman. <laughs> I did <laughs> I did my best to reason with them and quiet them like the naughty children they were. See, now you see, you could read this if you didn't understand that he's kind of winking. Yeah. You could read this as being Crowley's a racist, Crowley's a bigot. Yeah, he was a racist, as racist as anybody at his time was. Sure. Probably a little bit more. Uh, you know, say, but yeah. yeah, but he's also, if you can't read between the lines and sort of see the sense of humor. He's very he's performative. He's very theatrical in his mm -hmm. writings. Yeah. yeah. So he's yeah. playing it up. I mean, yeah, he's a bigot, right. but he's also playing it up. <laughs> Right. So going on, they had brought up all these men without any provisions for food or shelter, and it was now late in the day. The snow was in an absolutely unsafe condition, and though I had chosen the route so as to minimize the danger, I had chosen the route. So, it, you know, it was absolutely criminal to send men down. But the mutineers were utter utterly insensible to the voice of reason. I told the coolies that since they could not stay at Camp 5, the best thing they could do was to shelter under the rocks at Camp 4, and they went off and did so. Uh, so. They they go against his um his orders, uh, I guess. orders. <laughs> and then the next day uh, well, well he, they, he so tells they, them if you're gonna if you try to go down tonight you're gonna be killed right right he lays it right out he says and then he his, lays it right out right yeah and then his friend says that, or that he says one of the other guys wanted to go down with him so I'm gonna continue the blackguards had not even had the decency to bring up his valise this this fellow Pash I implored him to wait until the morning I told him he could have the whole of my sleeping kit but nothing would move him I explained the situation but I suppose he could not believe that I was telling the literal truth when I said that Gallimard was the best uh, was at the best of times a dangerous imbecile on the mountains and that now he had developed into a dangerous maniac I shook hands with him with a breaking heart for I had a, a got very fond of the man and my last words were don't go I shall never see you again you'll be a dead man in 10 minutes I had miscalculated once more a quarter of an hour later he was still alive less than half an hour later Raymond and I heard frantic cries no words could be distinguished but the voices were those of Tartarin and Rigi Raymond proposed going to the rescue at once, but it was now nearly dark and there was nobody to send owing to Rigi's having stripped us of men. There was furthermore no indication as to why they were yelling. They had been yelling all day. Raymond had not yet taken his boots off. 
He said he would go and see uh, if he could see what was the matter and call me if my assistance were required. He went off and did not return a call, so I went to sleep and rose the next morning at earliest dawn and went to investigate. The task was easy. About 15 minutes below Camp 5, the track had been carried away over a width of 20 feet. The angle of the slope was roughly 20 degrees. The avalanche had stopped 250 feet below, and at this point, it was from 40 to 50 uh, to 60 feet in width. That is to say, it was an absolutely trivial avalanche. A single man could have ridden it headfirst without the slightest risk of hurting himself. The width of the avalanche showed that six men on a 120-foot rope had been walking on each other's heels, the rope being festooned so as to be worse than useless. A man struggling in loose snow avalanche has a fair chance of getting to the top, but if every time he does so, he's jerked away by the rope, it will be the greatest piece of luck if he is not killed. Tartarin, who should have been the last man on a descent in order to watch the others to see that the rope was kept stretched and to check any slip at the outset, was leading. So they they died on their way down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do we know how many people died? It? How many people died? I think it was like three or four people mm-hmm. Um, died, uh, and this was a this is a big deal because this was, was an exhibition that he kind of, kind of like put together. Uh, you know, he was he was sort of like leading this expedition. Had a mutiny on his hands, and on his watch, uh, a number of people died, and it mm-hmm. it really hurt his reputation. Um, yeah. So, uh, I just I wanted to read that because it's it's such a good example of how he. He never, you know, takes any sort of uh, accountability at all. Yeah. I'm going to read this. Like I did yeah. everything that I could have possible. Any no one could have done more than I did to prevent this from happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he says right. that that uh, 17. If you know their guides say it hired, you know they had no ropes, no axes, no boots, claws, or anything. They crossed it easily. And they were perfectly happy. They took his advice. He says, pass the night under the rocks by camp four. You know, so the servants listened to me and they were saved. You know, what's wrong with you guys is, right. is his attitude to this. You know, it's. Yeah. So uh, this is from the Wikipedia. So they, the argument could not be settled. Uh, Gallimard, Darigi, and pa, Pache decided to retreat from camp five to camp three. At 5 p.m. they left with four porters on a single rope. But a fall precipitated an avalanche that killed three porters as well as um, Posh. People at Camp 5 heard frantic cries. Crowley stayed in his tent. That evening, he wrote a letter to a Darjeeling newspaper stating that he had advised against the descent. Uh, and that he already knew. <laughs> and that a mountain accident of this sort is uh, one of the things for which I have no sympathy, whatever. The next day, Crowley passed the site of the accident without pausing nor speaking to the survivors. And left uh, on his own to Darjeeling, where he took the expedition funds, which mostly had been paid by Gallimard. The latter would get at least some of his money back after after threatening to make public some of Crowley's pornographic poetry. <laughs> um, oh, so that's the one thing about Crowley is there's always blackmail. You always, know, blackmail, yeah. right? Yeah, he. Yeah. he, he, it, he closes yeah. this discussion of this with like Queen Victoria on a celebrated occasion. I was not amused. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It would only be 50 years later that this ascent would be accomplished in 55. And they use the the same route that that was pioneered in, uh, mm-hmm. in 05. So just a little uh, mountaineering interlude, I think important though, because gives you kind of uh, a taste of him. So, when Crowley headed off for the exhib- exhibition, Rose and their their baby girl had started uh, heading back to Europe. After the climb, Crowley continued to Shanghai to visit former Golden Dawn member Elaine Simpson, 
whose mother had also been an initiate, and then to New York to drum up support for a second mountaineering expedition. So this is the second time he's he in New York. He wants to try it again. He wants to try mm-hmm. this expedition again. It didn't work. No one was giving him any money after this. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Four people are dead, Crowley. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, Upon arriving back in Britain, he learned that his infant daughter had died of typhoid in Rangoon, Myanmar. He was devastated and blamed Rose. Yeah. So terrible. Bit yeah, of an she, echo she of his own sister. Quite heavily. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I've often wondered about that. You know, he says that, you know, his, his, the death of his sister didn't really affect him. He was too young, uh, you know, and yet, I mean, he has daughters. <laughs> and, you know, the, this isn't the only death of a daughter that we're, we're going to see with him. And, and he is absolutely utterly destroyed by it, you know, as one is. But I've often wondered, you know, it, it's odd that he says it didn't make such a, did he think of her? Did did this ever, you know, evoke that incident in his mind? Mm. You know? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, that's hard. The death of a child is, I mean, it's... Just, oh, and she was so small. Yeah. She was only one or two, I think, right? Mm. They had another one almost immediately afterwards, February 1907, that we get this second daughter, Lola Zaza Crowley. This is at Reading in, in Berkshire. And her early years aren't well documented. She was mainly raised by her maternal uncle, but she she lived into the 90s, like the 1990s, right? She denounced him in adulthood. She refused to see him. He begged her towards the end of, of her life, but mm. she married. She became like a, a school teacher or a nursery governess, and she lived a really quiet, private life. Um, and these weren't his only offspring. Um, I'm sure there were you know, he had many offsprings he did not know about, <laughs> but the main ones that are reported in the biography um, that are coming, right? Uh, you know, Anne Leah Crowley, that's later. Lulu, a start, Panthea Shumway, that's later, right? <laughs> These so names is, are incredible. I know. There's Lilith, there's Lola, there's Anne Leah, there's Lulu. And then there's, he had, does have a son, Aleister Ataturk. Now, it's worth noting here, there are these two. I guess, pretenders. Um, there's an occult writer. He, I think people have tracked down. He was probably Andrew Standish. But this fellow was using the pseudonym Amado Crowley. And he claimed that he was, uh, you know, born uh, the illegitimate son of Crowley and a woman in Sicily. And we're going to come to, to Sicily later. And, and, you know, that Crowley had an affair with a local woman when he was there. And this boy was born. And he also claims that, you know, in his childhood, Curly mentored him in magic and, um, you know, disclosed sort of the real Libri to him and this sort of stuff, which is is fascinating. Um, relatively little is known about this, this guy. And, and Curly biographers dismiss his claim because one of the things about Curly is he writes down everything. Uh, like the record keeping from this man is absolutely extraordinary. And he never mentions this kid. You would think if he had a, a physical and spiritual heir to whom he was disclosing the true Lippri, you know, this son, he, he wouldn't have cared if he was legitimate or not. You know, I mean, he certainly acknowledged his other illegitimate children. He would have mentioned it in, in the diaries for sure. Right. It just doesn't add up. And there's also this other fellow, Edward Curley, who is a convicted murderer. Okay. You can Google him. He, I think he shows up on Murderpedia. <laughs> he claimed to be one of Crowley's children. And some people repeat this, but it's categorically false. First of all, he was born after Crowley was already dead. And he was obsessed with the occult. He was one of these nutcases who were, you know, obsessed with Satanism and thing. And he changed his name to Crowley's name via deed poll. So that's not his son either. So it's, mm. you know, important to be, when you're reading about him, to be aware that there are these two pretenders that claim to be sons of him, his that are not. Well, interesting. 
This reminded me of something that we skipped over earlier. Do you recall the maid that uh, Crowley Crowley slept with yeah. on his uh, mother's bed? The the story There's goes, rumors of course, she, she was got, yeah she got killed by Jack the Ripper is one of the rumors because okay. she she Whoa. fell out. Uh, in well, she was dis- ostracized, disgrace, right? And so yeah. she ended up a prostitute in the East End. It, it is one of those little myths, right? Isn't that another? Myth. Wouldn't that be yeah perfect? You know, for Crowley to. Um, all right, so. We're gonna we're gonna move on. We're gonna keep going. We're well into our yeah. so I mean he has a lot of kids. Or <laughs> are we okay? We are. That's okay. Yeah, I mean yeah, we're getting great. there. We're getting there. Yeah. I mean yeah, there are miscarriages there. too, which is normal. Um, but I mean, we can get sentimental. I mean, he clearly loved his children. and you know, we'll come to some of that in a bit. And yet on the one hand, we can get kind of sentimental about him as a, a sort of as a parent, as a family man. Concomitantly, Lola seems to have been named for his then mistress, <laughs> Vera Lola Snap. So she was an actress. She used the stage name Vera Neville. You can Google her. Mm-hmm. He was having that an affair with her. That is a power move. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. You know, he was having an affair with her when Rose was was pregnant. And um free love named, though. I mean yeah. this is we're yeah. I, I said, yeah, go on. He endorses free love for sure, right? Um, he also had an affair with um, Ada Leverson, who was a novelist and also a fellow occultist. Um, he had this endless stream of mistresses and then other sexual partners who didn't have the status of mistresses. And then, you know, these magical sexual partners, right? So we get later, we're going to get another important homosexual relationship, Victor Newberg, but he, he also had really intense relationships with Leah, uh, Leila Waddle, who was, um, you know, an occultist, a writer, and, and a professional violinist. And then there's this Canadian businesswoman, this woman from Quebec who owned a cosmetic company, <laughs> Mary Desty Sturgis. He had an affair with her. Um, Jean Foster, who was a, a fashion model. Um, Helen Wesley, she's a vaudeville actress and a character actress. Um, Gerda Maria von Kothek, who was a, a German sex worker and also a radical socialist organizer. Crowley called her wow. the angel of the revolution. Like he doesn't really have wow. type. It's anyone, right? Yeah. Ratan yeah. Devi, the Indian musician. Um, Roddy Miner is another major one. She she's a chemist in a path lab, right? <laughs> it's, wow. It's yeah, all over stream, the place. All over the place. All and this is just like a sample. I mean, I haven't done the math. I don't know if you could, but yeah. he must have slept <laughs> with hundreds of people. He hired prostitutes, mm-hmm. astonishing frequency, right? And he doesn't seem to have a type. You look at his magical diaries and he makes notes about every time he hires a prostitute. He, he was, it's, it's quite funny because he's pra- practicing sex magic with them. And I can only imagine what went through their minds, although right. I'm sure they I, saw weirder, right? Yeah. Um, and he indicates yeah. what they look like and what their astrological sign is and what the working was <laughs> in these notes, <laughs> you know, and what sometimes what he paid them, even he tells us. So it, <laughs> he's impulsive. He writes it all down. He's, indiscriminately promiscuous he picks up women and men he's picking up men in the turkish baths right any every race ethnicity age shape women in their 50s and 60s young female prostitutes they're they're black they're they're japanese they're english they're you know every imaginable sex act although with men he's always almost always a receptive partner which is interesting. Um, it is interesting. And he, yeah, he tells us we know he he does have an ideal of feminine beauty. Um, he, he wants a really large, strong, sensual. He says big, muscular, sensual type. Uh, this is his ideal. And yet, when he's practicing sex magic, picking people up, it, it doesn't seem to matter. Wow, Crowley wow. is the ultimate power bottom. I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> power bottom. 
<laughs> Big time. All right. So amidst all of the uh, the screwing uh, that, that Crowley's doing, the free love, which is it is sort of mind blowing. I mean, this is nineteen oh seven. Beggar's belief. Nineteen oh seven. It's just staggering. Uh, he, there's no Tinder. Uh, <laughs> you know, how is he even accomplishing this? You maybe you start a cult. Maybe mm-hmm. you declare yourself the mm-hmm. Messiah. I mean, of, it seems uh, to be working. Aeon. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. worked. I mean, people people are attracted to confidence. It's <laughs> it's not true. always the nice it's it's not always the nice guy who gets the girl. I hate it, to break it to yeah. you. You know, it's funny <laughs> because you, I mean, he was a good-looking guy in his youth. He didn't age great, you know, and yet this continues throughout his life and I and I can only think he must have been, and I mean, he would have been just a weirdo, like to, to the general public and the media. And yet this string, he must have been incredibly charismatic. There, there must have been something about him in person. You know, it has to be the case, right? I mean, there's no way, not yeah. even just the sex, but just the the way he navigated through the world. With mm-hmm. you have to be, you have to have some kind of extra charisma just to do this to mm-hmm. to, to pull together the things that he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So he's publishing. He publishes the Soul of Osiris, uh, which I'm not familiar with. There's a review. Is this is this a uh, a book of poems? Comprising yeah, this, the, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's a long poem. Um, okay, you know, or a series of long poems, and it was pretty well. The Westminster Review received it well. You know, writing. It cannot be denied that Alistair Crowley is a true poet, a poet of the school of Baudelaire and Poe, which, okay, nice, sure. But then Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, who at at this point, he's still up and coming. He writes in the Daily Mail, because this was a a period when the Daily Mail still had like poetry reviews. (laughs) Some things do change. He, He writes, and this makes me laugh, quote, we have all possible respect for Mr. Crowley's religious symbolism, and we do not object to his calling upon shoe at any hour of the night. Only it would be unreasonable of him to complain if his religious exercises were generally mistaken for an effort to drive away cats. If Mr. <laughs> Crow- if Mr. Crowley and the new mystics think for one moment that an Egyptian desert is more mystic than an English meadow, that a palm tree is more poetic than a Sussex beach, that a broken temple of Osiris is more supernatural than a Baptist chapel in Brixton, then they are sectarians. But Mr. Crowley is a strong and genuine poet. Fair enough. And we have little Mm. doubt that he will work up from his appreciation of the Temple of Osiris to that loftier and wider work of the human imagination, the appreciation of the Brixton Chapel. Wow. (laughs) Desterson is making an interesting point there. All this like Orientalism. Yes. All of this like, why don't you come home, rich kid? Why don't you, you yeah. know, look around you and you know, come out, come down from the clouds. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mixed review. I mean, it's a review that's make that's making a point. Yeah. Uh so. poking gentle fun, which I respect, you know, point. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right. So in 1907, Crowley founds the AA, uh, which is a magical order, a short-lived magical order. Uh okay, we're gonna, gonna keep going. In 1909, he established the Equinox which is the Review of Scientific Illuminism. And this was the official periodical of the AA that featured articles on occultism and magic, along with occasional works of poetry, fiction, and even visual art. It would remain in print until 1998. Uh, At this time, Crowley continued preparation for the Abramellum ritual and claimed that Iwas was contacting him again uh, and dictated further texts to him. He also rediscovered the manuscript of the Book of the Law among his papers and became convinced it was objectively true. 
He began taking students at this time in, in part because his inheritance was beginning to run out. Burned through $2 million Ridiculous, plus yeah. Yeah. in under 10 years. Ish. I mean, yeah. consider yeah. the life he's le- leading, right? His life. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, look, yeah. you know, if you if you get your make it bag, you got to protect that bag. But he has no, yes. he has no idea. He has <laughs> no. no clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, he literally believes in magic. He literally believes he can convert his will into mm-hmm. his desire. So this is kind of a funny. Almost he is. Poetic, yeah. yeah. He yeah. is running sex rituals that often have as a, a focus financial aims. This sort of thing. So he's trying to yeah. channel his will into Tell me about money. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh <laughs> patreon.com slash art of dark pot. I need to I need to buy more meme coins. Uh he also rediscovered the manuscript. I already read this. Okay. Uh we're getting it, we're going long. So okay, here we go. So he he produced at this point Lieber 777, which is really an essential piece of Crowley uh, writing. It's a book of magical and Kabbalistic correspondences. Uh it's very, very helpful if you have the Toth tarot deck to have Lieber 777 mm-hmm. and the Book of Toth, because it'll help you sort of understand his his syncretic system of, of symbolic um, of symbolism. Um, it was his first attempt at a biography. He's writing, writing poetry. This is when he meets Victor Neuberg. Victor would become his closest disciple and his sexual partner. They had a sadomasochistic relationship. Uh, they toured Spain. Now, is he still married? No. Okay. I'm getting ahead of things. So they toured Spain, then headed to North Africa. See, this is what happens. If somebody uh, gives you a marriage of convenience and says, don't worry, yeah. you can sleep with anybody. It, it means they're going to sleep with anybody. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. This is the original open relationship. All right. So it's 1909. Crowley divorces Rose, citing, uh, this is hilarious, citing his grounds for his divorce, his own adultery. What? Yeah. He, he divorces her on one of the grounds. Well, I'm adult. I'm an adulterer. She should divorce me because I'm running wow. around on her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fair enough, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So well, and, and she stayed there. She was allowed. She still lived in the house and was look, raising their daughter. You know, but he's just. Uh, you know, she's she's been struggling with alcoholism and probably you know from at least the death of their first child. You know, and and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and she doesn't seem to be able to pull herself out of it. Right. Yeah, so, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call her one of his one of his casualties a little bit. Yeah, I'm gonna, I think that's I'm gonna fair. Say, yeah, this is you know not very good. All right, so now, and I want you, Stephanie, to cover what we're about to talk about. So it's 1909. 1909. So this is this is Neuberg or Neuberg, right? He, he's he's um, a Jewish man from Islington, right? Um, his parents, I think, were from Bohemia or. Um, and, you know, he educated in, in, in London. He was brought up by his mother and, and his maternal aunts. He's educated in London. He, he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, right? He was, I know a bit about him because he, he's, he's a kind of medievalist in the story, not by profession, but he studied medieval and modern languages. And when he's around 25, right, so he's, you know, like, I don't know, six or seven years younger than, than Crowley. Um, they came into contact, I think, initially out of, you know, they were both poets, right? Um, Crowley had read some of his poetry in, in the agnostic journal. He, he describes Newberg as a, an agnostic, a vegetarian, a mystic, a Tolstoyan, and several other things all at once. 
he endeavored to express his spiritual state by wearing the green star of Esperanto, though he couldn't speak it, <laughs> refusing to wear a hat, even in London. He refused to wash, he refused, you know, to wash, to wear trousers. Whenever addressed, he wiggled convulsively, you know. Uh, he, he paints this picture of this really odd Very, very eccentric guy, yeah. Yeah, with an extraordinary, the most extraordinary laugh that had ever come my way. And Curly hmm. says, to these advantages, he united those of being extraordinarily well-read, overflowing with exquisitely subtle humor and being one of the best natured people that ever trod this planet. Hmm. So, you know, he's charmed by this fellow. He initiates him into his magical order, the AA and, and um, Nubert takes this, um, he's fatter omnia of income. And they also begin, a, you know, this long lasting sexual, but not just sexual, it's also a sentimental, it's a romantic language, a romantic relationship as well. So they head to, North Africa, right? And this is sort of as during the breakdown of, of the relationship, the marriage with, with Rose. So this is from, you know, late November into December 1909. And there they are going to perform the Enochian calls of John D in, in North Africa. Um, now, I'm sure John D probably doesn't need an introduction to most of the people who would listen to, you know, to this podcast, but D is when you think he's kind of the sort of arch wizard of, of the Anglosphere, right? This is, he's an Elizabethan um, mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, an occultist and alchemist. He was the court astronomer and advisor to Elizabeth the first, um, although he has a really erratic kind of life course and, and doesn't end well, you know, he seems to have died in poverty and we, we don't even know what this is a 16th 16th century right yeah i think he dies 1608 1609 like okay. early early yeah. right um he, he's very interested in alchemy and divination and um, hermetic philosophy he was also an antiquarian and he he had one of the largest libraries in the entire country at the time right and weren't, it, weren't they also certainly spies as well weren't i don't they? know much about that i've heard okay. that i don't know if it's true Okay. You know, right. I, I don't know yeah. all that yeah. much. But... Yeah, spying, I mean, I think part of it, and I, I don't know a whole part lot of his either, courtiers but Kevin, I've heard that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And well, he was also, I mean, he threw the best, he supposedly read the best, did the best astrology reading in Europe. And so if you're that kind of guy, you get access to talking yes. intimate conversations with a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. So it was probably a little bit of that. Like and he, he does visit He kind of just courts. knew what everybody's deal was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he does visit foreign courts. He's been credited with, with um, you know, advocating for you know the new world of forming he's credited with coining the term british empire all right so he, he's hanging out with this fellow edward uh kelly this is again another kelly another damn kelly but this is 1500s <laughs> in england kelly is a scryer and he seems to be a little bit of a schemer as well you know um they're He's aiding D in these magical investigations, and these investigations, uh, you know, they they develop this um, conlang. This they they manufacture this language, which is they call Enochian. That's involved, and it, it's a really fascinating story. I encourage people to look it up. I mean, he convinces um, D at one point that the you know the spirits they were talking to said that you know they should share everything, in, including D's wife, and D goes along with it. It, it it's quite something. Seems to be a, a trend that it I'm does. spotting yeah. with these, these magicians. <laughs> yeah. What they go searching mm. for. Yeah. So mm. anyway, there are these, there's this elaborate framework of Enochian. And there are these Enochian calls, these invocations. And 
you know, Crowley and Victor, they're going to go to North Africa and, and they're going to perform these, right? So they go off, they do this. And when Crowley returned to London the, the next year, he learned that Mathers, again, more drama. There's always drama. This is his, his former mentor, right? You know, Mathers was suing him because he published Golden Dawn Secrets because he's not just publishing poetry. He's also publishing about magic, right? Because he's, he's taking students now and things, right? This case was really widely reported. The media went, I mean, you can just imagine with the British media went nuts over this kind of fight between, you know, the golden, the leader of one of the founders of the Golden Dawn and this arch magician Crowley and, and publishing secrets. And Crowley was beginning to become really notorious. This, of course, attracted further students to him, right? I mean, if, you know, Kevin noted earlier, if you're going to be a black magician, you might as well go hard, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he, to a point, embraced the notoriety, although oh, yeah. there would be a libel case later. And I know the business with business with Mathers hurt him because oh, yeah. he, he had looked up to Mathers. He believed that Mathers was one of the people who could get in touch or was in touch with the secret chiefs. Yeah. So, And that, he was kind know, of yeah. in local parentis in a way, you mm -hmm. know, Curly lost his father so young. And then here's this older man and he's mentoring him and he's, you know, defending him and caring for him. And so, I mean, this must've been a pretty upsetting betrayal, right? He, but he doesn't admit he's wrong, of course, right? That he went No, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. So, you know, now there's this, these legal problems and he complicates his life further. He meets, so I mentioned Layla Waddle, the, the, she's Australian actually, a violinist. Who becomes, you know, well, his his sexual partner and his magical partner, and there's debate over whether she was a scarlet woman to hold this office, right? Some people say yes, she was. Some people say no, she wasn't. But she definitely contributed to one of his magical texts, right, the Liber ABA, and she was arrived uh, involved in the rites of Eleusis. These are really, really um, interesting. It's a a series of um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The performances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're yeah. they're staged in in London at Caxton Hall, October November nineteen ten, and it's Crowley and and Layla and and Victor are performing these together on stage. And I mean, part of the you know rationale here is it brings the occult or the AA into the public eye. But there's sort of planetary themed rites. You know, one for each of its Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sol, Venus, Mercury, and Luna, and his aim, he claimed, was to inspire uh, religious ecstasy in, in the audience, right? Instead of, you know, to bring people, you know, into their... Uh, anyway, the press considered this really disgraceful, that they were blasphemies, public eroticism. It, it's it, it's blasphemy. It's absolutely um, ridiculous, right? Uh, they Another thing they go nuts over. But yeah, they, they staged these series of public rituals. Um, and she she was also a muse for, and this is again really important, Liber 333, the book of lies that would be published a year or two later, right? Um, she hangs around for a while. By 1913, you know, they organized together this, this violin ensemble and they go touring. They tour around the UK and they also tour in Russia, you know, and he sort of wow. goes along with them as kind of like a concert promoter, I guess. <laughs> She's leading this, this violin ensemble and it's all women. Wow. But they're, yeah, so huh, it, I would love has, to have seen that. That'd be oh my god, yes. 
footage absolutely of that absolutely incredible did he uh when did he release the book of lies when did that come out uh, uh 1912 1913 i okay. i think we're not sure of the exact date but i might just have missed it right yeah no no it's um, fine i just i want to i want to make sure that i get it's, it's a, a year to ahead i mean in the interim Rose is institutionalized. Like she's really, really struggling with alcohol really badly to the point that he's, you know, worried about their daughter and stuff. Um, she's not there that long though. Like she's released the next year and she remarries to this fellow um, Dr. Joseph Gormley. Uh, she lives until 32. So she, you know, lives a while yet. Um, with her out of the picture, however, we, we do know there is, whether Layla or not was a, was a Scarlet woman or not, he does soon have another Scarlet woman Mary Desti Sturgis. This is this woman from Quebec, right? Who owns her own cosmetic company. She's married, but that doesn't matter to Crowley. Uh, she had a son. He later became a playwright. She's a, <laughs> a friend with Isadora Duncan. Like he, all these important people. You were saying, you know, everywhere you look, he keeps cropping up. Here's another another case. You know, he's having this passionate affair, a magical relationship with, you know, one of Isadora Duncan's best friends. This woman running a cosmetics company from Quebec. Right. They meet in Paris and his book four, right, that, you know, important volume that comes out around this time. It's based on things she said during one of their rituals when she's in a trance. He believed that this figure, one of the secret chiefs that we mentioned earlier, was speaking through her as Ab Uldiz. Okay. He he completes the holy books dilemma around this time. And this is when he starts distinguishing between magic ending in a sea, like stage magic, pen and teller sort of things, and magic ending in a K, occultism, supernatural magic. So Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, let's we're gonna keep we're gonna keep getting us toward the great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. We're gonna we're gonna head toward the Great War. Uh, you know, we're kind of getting into that period. I I want to read a little bit from the book of the Book of Lies real quick because I think it's fascinating. Um, the first page of the Book of Lies literally is just a question mark. The second page is an exclamation point. And then this is this is what it says. And then I'm gonna carry us forward a bit. Kappa Epsilon Phi Alpha Lambda Eta Eta Omicron Upsilon Kappa Epsilon Sigma Tau Iota Kappa Epsilon Phi Alpha Lambda Eta Omicron. The anti-primal triad, which is not God. Nothing is, nothing becomes, nothing is not. The first triad, which is God. I am. I utter the word. I hear the word. The abyss, the word is broken up. There is knowledge. Knowledge is relation. These fragments are creation. The broken manifests light. The second triad, which is God. God, the father and mother, is concealed in generation. God is concealed in the whirling energy of nature. God is manifest in gathering, harmony, consideration. The mirror of the sun and of the heart. The third triad, bearing, preparing, wavering, flowing, flashing, stability, begetting. The tenth emanation, the world commentary the chapter that is not a chapter this chapter numbered zero corresponds to the negative which is before kether in the kabbalistic system the notes of interrogation and exclamation on the previous pages are the other two veils the meaning of these symbols is fully explained in the soldier and the hunchback 
The chapter begins by the letter O, followed by a mark of exclamation. Its reference to the theogony of Liber Legis is explained in the note, but it also refers to Catice, Phallus, and Sperma, and is the exclamation of wonder or ecstasy, which is the ultimate nature of things. So, I mean, it has a commentary on, you know, that first chapter, which is not a chapter. And that's a little taste of the book of lies. And it's like, what what are we dealing with here? Who is this guy? I mean, it's kind of a crazy book of philosophy and and sort of sort of explaining his, his some of his his maybe original ideas about about Kabbalah. I just read a little bit from the book of lies, Brad. It's it's a hoot. It's sort of a slim volume. Um I think we can see see that his his writing style and his thinking is sort of developing and uh you know, he has some very very stern ideas about um about his own magical system uh fair to say there stephanie i think that yeah for sure yeah he's yeah. starting to coalesce in his mind right and he's he's well, yeah. not just yeah. starting i mean he's in it quite deep at this point this is yes. around where he he starts he comes up with the gnostic mass right he he drafts this is um you know book 15 liber 15 he he, he drafts it when they're in moscow the ragged rank time girls you know whether well, violin tour in, in, in moscow he drafts this it, it's Basically, a, a kind of merging of a Catholic mass and and an Eastern Orthodox mass, but it's the principles it articulates are those of Thelema. And and the chief function of this, I mean, of this book fifteen, is is a performance of the, the Gnostic mass, right? It's um, yeah. This is the key ritual inside uh, Thelema to this day, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a ceremony. Uh, that is, uh, yeah. I mean, it's their it's their central um, ritual. So, yeah. yeah uh, if you live it, in yeah. a big city, you can find one. They, oh they, yeah, there are organizations that are hosting Gnostic masses. Mm-hmm. I know, and I know, in where I am, there's one. There's a place who d- that does them occasionally. Oh, that's very cool. There must be someone here in Toronto. I wonder. I'd be well. I'm going to read yeah. Crowley's thinking on this. While dealing with this subject, I may as well outline its scope completely. Human nature demands, in the case of most people, the satisfaction of the religious instinct, and to very many, this may best be done by ceremonial means. I don't think that's that controversial. I wish, therefore, to construct a ritual through which people might enter into ecstasy as they have always done under the influence of appropriate ritual. In recent years, there has been an increasing failure to attain this object because the established cults shock their intellectual convictions and outrage their common sense. Thus, their minds criticize their enthusiasm. They are unable to consummate the union of their individual souls with the universal soul as a bridegroom would be to consummate his marriage if his love were constantly reminded that its assumptions were intellectually absurd. He's saying we're way too in our heads. I resolved that my ritual should celebrate the sublimity of the operation of universal forces without introducing disputable metaphysical theories. I would neither make nor imply any statement about nature which would not be endorsed by the most materialistic man of science. On the surface, this may sound difficult, but in practice, I found it perfectly simple to combine the most rigidly rational conceptions of phenomena with the most exalted and enthusiastic celebration of their sublimity. So the ritual is... Yeah, it looks like it might be in like six parts, introduction, ceremony of the introit, ceremony of the rending of the veil, collects, consecration of the elements, anthem, mystic marriage, and consummation of the elements. Uh, and then there is a, a narrative uh, that sort of runs through it. Uh, just briefly, the people enter into the ritual space where the deacon stands at the altar of incense. 
she takes the book of the law and places it on the super altar within the great veil and proclaims the law of Thelema in the name of Iao. Returning, she leads the people in the Gnostic Creed, which announces a belief or value in the Lord, the Son, Chaos, Air, Babylon, Baphomet, the Gnostic Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the miracle of the Mass, as well as confessions of their birth as incarnate beings and the eternal cycle of their individual lives. Hey, we do a little heresy. Do a little bit. I mean, the the officiants are intriguingly, it's interesting, you know, she, the deacon, is not the only officiant. The mass is run with a priestess and a priest officiating together with a deacon of either sex and two children. And intriguingly, I mean, this orders, you know, they they perform the, you know, regular sacraments and things. But right from the outset, I mean, marriage is not limited to couples of opposite sex. And this is something that recurs mm. in, in Crowley and his magical thinking and his philosophical thinking, this kind of balance of the sexes, of you know, the, the male, the female, the yin, the yang, this sort of thing. And he's entirely open to women in, in you know, these kinds of positions leading a, a, a mass is really interesting considering the time period. Yeah. 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 So he's uh, now in, I'm going to blast through some stuff here. He's now in Paris. It's January of 1914. He gets an apartment with uh, Neuberg. In January and February, they perform the Paris Working, a six or seven week ritual involving 13 separate drug fueled acts of sex magic <laughs> in which Crowley. What did you do this week? I mean, you know, it's like it's like it's like Elon Musk on Twitter. What did you yeah. get done this week? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Funny. Yeah. I mean, week uh, three of a bender. <laughs> I mean, the hair is working. Right, yeah, yeah. So he and his lover were invoking Mercury and Jupiter. Sometimes the journalist, uh, Walt- sometimes the journalist Walter Dur- 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 Duranti joined them. It's so I mean, funny. why yeah. not? Yeah, yeah. And have the blue check come over. We're going to well, come we're, over. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're doing invoking Mercury and Jupiter. Yeah. The, te- the technique involved a blood and semen formula, a phrase used to describe the twofold process of evocation in these rites. The blood was Neuberg's. He was cut on the breast. Crowley and Neuberg had a serious falling out <laughs> in the yeah. aftermath of this yeah. working out. But as a result of the working, Crowley decided to devote himself to sexual as opposed to ceremonial magic. Crowley wrote extensively on sexual magic, and I'm going to go into this. Sex magic is the use of sexual can, can activity. Can stop and, for just... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I would just... What drugs are they doing for these rituals? Do we oh, know? I don't I, know, but I, I do know that it was... Um, I know he's doing mescaline because he yep. he has done it because okay. he's introduced other people to it. And I know he's done cocaine. I know he's done okay. heroin. Yeah. Um, I don't right. think we don't have LSD yet, I don't think. No. No. Yeah, it may yeah, have so it been. So must be one of those three things. It's probably yeah, opium, sure. opium, mm-hmm. coke, mescaline, yeah. maybe. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. the Just category. That, okay. Yeah, that we're dealing with. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we, you know, sex magic is, uh, you know, uh, it's old. It's it's, it's not. Old. He didn't come up with this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like there's um. Randolph, the American uh, occultist, who I mean, he died the year Crowley was born. He taught sex magic. Um, the the OTO, right? the the Ordo Templi Orientis. This is another one of these orders. They in, in, incorporate it in, into their training right from the outset. It's kind of modeled on Freemasonry, and they're using it. 
like Craddock, she's this woman's rights activist, and, and she's writing on sacred sexuality, right? Because these, these things are sort of linked. You have, you know, explicit sex magic where you're engaging in sexual acts and attempting to channel that energy to other ends, right? So you're you're combining the energy of, of sexual arousal and, and orgasm with visualization, you know, as we, we talked about, to just intensify your visualization and direct all your energies and focus, right? We're about to get so, to something that's a little bit disgusting. Uh, yeah, we are. So, but, but, we're, uh, but this I mean, is Art of yeah. Darkness and we're going to go for it. So if, mm. you know, but this it, isn't a pod for Crowley. children right now. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah I don't know we, if, you have, have, if you got kids in the room and you're listening to Crowley. Yeah, uh, they should go. You're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they should probably not be here in a bit. I mean, but this is this is not something he invented. We have a long history of sacred prostitution. This is the Karma Mudra, tantric ritual. Even, I mean, something like the Heroes Camos, like sacred marriage and, and the concept of brides of Christ in Catholicism. This is a, a union mm. of male and female on the spiritual realm that, you know, mirrors a, a marriage, a human marriage, right? So he doesn't invent this, but he goes hard with it. He grabs it and, and runs with it for sure. It becomes really central to his practice. Absolutely. Right. And he he was not squeamish at all. I mean, there's a poem he wrote about huffing Celia's yeah. farts years ago. I mean, he he put, <laughs> you know, his, relative to Joyce's letters, right? I mean, it's like that sort of level of <sighs> Joyce's naughty letters, you know. Um, yeah, he was not squeamish about uh, oral sex with menstruating women. He kept mm -hmm. records. Uh, these acts finished with Crow Crowley consuming the elixir, which would be the resultant <laughs> semen mixed with v female vaginal lubrication. Though he also ingested the mixture, ingested the mixture of fluids produced via anal sex, including with men. I mean, it's uh, amazing that he did not get cholera. I, I said nine days. Yeah, wonder. right. I, I don't know. Yeah, but and and he so, documents all this quite. You know, like for instance, nineteen fourteen, November twenty third, he hires. This prostitute, Grace Harris, she's about 22. He hires her again December 1st, December 13th. And he writes of, on December 13th, the operation by which she means the sexual acts he engaged it with, in with her was highly orgiastic, but the elixir was very difficult to recover from the curbit. This is an alchemical term, and it refers to, it's part of an alembic, one of these, you know, um, tube things that you use in, in alchemy but he's using it here to refer to the vagina and he means that you know okay he's ejaculated inside her and he's trying to extract the semen from inside her vagina so he can eat it <laughs> is uh, what, what, okay. uh, <laughs> this is this is what he's he's doing it, I, it's, I gotta say that was disgusting but i also heard the curb your enthusiasm music when he's trying to do it yeah okay I mean, he, he I, yeah. has tasting notes he has tasting notes sure, <laughs> like not, sure. a year later he, he he has a relationship well not a relationship <sighs> he engages in a sex magic with another initiate of the oto and that notes that late sagittarius or capricorn is rising she's about 50 54 he'd been wanting her for a while anyway he writes the elixir was pretty good having rare delicacy of flavor <laughs> and then the next month with someone else, he writes, you know, the elixir was good as usual. <laughs> Here's your answer to your question, Brad. The elixir was good as usual, yeah, but yeah. my sense of taste was a little weak as we had been sniffing cocaine before we began. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Mr. Crowley. <laughs> so he's hiring prostitutes or sometimes, you know, people I, you know, who are this, also magicians. And this is so funny because it's just, it's also sort of high-minded and scientific and we're <laughs> doing rigorous. And it's like, dude, you're just, you're hiring hookers, sniffing cocaine, 
and you've got your like a, a cum fetish for your own cum, and you're you're taking yeah. well, I well, I've been to Cambridge, and I have to take notes, and right. it's like, <laughs> like fundamentally, what are you doing? <laughs> like, let's zoom. Yeah, yeah step back a second. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, just, oh, yeah. Kid Rock is the greatest uh, sex magician in America. You know what I mean? Like, 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 like. How are we? Again, nothing changes. He, he's sometimes it's really funny. Like he around that time, this is you know early winter, nineteen fifteen. I get hires a woman and, and practice. And he notes the operation was really quite good, almost up to European standards. This lady has not been long in America. <laughs> the oh French whores are way better, right? <laughs> 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 That is so, so true. Hey, I mean, I mean this is, yeah, 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 like you say, this is um, peak Americans like Americans are prudes, filthy, right? <laughs> but right. Despite right. all this, as you say, he's been to Cambridge, and there's a sense of propriety. So he's documenting right. all this, and this is these are private notes, his magical records, but he's using Latin or sometimes Greek to describe these acts. So, you know, he he, he doesn't write, you know, that he buggered a, a woman or a man. You know, he, sure. he writes. Per vas nefandum, that is by the unmentionable right. vessel. So anal sex, you know, he, he writes elixir right. rubeus, red elixir, <laughs> menstrual blood, right? And right. Yeah, yeah, one entry he, he notes, he ejaculated in, you know, he writes it in Latin, um, you know, in Manu Dominicus Cunumore Delixorum, I ejaculated into the hand of the mistress whose cunt I had left with my mouth. Right? Oh he, my God, yeah. He has this Greek note in another one, you know, that, you know, translates as a stranger in the fundament of the king. In other words, he went to the Turkish baths and had receptive sex with another man who ejaculated into his anus. Right. So he's right. got this, uh, yeah. you know, elaborate language. And um, it's, I don't know if it's a sanction yes, of propriety. Yes, but it's pretentious. It's very like, it's very. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, but I do wonder. Do you, and you wonder, you, like, it does make you wonder. What if they get my he... papers? I mean, like, what if somebody yeah. raids my place right. and Fair gets enough, my right? I mean, I think there's an element of yeah. that. Probably, yeah, sure. Probably yeah. for sure. I mean, and this makes it sound like these are wild to react. In a way, they are, although they're often kind of funny. But I mean, it's just lists of this over and over and over again. It's quite tedious. But I mean, this is these are like lab notes. They're lab records. Mm -hmm. These are these are the records of a practicing magician. It's it's pretty. I mean, they're interesting, but it's kind of clinical really quickly, right? And so, and, and and that's the rest of our outline is just uh, more pages of Crowley. <laughs> well, but you well, can imagine. Let's no. like oh they go God. on. You there are notebooks you... and notebooks. They haven't even <laughs> all been published. It's there crazy. is a theory of that Crowley had the disorder, uh, the compulsion, compulsive, to write, yeah, uh, writing. Mm. That, that that is a theory. I mean, the amount of writing that the man did was. Uh, beyond normal yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and it's longhand too you know he's not writing shorthand that i've seen yeah anyway. but but so brad, these entries you, yeah brad what were you gonna say i'm sorry well yeah, i was just i was yeah. just gonna say like you imagine you're doing this and it is in a sort of scientific mode you know he takes the scientific mode seriously even though this stuff might come somewhat from compulsion but you can imagine he gets mm -hmm. to a point where he's like sort of looking through the notes he's like oh crap i gotta drink the elixir today I really, <laughs> I really don't want to, but it says here that last time, you know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you kind of end up wrapped up in your own enterprise and, oh, but you he know, he does go back and add notes in the margins of yeah. some of them. Like if he, if he has an operation, yeah. 
um, you know, he calls them operations. So if he engages in a magical right and it's directed at financial gain and he does come into money, he goes back and he makes the note in the margin. Like he's keeping up the records. But these are very, like, here's what a full record looks like, right? So the date, 1914, December 15th, 11.40 PM, right? And he'll give, you know, where the sun is, what sign it is and stuff. Okay. Quote, Leah Dewey, Dutch prostitute, Aquarius rising, big and tall, but not fat, muscular wolf type, very dark hair on head, pubic hair, fairer, beautiful yoni, object, Hermes, i.e. general invocation of his powers, magic, wisdom, eloquence, success in business, letters, et cetera, et cetera. The operation was most orgiastic, but I formulated the God well and called aloud after his name. The gluten of the eagle, that is vaginal lubrication, was not very plentiful, and the lion, that is semen, not very thoroughly dissolved therein. Still, I think the elixir was formed well enough. So that's what the centuries look like. It's very, that's very sexless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's not sexy reading. Uh, it's amusing at first, no. but it's not sexy. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and one wonders what these prostitutes were thinking when he started. If he's screaming, <laughs> did he actually scream, Hermes? Hermes, uh, Hermes. <laughs> right. She's just you like, know, yeah, just get it over there. Go, get I'm it sure over they've there. seen, and then you know, reaching around inside. I'm sure they've seen this. They've probably seen it all, though. Uh, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, okay. All right. So sex magic. <laughs> it's a long. thing for Crowley. <laughs> yeah. It's a serious yeah. thing. I've always yeah. wondered about it. It always, it does put a mirror to your own sex life. I'm not going to get too hmm. personal here, but it's, it does make you go like, what am yeah. I doing? <laughs> like, right. like, like I'm, am I? The, it, no, Crowley's the weirdo. This is weird. Yeah, this right. Is <laughs> yeah, like no. Yeah, you're not the Messiah of the new Aeon. You say you are. You yeah. are kind of because you say you are, but like this, mm-hmm. it's not for everybody. Um, no. Yeah, I think he, and, he, he believes it. Right. He, I think he probably believes it. You know, yes. but uh, I'm I'm. I was skeptical at first, but the more I read about him, I'm almost certain I, that I he really. He, yeah, he believed it, but I also think he got titillated by it. Yeah. He must have. This is somebody like really getting into a kink. You ever met mm-hmm. somebody who's like into BSM yeah. and like they're, it's, their they're whole it's like a lifestyle. Yeah. It's like, you know, and, and they're buying new stuff and they're going to conferences and they're right. Like, yeah. you know, so I think it's, it's, I don't adjacent. think you could, I don't think you. I don't think you could maintain that kind of activity without it being based, sure. just gratifying on a basic sensual level. That's well, and how how theory. amusing is it too that these records are almost similar to something in the Old Testament, like almost the like the ge- <laughs> genealogical yeah. chapters yeah. of the Old Testament. It's, it's yeah. again, yeah. it's like how far. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, and he yeah. he would uh, scandalize people by saying things like the greatest sacrifice is that of a human child and what he really meant was masturbation you're you're sacrificing the potential of a human mm. child every time you masturbate he never insofar as we know i mean he never no. never killed yeah, a child he, he has this he, reputation yeah. but he's yeah, yeah that's not his thing he's not he, out there like Sacrificing goats. No, no, no. Although there was a goat at at Chefalu. Uh (laughs) but we'll get we'll get to it. Um all right. So now it's 1914. We're gonna go to the greatest and the freest country on earth for a third time. Uh, Land of the free. What Canada? No, they're they're uh, (laughs) no, so Crowley Crowley uh departs for the United States in 1914. He would stay in the United States for five years. 
Now, this gets into the, the spycraft business um, a little bit. So I want to I want to talk about this. All right. So 1914, Crowley was living a hand-to-mouth existence, re- relying largely on donations from AA members and dues payments made to the OTO, which he had he had taken over the OTO at that point, I think. Um, uh, in May, he transferred ownership of Boleskine House. Um, and in July, he went mountaineering in the Swiss Alps. During this time, the First World War broke out. Well, I guess if you're going to be anywhere in Europe when the war breaks out, Switzerland's a good place, right? Um, after recuperating from a bout of phlebitis, uh, what is phlebitis? We, we we always end up looking <laughs> looking up these like weird diseases uh, on Some our kind of darkness. blood thing. It's got to be a blood Infl- inflammation, inflammation of a vein, inflammation of a vein. Mm-hmm. It's Which I suppose with his legs, yeah, he with his legs throughout his life, it got yeah. quite bad when he was older. Yeah, yeah. Crowley set sail uh, for the United States aboard the RMS Lusitania. Lusitania in in October of 1914. He arrived in the United States in New York City on Halloween, moved into a hotel, and began earning money writing for the American edition of Vanity Fair and undertaking freelance work for the famed astrologer Evangeline Adams. In the city, he continued experimenting with sex magic through the use of masturbation, female prostitutes, and male clients of a Turkish bathhouse. All of these encounters were documented in his diaries. Um, He uh, started painting. Uh, These paintings are very kind of creepy. They're not sophisticated uh they're not no. even very good uh but there there is a quality to them that is eerie uh so he professed to be of uh, of irish ancestry and a supporter of irish independence from great britain when he when he landed if i'm not mistaken he he put comma irishman after his last name <laughs> and this is where we get into this business of he, the the idea that he may have been a double agent uh, because of course the Irish were the enemies of the British, um, you know, the, the Irish the nationalists. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, struggling for independence, which made them the allies of the Germans. So, uh, professing to be of Irish ancestry and a supporter of Irish independence from Great Britain, Crowley began to espouse support for Germany in their war against Britain. He became involved in New York's pro-German movement. And in January of 1915, German spy George Sylvester Virick employed him as a writer for his propagandist paper, The Fatherland, which was dedicated to keeping the U.S. neutral in the conflict. In later years, detractors denounced Crowley as a traitor to Britain for this action. Now, <laughs> there's a good podcast. I can't remember the name of the podcast. It's out there. You can find it um, that that I was listening to where they make the case that there was another fellow who was kind of writing pro-German propaganda uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, in a British citizen in the United States who was doing this. He got arrested and extradited. Crowley mm-hmm. never did. Mm-hmm. Why would that pot? Why would that be? He the also makes some, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it makes some comments at various places in his diaries that suggest, I mean, he's not explicit, but that seem to suggest that he's, working to undermine Germany. Right. Because the idea is that he would, if he would write things that were so outlandish in this, in this paper, it would actually hurt the German cause by making it seem 
crazy. He could also mm -hmm. similarly ingratiate himself in these circles. Um, there was a there was a time when he took that trip to Mexico. Uh, yeah. There was a major oil deal that went down right around the the time he arrived there. Uh, that was how to say this. He belonged to the same Masonic order as the then mm -hmm. president of Mexico. So there's this like little things happen around Crowley. We have no definitive evidence that like there's and no then you record wonder, of it. Yeah, did he really mm -hmm. abandon that diplomatic career? You right, know, right, instead right. of uh, having yeah. this crisis well, on there's on the a bridge long in history. Where do you, right? where do you think MI5 or the equivalent at the time is is yeah. rec getting recruits or getting them from the upper Cambridge. crust from Cambridge? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I remember I remember yeah. when 9/11 happened uh, at the you know, and University of Minnesota is not Cambridge. Go Gophers, good school. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. like anybody who's anybody who was in any class and had any Arabic got contacted. Yeah, like mm -hmm. they needed they needed yeah. Arabic speakers immediately. And and, yeah. and what and whether or not Crowley wanted to do it, you could see you could see a point at which the the scandalous reputation of him. Somebody comes to him and says, "Crowley, look, well, homosexuality we can either, was illegal until yeah. sixty seven. I think it was right. We can either yeah. lock you up for the rest of your life, mm. or you can do some work for us. You know, in your travels." <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, sure. I wonder, I like, I don't know. I don't really have a, I, I pondered this and I don't really have a mm. position on whether he was an asset or not, but it's a really interesting, you know, you can argue it both ways. It's hard to say. Well, I'm going to linger on this a little bit because I bought this book, Secret Agent 666. So I'm going to dig into this a little bit. Perhaps the most important thing to understand about Crowley's relationship with British intelligence is that the latter was a house of many rooms, undergoing continual remodeling. The origins of the British Secret Service go back at least as far as the reign of Elizabeth I, when the redoubtable Sir Francis Walsingham organized a network of agents to aid Queen Bess in her struggles against enemies foreign and domestic. Two of those agents were the scholar and magus, Dr. John D., and his equally occult-versed assistant, the disreputable Brad Kelly. I'm sorry, Edward Kelly. <laughs> D's, <laughs> D's secret signature uh, is said to have inspired Ian Fleming to adopt 007 as the codename for his fictional secret agent, James Bond. Crowley fancied himself the reincarnation of Kelly, a conceit that may have helped draw him into clandestine labors. Now, I could go on and on here. Uh, this is some very interesting history. Um, I want to, I have a couple of other excerpts here from this book that I want to get into. I just love this idea that he might have been. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I have no idea, you know. But right. It's... Well, so, so listen to this. Uh, so there's a theory that he may have been involved in the sinking of the Lusitania. Uh, for reasons to be seen, the Germans sincerely believed that the Lusitania carried armament and munitions, and they made plans to destroy her well in advance of the fatal U-boat attack. Excuse me, U-boat attack. Whether the, the guns or munitions were real <laughs> is ultimately irre irrelevant. The Germans believed that the Lusitania was an important and viable target, and some of those who helped convince them were British agents. It's hilarious, too, because the people who got on that last fatal voyage on the Lusitania, there was like a the, they were warned. Like the the crown, oh, really? and they said, "Yeah, there's a chance you're going to get." I did not this, know that. Yeah, yeah nuts. Mm -hmm. um, in his confessions, Crowley boasted of having proved that the Lusitania was a man of war. 
in a piece for the fatherland published after the sinking. According to the Beast, Virick, like other Germans, failed to see that the article was an extravagance which achieved my object of revolting every comparatively sane human being on Earth. Crowley aboard the Lusitania only a few months earlier, earlier could credibly claim to have seen the guns himself. So could Leela Waddle. Crowley elaborated in 1933 on his influence over Virick and his camaraden, asserting that he gradually got the Germans to believe that arrogance and violence were sound policy, trying to drag the Americans into the war. Again, that was precisely what Admiral Hall desired. The mage spoke more candidly about his wartime work for the Naval Intelligence Service to the French press. He admitted encouraging U-boat attacks against neutrals to draw the Americans into the fray. His accomplice and immediate chief in this endeavor, he added, was Capitaine Gaunt. Gaunt. Crowley confided even more to his friend George Langlin, whom he met in the early 1930s. Langlin is best known today as the author of the science fiction horror tale, The Fly. But he also wrote numerous spy stories based partly on personal experience. Langlin, like Crowley, enjoyed a relationship with British intelligence, and that may explain why the beast opened up to him. Langlin revealed nothing of this exchange until the 1960s, and then only in an obscure French journal. Langlin's revelations look like a response to questions about Crowley raised in another French magazine, Planete, a few months before. The Planet uh, piece published anonymous allegations that the infamous Monsignor Crowley, uh, Monsieur Crowley, was responsible for the torpedoing of the Lusitania. According to Langlin, Crowley's influence reached to the top of the German clandestine and diplomatic hierarchies in the U.S. Through his connections to the fatherland and the likes of Vierick, Ewers, and Münsterberg, Crowley rubbed elbows with Dr. Albert uh, Boyed, von Poppen, and even Ambassador Bernsdorf. Thus, he became more than a mere propagandist. Langlin recounts that the Germans came to place great faith in the beast's intuition and saw him as an indispensable guide to the mentality of the Americans and the British. He especially impressed them with his ability to predict the actions and reactions of the British. It was almost as though he could see the inner sanctums of Whitehall. The possibility that he was a British double agent plying them with this disinformation apparently eluded them. He may have been. This book makes a good case. And if you want to go down that rabbit hole, mm. what better cover than some sort of far out? He's almost like a uh, yeah. Rasputin, but a double agent type. Yeah. And sort of you're in the, yeah. the courts of the of the Ooh. Germans in America. And uh, I don't want to we mm. don't have time to linger much longer on that. But uh, that is we could do cool. an entire episode on Crowley and those weird connections. And he spent a lot of time in in uh, in New York. I had I did not realize that he had spent nineteen fifteen. Long 15. stretch. Yeah, nineteen nineteen. Yeah, and uh, he went up the Hudson Valley and all sorts of things. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. So nineteen fifteen June the. The journalist uh, James Keating introduced Crowley to the American vaudeville and character actress Helen Wesley. Again, these theater people. Her magical name was The Serpent. Um, uh, and he also met the fashion model and poet Jean Robert Foster. Magical name Soror Hilarion. Hilarion. I love that. The Cat. Mm -hmm. Crowley had magical and sexual relationships with, with both women, but uh, but Jean was one of Crowley's great loves. He wished to marry her. This did not come about. Uh, he they toured the West Coast West Coast together in Vancouver, the headquarters of the North American OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis. Um, he met with Charles Stansfield Jones and Wilfred Talbot Smith to discuss the propagation of Thelema on the continent. So if you're one of these um people who's like, 
oh man, America's run by satanic cults and it has been forever. Here you go. Here's Crowley working for the British crown. And he's all the way over in Vancouver going, how do I get my new religion set up in your country? America is the most Crowleyan country America is mm. is a country of Crowleyans, whether you know it or not. You you live you live a uh, yeah. It's more Crowleyan than Catholic. I'll tell you that for sure. At least popular, <laughs> at least popular culture, without a question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he uh, he met with uh, Charles Stanfield Jones and Wilfred Talbot Smith to discuss the propagation of Thelma on the continent. In Detroit, he experimented with your your neck of the woods, uh, Brad. He yeah. experimented with peyote at Park Davis. Then visit uh, then visited with the Seattle. pharmaceutical company. That's what it says. <laughs> is that is that a is Park Davis that's, a, that's far, a pharmaceutical company? All right. That's weird. Okay. Now we don't have to stay there. I just, what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then then visited Seattle, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, LA, San Diego, Tijuana, and the great, oh my God, I'd like to see the magical diary at Tijuana, his sex diary. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the Grand Canyon before returning to New York. There he befriended Ananda Kumaraswamy and his wife, Alice Richardson. Richardson. Um, she was yeah, a she, she was a, this yep. is Rotten Debbie. Right. Okay. She's an Indian mm-hmm. musician, but she's actually she's actually um she's an Anglo. She's not actually Indian, but she went by Rotten Debbie. Yeah, so, and they, they had a was the monkey. <laughs> yeah, they had a magical sexual relationship. They were performing sex magic, and she became pregnant from it, but then she miscarriage. Oh, so. oh. oh. it just seems like such a we we are super uptight about sex now, even more yeah. than Crowley and his crew. It would seem like most people, and it's like to your at least to like the male brain. It's sort of like, wait a minute, should I get into this and just have an excuse to just like, I mean, it's, it's, it, it does sort of baffle the mind. How do you, I mean, I guess the fact that he's known and he's known as this prophet and he has all of these writings, it's almost like you just, you, you it's kind of assumed, oh. well, this is what we do. Speaking as as a mm. legalist, I mean, we have these preconceptions about the past where, mm. you know, we we regard our forebears as being, you know, very uptight. And they were, I'm telling you, they were nowhere near mm. as uptight as we like mm. to think, you know, there was, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I believe that yeah, too. The, the, think, the, yeah, the, the, the looseness or whatever is, it's, uh, it's just more public now, right? It's mm. a little bit. So, you know, yeah, but, in right. crowd. In Crowley's time, the, the social convention is is to be uptight while stuff's happening in the back and behind the scenes. Whereas now it's like on the front, we're do whatever you want. Maybe we're uptight behind the scenes now. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I think it's well, so, that. Yeah. 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 They performed sex magic in uh, April of 1916 while the war is happening, following which she became pregnant, miscarried. Yeah. Uh, later that year, he took a magical retirement to a cabin at Lake Pasquinet, owned by Evangeline Adams. Uh, where's Lake Pasquinet? Do we know that? Let's look it up. Uh, no, no idea. I don't know. I just I like the idea up. of the magical retirement. Honey, I need to go on a trip. Uh, can I come? No, it's a magical retirement. You wouldn't understand. I I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We have a, li- a link to Newfound Lake. Is that the name of the lake? Because I, I want to know. It looks like it might be in New Hampshire. Oh, yes. Okay. It's, it's a lake in New Hampshire. So I mean, okay, that nice. to me, that 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 to all me, all the just, places, yeah, New Hampshire, yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. But you don't yeah. expect to find a notorious occultist there. I, I don't no. know. Maybe I'm just, just like stereotypes. Just, just right? fishing, just fishing, just fishing. Right. Yeah. right. Why not? Well, he's he's avoiding the war. 
too. He's he's in the right yeah. Yeah. place. So, yeah. all right. Um, yeah. There he made heavy use of drugs. Oh, I've I've been on lots of magical retreats. Uh, <laughs> or, or with the magical retirement. Uh, <laughs> Is that all it's involved? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. undertook a ritual. But this doesn't sound like a magical retirement. Um, after which he proclaimed himself Master Therian. So I've mm-hmm. taken lots of drugs. Now I have a new name. Um, he also wrote several there, short there stories. Is, this is Greek. It means beast. Ah, He's the, the master, master, ah, master beast. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Wrote several short stories based on Fraser's The Golden Bough and a work of literary criticism, The Gospel According to Bernard Shaw. Uh, one other <laughs> additional thing is that he has a character uh, that, that he wrote a series of short stories about called Simon If. Uh, his fiction's terrible. <laughs> Uh, just, he's not a good prose stylist at all. Uh, he would, he would only ever use the, the prose to proselytize Thelema mm-hmm. and his ideas. Um, the first novel is about to come out in like five years from where we are in the timeline. I don't know when the Simonist stories were published, but, um, I could look it up real quick. Uh, but his Simonist stories, uh, are like, if Arthur Conan Doyle was a Thelemite, like... <sighs> He he solves the on, but yeah. yeah oh yeah. good so I've got yeah right so now I have a good instinct for this right publication history the Simon if stories were written during a visit to New Orleans in December 1916 primarily as a means of alleviating Crowley's financial hardships the mystic was verging mm-hmm. on bankruptcy a result of his lifestyle and extravagant self publishing while having never earned a wage. <laughs> He's like the, the original neat. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the yeah. initial collection, yeah, f- freighter neat. Um, the individual collection, <laughs> the initial collection of six stories, which Crowley penned would be labeled the scrutinies of Simon if, and it's if with two F's, mm. um, Crowley mm. would later write 12 more stories under the title Simon if in America, six stories as Simon if abroad and two final stories as Simon if psychoanalyst. Uh, and they were published, mm. published in 1917, 1918, uh, under the pseudonym Edward Kelly, presumably a nod to Edward Kelly, the Elizabethan alchemist and Enochian magician. Uh, Who he was a know, reincarnation of. Right. And Simon if, if also... Is it, I wonder if it, it, if it is if, or because IFF, in, mm. in logic and philosophy, that's an abbreviation for if and only if. It's, it's yes. a biconditional logical connective. Like, is it supposed right. to be... You know, yes, that could be. I yes, that's yeah, that's that's what he means. Yeah, right. He, it's a little pun. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it's like Simon says and all this. Uh, mm. That character would appear in Moonchild. I mean, he basically wrote uh, detective stories, right? To stories typically revolve in, around an apparently unsolvable crime, which is eventually untangled by Ifs magical and psychological logic. Crowley explained the method of crafting a Simon If story in simple terms. Think of a situation as inexplicable as possible, then to stop up all the chinks with putty and having satisfied myself with no explanation, that no explanation was possible to make a further effort and find one. So basically it's you, mysteries that require magic to be solved. Uh, and it was a- Arnaki. What's up? Thomas Karnacki, right? There, there are mm-hmm. fictional occult detectives. He didn't invent mm-hmm. this either. I mean, William mm-hmm. Hodgson has Karnacki, the ghost finder, right? Yeah. He's an occult detective. There are quite a few of these, actually. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. still a popular yeah. kind yeah. of 
um, form, right? You have, mm-hmm. oh, we're gonna we're gonna consult the uh, the, the seer or whatever, yeah, yeah the occult, yeah, or yeah. the um, the psychic is gonna help us find, you know, solve the murder, mm-hmm. blah blah. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. Anyway, uh, so he's dabbling in fiction. He would write two novels later. The first one's Moonchild, and then the second one's Diary of a Drug Fiend. Uh, and oh no, Diary of a Drug Fiend, then Moonchild. Uh, I'll talk Moonchild's about them coming up, isn't it? Uh, Moonchild's 29. Um, okay. the thing about, the thing about his prose is that he just cannot help himself, but exposit and bring in his, his cult and his ideas. He's one of these novelists who. It's like a monomania. Yeah. He's not, a, he's not writing the novel for your sake, <laughs> like, or he's not writing the novel to sort of. <laughs> It, 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 it's like it's like it's propaganda hum- yeah it's like yeah the, yeah. the diary of a drug, drug fiend is very interesting because it is a candid account of drug addiction and his method for how he got himself out of it so it is still kind of germane to people today like if you're struggling you could do worse than like spend some time with this novel and it's very much about making a magical diary that tracks your your addictive behavior and using methods to break out of it, including it, like cutting is one of the things that he would would recommend. I don't recommend that at all to anybody, No, but you know how people will maybe take a rubber band. It's a displacement um, behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Take a rubber band when you have a a craving, snap Mm -hmm. yourself, try to do, you know, reassociate. Have and train yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That kind of thing. So in any event, you know, and I personally like Moonchild, I think Moonchild is sort of, um, I have a bit of a nostalgic affection for that novel because I read an awful lot of Crowley at university when I should have been reading Wittgenstein. But hey, I turned out okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to keep going. In 16 and 17, in addition to Richardson, Crowley was also magically and sexually involved with Gerda Maria von Kotick, magical names The Owl, Luna, a German prostitute and radical socialist organizer Crowley dubbed the Angel of Revolution awesome find uh (laughs) stephanie as well as anna catherine miller magical name the dog so it seems like in this period in america these magic he's He's picked up animal names for for the the magical partners i don't know if Mm -hmm. that's maybe something he decided to do in america or not but yes he's busy you gotta be a you gotta be a little bummed if you get the dog as your (laughs) magical name yeah but loyal dogs are loyal there's doggy style or they can also be yeah, and they can also be, um, you know, uh, fierce. I'm thinking of um, Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog. That's true. You know, this yeah. sort of yeah. thing. You know, yeah. the Dominicans, yeah. the, the dogs of, of Christ the hounds. That's true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. All right. In December, he moved to New Orleans, his favorite U.S. city. That doesn't surprise me one bit. One bit. Before and the the most haunted place I've ever stayed was an Airbnb in New Orleans. Um, I remember that. You just said oh, talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Oh yeah. But uh, he spent February 1917 with evangelical Christian relatives in Titusville, Florida. <laughs> oh, God. What? <laughs> Returning to New York City, he moved in with artists. This is why I'm so glad. I know we're going, we're going, we're in episode, we're in hour five already. Uh, I'm so glad we're going long because I've consumed it, a lot it's of just relentless. Crowley. Yeah, but it's, there's just so much that people don't know and, and everybody kind of, trods the same ground when they cover him yeah. and we're skimming so, yeah we're skimming it, like, right. <laughs> there's more right. there is more <laughs> where yeah. this came from he moved he, returning to new york city he moved in with artist and aa member leon engers kennedy in may okay there's a kennedy learning of his mother's death 
After the collapse of the fatherland, the German paper he was writing for, possibly as a double agent, Crowley continued his association with Virick, who appointed him contributing editor editor in arts of arts journal The International. Crowley used it to, to promote Thelema, but it soon ceased publication. Uh, he then moved to the studio apartment of Roddy this is Minor. Roddy Minor. Who, who's Roddy she, Minor? She's, she, I, I mentioned her before. She, she's a chemist in a pathology lab, right? Um, she, she was, um, you know, into magic as well. She had a, a variety of magical names. Eve, um, he called her the camel, uh, you know, it's a magical name, be, you know, quote, because she carried me through the desert of my life, right? So he, I'm glad it wasn't, it wasn't he, like a hump joke or something. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a you know double encounter there. I don't know. Yeah, but, there may uh, have been. He's involved with a, a a group of women at this time. He's with Roddy Minor, you know, um, and there are these other women on the edges. You know, one Eva Tangue, she's Scorpion One, right? She was a vaudeville star. Then there's this Russian immigrant, this woman from uh, Odessa, Marie Lavrov, uh, she's Scorpion Two. And then there's Dorothy Troxell. She's a musician. Um, she's called uh, 333 or 888. And, and there's Elsa Link, and she's Scorpion 4. I'm guessing Dorothy was maybe also Scorpion 3, but I couldn't find that anywhere. So all of these women, they're, they're in, I mean, and I should mention about Roddy Minor. She's a chemist in a path lab, but she, apparently she was also a registered pharmacist, so she would have had access to drugs, which is always helpful. Yeah, um, and she became a scarlet woman at, at this time and, and a you know, close partner. And all these people together, they're involved in this series of rituals. No, and I'm going to mispronounce this. I am so sorry to any Thelemites who are listening. Uh, the <laughs> Amalantra work, Amalantra working, I think it's called. And this is these ceremonial sexual magic rites that he, they got some furnished rooms in Central Park West. And what they were trying to do is to they were in communication, they thought, with this intelligence called Lam. And Crowley thought it was extraterrestrial, that it was what we would call an alien. And they were trying to get it to manifest physically, right? And so through these, these um, rituals, really Roddy Minor was acting as a kind of medium during these, these rituals. They're really, really interesting. And I believe they're published, yeah, it's um, uh, what, Liber 97, the Melantra working. So you can read it if you want. It's it's fascinating stuff. There's even a sketch that he did. Of, of yeah, there's being. a drawing. Crowley ha Crowley has a drawing of of a gray. That, it a looks gray. like a gray alien. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty weird. Mm, very interesting. Well, yeah. so yeah, yeah. he <laughs> in in 1918. Crowley went on a magical retreat in the wilderness of Esopus Island on the Hudson River, which is north of Poughkeepsie. It's sort of north of West Point in that area. That's some of the most beautiful country in the world. Here he began to trans uh, translation of the Tao Te Ching, the holy text of, well, holy, it's like the primary text of Taoism. Um, uh, painted dilemmic slogans on the riverside cliffs, and he later claimed experienced past life memories of being gay, Schwan, Pope Alexander VI, Alessandro Cagliostro, and Eliphas Levi. Uh, he took up painting as a hobby, exhibiting his work at the Greenwich Village Liberal Club. I would hope the Liberal Club. I don't think the conservatives are taking him. Uh, and, and attracting the attention of the New York <laughs> evening uh, world. With the financial assistance of sympathetic Freemasons, Crowley revived the Equinox for the first issue of Volume 
three, known as the Blue Equinox. He spent the middle of uh, 1919 on a climbing holiday in Matok before returning to London in December. In these years, Crowley was preoccupied with establishing an American OTO temple. He looked to Detroit, where Brad is, which also played a central mm-hmm. role in his publication goals at the time. Why Detroit? Albert Winslow Ryerson, general manager of Universal Bookstores, Inc. Ryerson was an active Mason interested in esoteric philosophy and Crowley's work. They met in 1918 and came to publishing agreements. Ryerson had a love affair with Bertha Almira Bruce, Billy, an independent woman who endorsed sexual freedom. Proprietor of a rooming house, she was the finan- uh, financial angel of the publishing venture, loaning money to help with their projects. We all need one of these. On Crowley's vi- yes. uh, visits to Detroit. Sugar mama. That's <laughs> it. He shared Bertha with Ryerson. In every sense. <laughs> uh, known as Bruce of the OTO, she was priestess of the, the Detroiters Gnostic Mass, uh, and we will come back to her. So, hey, there you go, Brad. You got OTO connections going back over 100 Apparently, years in yeah. your fair bird. Well, man, it was it was hopping in, in Detroit in 1918, too. Mm, it was a different yeah. place. Oh, called labor movement it. and everything? Yeah. Well, yeah, and then just the, there was money here, and mm-hmm. it was the Paris of, of, Hope. of the U.S., there was yeah. hope. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what we have now. Uh, nostalgia. Not hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Something. Yeah. And I'm not picking on Detroit there, there, Brad. Um, <laughs> no, this uh, is a broader yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. Broader problem. Um, 1918 spring in New York, Crowley met a Brooklyn school teacher named Leah Hersig. Uh, magical name Soror Alostriel, the ape of Toth. Crow- Crowley said the she, last. She's important. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, the last of the officers in my initiation, right? So they meet in spring. I think he, you know, I forget it's a social event or something. They sort of meet in passing and she, you know, kisses him on the cheek sort of thing. And then in January, they meet again and they immediately fall into bed, right? And commence this really intense sexual relationship, right? And very shortly thereafter, he consecrates her as his scarlet woman again. And she held that position for five years, Right, so she sticks around for quite a while, and by the next Christmas, he's back in England, and she's pregnant with his child. So this is the next uh, kid coming, but he's he's really preoccupied with her and with this pregnancy. And at, this is the time he's, he's you know increasingly he's into Taoism. He's consulting the I Ching on like a near daily basis, and he's always writing it down in the diaries. And uh, get a sense there's a kind of change going on with him at, at, at this point, right? There's another child on the way and he does, there are hints that he seems to have been trying to be a better partner, a better person this time. So for instance, 1920, he leaves for Paris, right? He has to leave her, he heads off. But when he arrives the next day, he writes in his diary, quote, don't do mean things, try big ideas, but stay in one place, get government job, stick to Leah. Oh, right. That is you so, know, be be a decent dude, sort of. That is right? so heartbreaking. That breaks yeah. my heart. Listen, there's a part I gotta, of him that wants to try. Yeah, I want to I, because I know what comes next. I want to read this again. Yeah, Crowley writing to himself. This is breaking my heart a little bit. Don't do mean things. Try big ideas. Stay in one place. Get government jobs. Stick to Leah Crowley. This is his moment on the cross where he mm-hmm. he thinks I should be a normie. For one mm-hmm. minute, yeah, yeah, and, and there's yeah. there was no way it was ever going to happen. No, but it was that never is happen, you know? that is hard. But the impulse was there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he, he she already had a son from a three year old, mm-hmm. a toddler from a previous relationship. Um, they're following, 
to, to Paris, right? Took a little bit longer to get there, but he heads on the 10th to, to meet them, right? Um, despite this, the next month, about six weeks later, his magical diaries mention Shumi. Who is Shumi? Shumi is Augustine the Net Fro Shumway, aka Isabella Fro. She is, quote, the second concubine of the beast. So, yeah, you know. He needs two of them now? He needs two of them now, right? <laughs> so, this moving around, what's going on here, right? You know, a fortnight after this, right? Uh, uh, for Leah Hersig gives birth. And this is the birth of Anna Leah, right? She's born at Fontainebleau near Paris, for, you know, between 11 and 11.15 in the morning. And Crowley wrote, quote, her general symbol is 41, earth of water, sun. It means diminution. One of the most obscure hexagrams of the Yi. But it might be read her mother's daughter. However, she has my mouth. <laughs> the, the birth was fairly easy. Um, Nanette was present. So they're aware of each other. They're all living together, right? It's like a proto-commune at this point. And her son from a previous relationship, Howard, he's three. He wants to name Anne-Lee, this young, this new baby, um, Poupée, right? The French word for a doll. She was very tiny and doll-like, right? And they went with it. Were, okay, so that's the name for domestic abuse. So they call her Poupée. Um, Howard's father had been killed in a, in a motoring accident. So a month later, Leah and Poupe and, and, and Crowley, they travel from Fontainebleau into Paris proper. And the two of them, you know, mother and child, they head off to London. He's going to Marseille and, he, you know, Nanette is with him. And then from there, they're going to, to Naples. There's a reason for this trip. This isn't just, okay, thanks for the kids. See you later. He, he, this is the inception of a really big plan, right? We get a hint of this the next month in his diary. He notes certain local gods whom I praise one and all without the least conceivable omission directed me this very first morning to the Villa Santa Barbara. This is in Sicily. Okay. This is a, a house, a little place. There's still the ruins of it that you can see. And if you, you Google it, you will find it online. Nanette was with him. This is a place where he is going to establish the Abbey of Thelma. Right. So he's got this religion founded, you know, that back in Cairo, a disembodied voice dictated, you know, the book of the law to him. He's the founding document of his religion. He's not sure how to proceed. But then many years later, he's going to establish this place. He's found a house in Sicily that it can be a temple and a, a magical school and a place where people can, you know, come and sort themselves out. And it'll be a commune. You know, it, it's crumbling, but you can. You can go and check it out if you want. I'm surprised nobody has bought it and tried to secure it. Apparently, like restore it. Apparently, the, the locals have just, they think it's cursed. And they I, completely I can't imagine it. why. Yeah. I can't imagine why, right? Mm. So residents, they were supposed to, okay, you come here and you dedicate yourself to this work of manifesting your true will. Now, an interesting bit here. I, I can't help but wonder, he seemed to have had this idea for the Abbey from very early on. whether consciously or subconsciously i'm not sure but there's an interesting parallel here okay um francois rabelais he writes this is you know 16th century he writes gargantua and pantagruel great work i highly recommend it okay he probably crowley probably read him but mentioned in, in that book okay there's an abbey of thelem and also this phrase do what thou wilt crops uh, up now hmm. Frowley may have read this from early, but, you know, I, I think there there's Walter Besant and James Rice when Crowley was three, 
in London, they published this novel, The Monks of Telema, okay, that borrows from these. And, and Crowley's written about how when he was a kid and his mother wouldn't let him read anything about the Bible, he used to sneak into the bathroom with these like pulp novels and stuff. He was secretly reading junk fiction. He was reading, you know, novels and everything. So he might have come across these concepts through this novel, or he might have later come across it through, through Rabelais, right? But regardless, the idea of an abbey of the land and the idea of do what thou wilt precedes Curly, something that crops up in, in literature, okay? This, in Rabelais, the Abbey of Thelem is a mixed house. So you have monks and nuns living together. They've got a pool, there are maids, no clocks. Only physically be beautiful people are welcome here, okay? You have to be beautiful to be a member of this abbey to take orders here. And there's a sign on the gates, you can't come in if you're a hypocrite, if you're a bigot, if you're a judge, if you're a clerk, if you're a lawyer, if you burn heretics, all the nasty people keep out, there will just be beautiful and decent and tolerant people here, right? And they will live according to one rule, do what thou wilt. So Rabelais, he, he wrote, quote, all their life was regulated, not by laws, statutes or rules, but according to their free will and pleasure. They rose from bed when they pleased, drank, ate, worked, slept when fancy seized them. Nobody woke them. Nobody compelled them either to eat or drink or to do anything else, whatever. So it was that Gargantua has established it. Gargantua is a giant in the novel and he establishes this abbey. Okay. So it was that Gargantua had established it. In their rules, there was only one clause. Do what you will, because people who are free well-born, well-bred, and easy and honest company have a natural spur and instinct which drives them to virtuous deeds and deflects them from vice, and this they called honor. When those same men are depressed and enslaved by vile constraint and subjection, they use this noble quality which once impelled them freely towards virtue to throw off and break the yoke of slavery, for we always strive after things forbidden and covet what is denied us. I mean, that sounds right up Curly's Abbey. And it also sounds very much like these undercurrents of a telema. So I, I'm thinking these, even the name, this seems to, and I don't know if it's a conscious stealing, it may very well be, or it may be something half remembered from his childhood reading mm. or something of this Abbey of, well, the name, mm. the lemma, mm. the Abbey of Thelem, yeah. the do what you will, right? He's borrowing. Fascinating. Fascinating. I well, had no idea. We've crossed another Rubicon here maybe the final mm -hmm. one, which is moving somewhere remote and mm -hmm. setting up your, your compound. That's, mm -hmm. that's what this is. Uh, and it would end, it would end poorly. Badly. But yeah. first we have, uh, and, and Stephanie, I'm going to read this, uh, Crowley writing about the routines of the Abbey. Uh, I've been thinking over the question of the routine of the Abbey, both as to daily life and, and as to disciples. I want a minimum of things to disturb and at the same time enough to breed order, daily life. One, Alastriel, Leah Herzig, to proclaim, proclaim uh, the law on waking. Two, adoration of Ra. They're going to adore the sun, right? Three, and again, this is 1920, okay? <laughs> this is not California mm -hmm. 1964 or yeah. upstate New York uh, yeah. in 1966. This is, uh, this is Sicily in Italy, 1920. Three, grace before breakfast at 7 a.m. Four, ditto dinner, noon. Five, adoration of raw. Six and seven, ditto supper at six. Uh, eight, ritual work for newcomers. First week, for newcomers. First week, one, three days hospitality. Two, one day silence. Three, three days instruction. Four, the magical oath. Followed by four weeks silence and work. Silence and work. 
going back, that sounds a little bit like his boarding school, doesn't it? He's setting up his own boarding mm-hmm. school. Uh, mm-hmm. Six weeks. Yeah. Five, one day's instruction. Six, six days vision. Seventh and ninth weeks. Uh, seven, three uh, weeks silence and work. Tenth week. Eight, uh, one week's instruction and repose. Eleventh and thirteenth weeks, nine as seven. This makes one quarter. At the end, the survivor revises the whole period and takes new counsel and oath accordingly. But no routine can be appointed for this further period. All will depend on what seems advisable. He further writes that the Hmm. rising sun is raw. The Thelemites greeted the sun at sunrise, noon, sunset, and midnight. At each station, the sun god has a different name. Uh, I mean, like. Just, yeah, this is funny. And yet, is it a good plan to develop the scheme for exploiting uh, Chefalu as a tourist resort, etc.? He wonders, um, investigating <laughs> the idea with the, the I Ching. He's a grifter. Crowley, Crowley at yeah, this point, yeah. is he's burned through the money. He's He wants to turn to yeah. grift a little bit. Throughout all this, he's creating mm-hmm. visual art, uh, painted a big cunnilingus canvas. Uh, Stephanie, do you know much about this? I, know, I have looked and I'll think about it. Um, I okay. just noticed that he, he notes this. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't yeah, know what okay. it refers to. I can yeah, imagine. Yeah, he's musing on the tarot, considers starting a press. He practices scrying, sort of seeing, seeing uh, what, how would you describe scrying? Seeing someplace. Gazing into, yeah, like yeah. a reflective surface or something, mm. usually like a mirror or, or mm. a stone or you can use a bowl of water as a way yep. of seeing visions. Yeah, he considers buying a house in Palermo, writes about drug use. So he's getting into the diary of a drug fiend. On the last day of the month, he discusses the various women he loved. It would be a reflective, introspective period of Crowley's life. But that was all to come. A few days after he first arrived in Sicily, the rest of his family joined him. He writes... uh, uh, he wrote on April 14th of 1920, Leah and, and Poupe arrived in the course of the afternoon. I was too glad for words, though Poupe is quite sick. Poor baby girl. I think goat's milk that fed Jupiter may help her. Keeps writing. I'm very anxious about Poupe. Her health is not very good. She seems to pick up here in Sicily very well. She seemed to. I think we've been poisoned. I know I have. Mm-hmm. We've sent for a doctor for Poupe. Mm. Will Poupe grow up to be a big girl? Oh. Two days later, we are desperate about Poupe. I never liked the diminution symbol, and she is literally wasting away. She can't digest any food, so she's already a little girl, and she's wasting away. Mm. And then he writes on May 12th. On May 12th of that year, Baphomet, Frater Perturabo, <laughs> Megatherian, the great D666, the wickedest man in the world, mused in his diary. And I love my little Poupe, and I'm glad I wired to Naples to get Allenbury, Allenbury's gripe water for her. But it was all for naught. <laughs> Crow, Crowley's little Poupe never did grow up to be a big girl. She died on the 14th of October, uh, 1920, two days after his, uh, his birthday. The 26th <laughs> of the next month, uh, would see the birth also at Chefalu uh, of Lula Astart Panthea, Crowley's daughter with Nanette Shimwe, the second concubine. Lula did grow up. We're going to go out of time here a little bit. She was raised in the USA from the thir- uh, from 1930 or 31 by Nanette's older sister. In 1940, then by going the name Louise, she uh, married a man named Virgil Mueller. They had four children, including the jazz pianist Eric Mueller, but they divorced in 1970. She died in Alameda County, California, USA, November 20th, 2014. <laughs> so we're 
We're wow. not that far away from this. Lula had been predeceased yeah. by her half sister Lola Zaza, Crowley Hill. Uh, Lola from the strip wife, Rose, yep, the one who from survived, the first right? Right. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. She's not well documented early on, right? She seems to have been raised by her maternal uncle, and she lived until 1990. She died on the 9th of March that year at Battle Hospital in Reading, and she didn't. She's this is a daughter who denounced her father in adulthood. She right, refused right. to see him, even when he begged. Right? Um, she, her life was pretty quiet. She seems to have been an educator, or maybe a, a governess. In 34, she married this guy, Frank Hill, and the next year she had her own daughter, Elizabeth. So that's Crowley's, you know, first grandchild. It doesn't seem that he ever met the kid. Yeah, yeah. And we we talked about her before. So this is the half-sister of the woman we just mentioned. So we had children mm-hmm. living into the 90s and then all the way to 2014, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty wild. So now we have this actress, Jane Wolf, and I want to introduce her um she is an American actress. She's going to kind of get the last word on this episode in the near future. We're 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 moving along. We're not near the end of the 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 outline, but we're getting close. So I want to introduce um this woman. So in 1918, at the age of 43, the actress Jane Wolfe. This I think this is a good uh, example of Crowley's magnetism. How at this point he was pulling people from all over the world to him. Uh, she began corresponding with Crowley two years later, based on a correspondence. She gave up her career in Hollywood to join Crowley at his Abbey of Thelema at Chefalu. She lived there from 1920 until 1923. Join my cult. Move to Italy. We've <laughs> got a, I've got a compound. You're a, a 43-year-old actress. Come on, come on over. She undertook, uh, she took the magical name <laughs> Soror Estai. She undertook various practices, including yoga, dharana, and pranayama, breath breath yoga, of which she kept a detailed record, which was later published by the College of Thelema in Northern California as the Chefalu Diaries. It was the custom of the Abbey of Thelema in Chefalu, where Wolf came to stay, to allow aspirants three days as a guest as an aid in general orientation. I can imagine you show up from Hollywood to... I mean, please. After that, they were required to work on their attainment or leave. Wolf had come there to receive some training in yoga and in magic and to discover her true will. This purpose pulled her through all of the shattering happenings because some bad things go, things go down at Chefalu here. <laughs> Wolf discovered the little town of Chefalu, which was only about a half a mile from the Villa Santa Barbara, which had become the Abbey of Thelema. It was on a slope of the mountains uh, lying south of Chefalu and was situated in an olive grove. The path to the town offered endless variety as it wound down among rocks and trees. Kind of feel like Crowley would be comfortable comfortable there, right? It sounds like it's kind of mountainous and rocky. Um, the Abbey residents spent many hours climbing it for exercise and meditation. There you go. Observing its overall shape, lofty peak high in the sky and its large base. Crowley was especially fond of the south face of the outcropping and liked its steep and gently sloping sides. During her stay at Chefalu, Wolf often went mountain climbing with Crowley, who taught it. On the 4th of December, 1921, Crowley gave Wolf a, Wolf a certain talisman, which had a seal of, of the spirit Marbos engraved on it. Crowley's task was, or a Wolf's task was to meditate on it. Do we know what the spirit Marbos is? Ah, Wikipedia coming through. It is a, ooh, it's a, a demonology. Marbos or Barbos <laughs> is a demon described in the, are you calling it the Goetia? Go, Goetia? Yeah, we're, we're going to, we will discuss that in the after dark. 
Okay. Yeah. Coming up right. after dark, artofdark.com, patreon.com slash artofdark, uh, dark pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, she, right. Uh, I want to go on a little more because there's, there Crowley, I want to give you an idea of what Crowley would put people through. In her diaries of that period, she records that after a few attempts, she made a contact with the spirit of the talisman and spoke to him often. Okay, whoa. Her daily routine consisted of performance of liber resh, which was said four times a day with all occupants of the abbey participating unless they were ill. The abbey occupants occupants were aroused at 6 a.m. I bet they were aroused at 6 a.m. every morning by the beating of the (laughs) tom-tom. For a while, Wolf found this very difficult as it seemed a shock to the system. The work she had been assigned usually took until after 10 p.m., so she had only six hours of sleep. Her body demanded more than this, and many many times she had to succumb succumb or have a nap during the day. After waking up, Wolf uh, spent 20 minutes or so in her asana, and after that, she imagined the yellow square of the tatwas, which are the... um, the tattvas, the sort of Indian symbols that you can meditate on uh, for another 20 minutes with varying results. Following that came visualization exercises and then breakfast. This same regimen was repeated after dinner uh, about 7.30 p.m., starting around 10 p.m. of the evening. The after-dinner discussions with Crowley sometimes aided Wolf in understanding of the tasks of her degree. During her magical retirement on the beach near Chefalu, which lasted for a month, Wolf started a sauna meditation at 30 minutes each the first week, increasing it to two hours during the last week. Two hours of asana meditation is hardcore. During the last week yes. of her retreat, Wolf added a number of new asanas to her yoga practice, which she performed daily in the nude on the beach. <laughs> her other exercises consisted of going from the tent into the ocean for swims in order to relax. Wolf worked with Crowley's thalemic system of training in Cheflu for three years and emerged from those years with a degree of attainment, having survived Crowley's ordeals. She later worked as Crowley's uh, personal representative in London and Paris. I think it was just so important to stop and like break down like what this is like. It's like a hippie retreat. It's like somebody it it's that's what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's very I new mean, age. It's very what we would call now new age. Super new age yeah. doing this in, in Italy. So in 1921, he declared himself Ipsissimus which means beyond the gods. And this is a little nerd out moment. Mm. I looked up, you know, Crowley Ipsissimus and I landed on, what is it? They're fighting about this still, I think. Right. Yes. They're still fighting about it. Ongoing discussion. Yeah. I'm on the, I'm going to put this in the chat for y'all. People who are are listening, you could simply uh, Google or look up, uh, you know, was Crowley an Ipsissimus? And like, there's mm. literally you got to look at this website. It's hilarious. It, it's the Alistair Crowley Society, and hey, shout out to the Alistair Crowley Society. I I, I think your website's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it, but it's they it got this like banner. It's all red, and and there's Crowley on the right, and it's like literally was Crowley and Ipsissimus, and they are still debating it. Um, and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I just think it's amazing. I I love it. Um. Yeah. I mean, on the 23rd of May, 1921, <laughs> you know, well at Chefalu, Crowley undertook the Ipsissimus initiation, noting afterwards in his diary that as a god goes, I go. And somebody made that post on uh, oh my the 18th of September, <laughs> 2007. We're still, so just a little bit of an aside. Right. So, okay. Now we got to get into this, the scandal at the Abbey. 
This is super important. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you want to, Stephanie, do you want to pick this, this up? This is, this is wild. Okay. So this, okay. I mean, so he th- has people just, coming just, and going. Yeah. Real quick. Let me just say, this is what sets up the wickedest man in the world. This is what yes. sets the papers, the tabloids in England, which are unlike anywhere else in the world. Absolute mm-hmm. savagery They're a force to this unto day. themselves. They really There's are. There's nothing, yeah. Americans yeah. have no idea. Uh, in any case, oh, this is what this is what sets that up. So Stephanie, take it away. Uh, yeah. So I mean, he has people coming and going back and forth from the Abbey. You know, there are students coming, uh, new people coming in all the time. This is one fellow, Robinson Smith. Right? He's a retired con- concert agent. Um, Crowley met him through someone else, through Austin Harrison. Right? And he paid this fellow's. Um, you know, he, he paid the fare to over coming over to. Um, Cephalu, you know, he's got all these people coming and going. And then there's this couple, Raoul and, and Betty, right? They, they visit in Paris, and they travel to the Abbey, and they arrive in November 1922. And, you know, the next day, this is late November, 27th November, Crowley assists Raoul and Betty to climb the Great Rock there. Right. So they're mm. they're climbing in the next few weeks, they're hanging out, they're studying magical work, they perform the lesser banishing ritual every day, they do some some vision work, and, and Ralph's showing, you know, he's doing really well. He's showing great progress here, right? He acts as high priest during ritual work and he becomes a probationer of, of the AA, taking a magical name, Frater Alt, right? Magic light. And this is on the, the solstice, right? Very interesting. Now wow. Betty did not enjoy this she didn't like the abbey it's dirty she didn't get on with carly she didn't get on with nanette and so one day betty and raul they go for a long walk this is you know in the countryside they visited a nearby monastery and you know it's hot in sicily and now carly had warned them there are natural springs there don't don't drink from them okay there this is not good water you know i assume they had a well where they had clean water or maybe they were collecting rainwater. i'm not sure of it but after in this out wandering around the countryside, you know, Rao was very thirsty and he drank from one of these springs. Now, he is struck by malaria, he's very weak. And, you know, then Leah returns from shopping in town. She finds she finds Crowley, Betty, Nanette, Jane, Raul, they're all assembled in the in the courtyard, and there is this vicious fight between Betty and Nanette. It's a massive over-the-top cat fight. And Crowley's taking Betty's side. Jane is just standing there. She's not saying anything. She's just listening. Raul is too sick to say anything. So finally, this Raul, it, it, Betty called Nanette a slut. This <laughs> is oh, how this got going. Okay. So this is, yeah. Anyway, things simmered down. The, you know, the beast arrives. He calls for discipline. Enough of this foolishness, right? And then going on a few days on, Betty leaves the Abbey and asks Raoul to send her passport. Now, Crowley found her reading a newspaper, which is something that was forbidden in the Abbey, which is something we see with these kinds of groups. Even Mm -hmm. now you come into this environment, you know, you sort of cut yourself off from the outside world a little bit. It's immersive. So she's gone. She heads to Palermo. Raoul writes to her, trying to get her to come back, Okay. He also wrote a letter to his parents, and she posted it, Betty posted it for him, and it explained that he is, he was quite sick, that he'd been for about 10 days suffering from, he said, malaria, right? And he had hmm. to get Betty to write this letter. 
the doctor, so they do have a doctor coming, he's giving him various things, but he's not getting any better at all. And even Betty herself was not feeling well, you're right. She, she was sick to her stomach. She wasn't really able to keep anything down. And they started to think there was something in the air or the water, just something about the place didn't agree with them. So Jane goes down to the nearby uh, village the next day. This is, we're in February now, to call on Betty. And then Leah Hersig turns up, you know, there's back and forth letters. It's, you know, heaps of details we, we won't get into. But eventually, Betty returns to the Abbey to be with, with Raoul, their partner. Then on Tuesday, the 13th of February, Crowley writes in his diary, he felt this current of magical force, heavy, black and silent, threatening the Abbey. Mm. And the next day, Raoul becomes much worse and they call for the doctor he diagnoses acute enteritis. So we thought he was he was suffering from malaria, but it seems to be something else entirely. It's so bad that Crowley sends off a telegram to Raoul's parents explaining how ill he is. And on the 16th of February, in the afternoon, Raoul Loveday, Frater Odd, he dies at the Abbey. Oh, they no. pack him swiftly into a coffin. This is about an hour after his death. Overnight, they play, oh God, they place the the coffin in an outhouse and Crowley stood there and kept vigil all night uttering prayers for this young fellow. And the next day, the Saturday, he's buried outside the Catholic cemetery in non-consecrated grounds. So they go to the Catholic cemetery in the perimeter and they, they bury him there. Crowley led the proceedings for, it's called a greater feast in Thelema. Betty, Jane Wolfe, Nanette, Leah, and, and Leah's little boy, a little older now, Howard, are, are all there. He He's reported as a, the first Thelemite to die in the Aeon of Horus. His parents, this is the, of course. If I may, hang on one second. This yeah. is the only funeral that Crowley would preside over. Uh, okay, huh. I did not know that okay. detail. And it's the first okay, funeral. Right. I'm just looking at Pergaraba right now. And uh, it's the first mm -hmm. funeral he had attended since his father died. I so, completely forgot wow. about that. Yeah, completely he's forgot about that section. This is that's all right. No worries. But yeah, you were saying so. His parents, Royal's parents, are not going to be happy. <laughs> they're not thrilled. They show up and they 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 um they want the body exhumed and they have it brought back to England where they rebury it. And after this, Crowley, I mean, the stress of this must have been unbelievable. Or maybe you know there is he, he has he himself gets sick, the fever. God only knows what this was. He retires to bed and he stays there for a month. So we Whoa. have, amidst all this chaos, people are coming, going to the Hollywood actress, they're flaking out doing new yoga on the beach. They're, you know, there's this couple coming, wandering to the countryside, drinking from springs they're not supposed to be drinking from. Someone dies, they bury him in unconsecrated ground. His parents have him, you know, dug up. This is after a whole series of letters back and forth, disputes about what is ailing him, you know, whether it's from drinking from the spring or, or if it's malaria or if it's enteritis, regardless, he's dead. The British yeah. press gets a hold of this. That an Englishman died in mysterious circumstances, they say, after a ritual during which he was said to have consumed the blood of a cat. So you can imagine what the UK tabloids were like with this. And and the fascist press and government in Italy, they, they were no better. So he's kicked out. The abbey's closed. Yeah. He, he's established this abbey. It's doing reasonably okay I, I guess and then it's just that's the end of it it's all, by Musso wow. Mussolini yeah. Mussolini yeah. kicks him out oh yeah. really yeah. yep oh wow so yeah, I'm yeah. gonna Mussolini's government kicks him out so I'm gonna right and there's there's a picture you can find I don't know if it's online but I'm looking at it in Perturabo 
an artist's conception of Betty May's account of a cat being sacrificed at the Abbey. And it's got big, chonky, crowley, and then some woman, you know, with a knife and a black cat and all sorts of weird in it. But it's in this kind of like, I don't want to say what's the style, art, art deco, sort of art nouveau, art nouveau style. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and they, huh. this is where he, he picked up. Uh, here are some of the headlines. Wickedest man in the world. Yep. A yeah, wizard of wickedness. The wickedest man in the world. King of depravity arrives. A man we'd like to hang. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, I, you know, to my to my knowledge, not that I've read all that extensively on him, you know, but I mean, I've read Perturavo, I've read, you know, some snippets, of some other biographies and things. I mean, there's no evidence that he's sacrificing animals. Mm. You know, certainly not. I'm not aware of him sacrificing a cat. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no. Uh, we'll we'll come back to that later. Um, I'm going to read this. Among those shocked by the news of Raoul's death was dramatist and producer Lance Sivaking, who had just written his novel, The Psychology of Flying, and was in his second year at Cambridge. Like other students, he and friends, his friends absorbed themselves in the newspaper accounts, trying to name Crowley's nameless rights and imagine his unimaginable horrors. Ultimately, all they managed was to revolt each other with images far more twisted than any Crowley or the press could suggest. Then, around Easter, students and perfect strangers began asking him, I say, do tell me about Aleister Crowley. Is he really as bad as they say? Steve King denied knowing Crowley to the disbelief of his interrogators. This mystified him until he discovered the diary of a drug fiend contained the line, I suppose everyone has read The Psychology of Flying by L.D. Gibbern Steve King on page 24. Although the passage explained the connection, he found the remaining text incomprehensible. It would be years before he thought of Crowley again. So uh, people, pe- Crowley's that famous. Now, he mentions you in his novel. Tell me about him. Go on, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just had a thought, you know, I, I mentioned a few seconds ago, you know, that I don't think he, pra- it's not true that he never practiced animal sacrifice. When he was in India, he sacrificed a goat in, in, as part of a Hindu <laughs> ritual. Um, but right. I mean, they're not killing cats, That's uh, not you know, at the practice. temple. This is not yeah. their practice, right? So this is just the British press being the the British press. I'm pretty sure he tried to get uh, one of the Scarlet women to fornicate with a goat at Chefalu. Yeah. Uh, So let's just be clear what we're dealing with here. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not for sure. I mean, he's not. um, Yeah, this was this was not just innocent. Yeah, it's not. It's not. not, Yeah, volleyball and knitting. No, he also had one of the rooms. <laughs> one of the rooms at the Abbey was known as the Nightmare Room, and it's oh, all God. the walls were painted with these really graphic and deliberately frightening murals. And as part of sort of the initiation process, he would spend time locked in there, sort of in in probably place, on right? on probably heavy on drugs. ten types of drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm so gonna I'm gonna read. Com- I'm not saying it's completely innocuous. I'm just saying no, not at all. No, (laughs) nothing we ever do on Art of Darkness is prescriptive. I certainly would not recommend you live like Crowley. This isn't an endorsement. Mm -hmm. And ditto, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando is, you know, the whole point is it's Art of Darkness. So uh, Art of Darkness. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Retweets are not 
endorsements. Um, but uh, right. so I'm gonna, yeah, after Raul, and this is from Leah Hersigs. Well, I'm going to read a couple things here, and then I'm going to start to blast through some of the bio because we're into a sixth hour now. Um, Are we really? New records. Yes. Well done. Yeah, by far. Yeah, it, had to be, it had to be done. Crowley wrote one of his most confronting poems, Leah Sublime, which has been called alarmingly obscene in her honor. Uh, in Leah, Crowley found an ideal magical partner. He called her vagina the Hersig patent vacuum pump. <laughs> that, oh listen, God. if good for oh you, Leah, good <laughs> job. If you got if you got the great beast saying that about you, you got something going on. <sighs> After yeah. Raul Loveday died from drinking contaminated water at Chefalu, Mary Butts reported in one of her journals about her sig of an unsuccessful attempt to induce a he-goat to copulate with her at the mm. Abbey of Thelema, emulating an ancient pagan ritual, an account corroborated, yeah. corroborated by Crowley himself in an unpublished passage in one of his diaries. So, yeah, had yeah. the... Yeah, had the yeah for sure, for yeah, sure. Right, right. She was the only witness to his uh, leveling up to the grade of Ipsissimus. Um, so, mm. yeah. In any case, so 1924, she stayed loyal to Crowley during money troubles, and he had some surgeries for his asthma. Uh, eventually, he broke it off. She wrote in her diary that his rasping voice so jarred me that I wanted to scream. Uh, probably from the asthma, but she did not abandon um, Thelema. Well, in any case, I'm going to get us back yeah. to the bio. Um, 1923, Mussolini, you know, the government expels Crowley. In France, Crowley meets uh, Chicagoan Dorothy Olson, uh, magical name Sora Astrid. Um, relationship with Hersig was becoming strained. She renounced her title uh, as Scarlet Woman. And Crowley immediately says, okay, Olsen, you're the Scarlet Woman. Can't, you know, mm -hmm. can't serial Scarlet Women here. Um, it was with Olsen that Crowley met Gurdjieff, uh, and English occultist and ceremonial magician Israel Regardi. Um, consulted yeah, with Olsen bef before going to meet Crowley. Yeah. yeah, as yeah. an occult yeah. practitioner, right? So okay. Yeah. All right. Well, and Brad, did we remind me? It's been so long. Did we do? Did we give the Crowley story uh, on uh, the Gurdjieff episode? At some episode? point, at some point, we it. talked about it. Yeah. yeah. Did, yeah did I? didn't like Crowley. Well, I I think uh, where is it? I'm going to find it. I think that we need to actually read the story uh, because it's two paragraphs and it's really funny. And I think it's really important that we, that we do it in this context. All right. So it's uh, Crowley knew the town. And, and if you haven't listened to the Gurdjieff episode, finish this, go back, listen to Gurdjieff. Similar ish guys. Um, Crowley knew the town of Fontainebleau. Well, in 1924, he had spent a tormented period, period there in an attempt to cure himself of heroin addiction. The Great Beast was a familiar figure in Paris expatriate circles, and C.S. Not, one of Gurdjieff's people, met him in the capital while himself staying in, at the Priory, which is um, Gurdjieff's uh, compound, basically, is the, the his school. Crowley's interest was aroused either by a general occult curiosity or by Gurdjieff's reputation as a specialist in curing drug addiction. And he soon afterward turned up at Fontainebleau, where was the object where he was the object of some amazement. 
I mean, this guy at this point too has been called the wickedest man in the world. He's, it's, you know, somebody died at his place in in Italy. To one of the inmates, the wickedest man in the world seemed overfed and inoffensive, with the exception of his almost colorless eyes, the antipodes to Gurdjieff's heavy gaze. The published accounts of Crowley at the Priory speak only of a brief visit and a vaguely sinister impression. Not records that Crowley spoke to one of the children present about his son, whom he was teaching to be a devil. Gurdjieff got and spoke to the boy, who thereupon took no further notice of Crowley. But the magician's visit was extensive and his confrontation with Gurdjieff of a more epic nature. Crowley arrived for a whole weekend and spent the time like any other visitor uh, to the Priory, being shown the grounds and the activities in progress, listening to Gurdjieff's music and his oracular conversation. Apart from some circumspection, Gurdjieff treated him like any other guest until the evening of his departure. After dinner on Sunday night, Gurdjieff led the way out of the dining room with Crowley, followed by the body of pupils who had also been at the meal. Crowley made his way toward the door and turned to take his leave of Gurdjieff, who by this time was some way up the stairs to the second floor. Mister, you go, Gurdjieff inquired. Crowley assented. You have been guest, a fact which the visitor could hardly deny. Now you go, you are no longer guest. Crowley, no doubt wondering whether his host had lost his grip on reality and was wandering in a semantic wilderness, humored his mood by indicating that he was on his way back to Paris. But Gurdjieff, having made the point that he was not violating the canons of hospitality, changed on the instant into the embodiment of righteous anger. You filthy, he stormed. You dirty inside. Never again you set foot in my house. From his vantage point on the stairs, he worked himself up into a rage which quite transfixed his watching pupils. Crowley was stigmatized as the sewer of creation, uh, was taken apart and trodden into the mire. Finally, he was banished in the style of East Lynn by a Gurdjieff in fine histrionic form. White-faced and shaking, <laughs> the great beast crept back to Paris with his tail between his legs. Now, that's one account. I think that's yeah. coming from the Gurdjieff right. side. I don't know. Right. I, I like that he inspires that amount of uh, curiosity and passion still to this day. And uh, the Gurdjieff yes, people are you not. You are the big. sewer of creation. I, that's a great insult. I was yeah, just thinking of that. Yeah, sewer yeah. of creation is a brilliant insult. I, we have an episode title. Alistair Crowley, the sewer of creation. <laughs> creation. Oh, perfect. Okay. All right. In the interest of time, I'm going to start blowing through some of this stuff. All right. So, yeah. There are other women. 1927, he meets Casimira Bass, born in Vienna. She's the wife of uh, Clevelander, John F. Bass. Last year. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, but the marriage may have been arranged to help her get citizenship. She resided in California and her husband in Chicago. Mm, it's kind of an I love Lucy thing taken to the extreme, different beds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they met when traveling in France. Crowley took her to dinner where he proposed marriage to her four times. He wanted to wed her the next day. Stunned, she asserted that she was heading to Poland but promised to return, and she did. She returned to Crowley in Paris in spring of 1928. They did not marry, but they were happy for a time. Crowley wrote, she is one of the most possible magical partners for me, and she is perfect. Already, despite the greatest difficulties, we have succeeded beyond all my hopes in awakening a current of creative energy of enormously high potential. Okay, briefly, that phrase, awakening a current of creative energy, that's what he's about. All right? Mm -hmm. Love him, hate him, not sure, tuned out because we're going into... (laughs) Hour six. <laughs> like, no, and, and where, like, it is whatever you think about Crowley, it is impossible 
to deny that he had energy. He this mm. dude produced. Right. And we're at a point now where he's he's run out of the trust fund money and he's still Yeah. Yeah. So he is yeah. uh, what they quarreled over. I mean, she he wasn't looking for, you know, a, a over the top standard of living, but he was living like an artist, right? <laughs> you know, to put it mm-hmm. mildly. And it was yeah. just, I mean, she's a mature woman. It's just, I, you know, I'm not 18 anymore. <laughs> I'm not living in, like this. Uh, and so they're, they're quarreling over sort of, you know, the, the state of the household and money and stuff. And, and yeah, the bloom was off the rose. Right. All right. They, uh, so they, yeah, yeah they that's the end of that. Israel Regardi comes to work for him as his secretary. He takes, you know, the magical name, the serpent. He's a, I mean, he'd be a good episode in and of himself. There, you know, things are breaking down between Crowley and Casimira. You know, um, she seems to have been skimming money off the publication accounts and so on. And um, but she didn't really quite have the guts to to tell Crowley she was leaving right out. Um, she goes out one night. You know, Regardi was quite retiring. And Crowley was always urging him to see the sights in Paris. And, and you know, he was reluctant, but then he persuaded them one night to go to the movies together. Go, you know, go out, blow the stink off yourselves, enjoy yourselves. And when they're at the movies, she um, confesses to Israel, I'm leaving Crowley. You you tell him. I'm not telling him. You tell him I'm leaving. Um, and when he did, Crowley just said, okay, he shrugged. And in his diary wrote, Casimira bolted. And, and that was it. You know, wow. he's gone. Wow. Okay. He, he didn't really care. He probably uh, saw he it coming. He doesn't have any trouble finding somebody else, you know. No, He's, well, the next month yeah. he has this other woman, uh, Nicaraguan, uh, Maria Teresa Ferrari de Miramont, right? They became sexual and magical partners. But this is in France. She doesn't have papers to stay, right? She's issued the refuse de séjour, right? So an order of expulsion. So now these this is two countries that have kicked him out in a row because he, you know, he... He's going to, right? Because his his reputation, he's a druggie. There's rumors still that he's a German spy. So France decides mm. to kick him out too. They're all together. So Crowley and Maria and Israel, they all leave. But she also didn't have the documents to go to England with him. So when they're in Leipzig at the British consul, he marries her. Okay. She became his second wife and the latest scarlet woman. And they return to England. And this is when he publishes um, Moonshild, I think, right? Isn't this when they get back in England? Now that he, Kevin, that they, they he published it. Yeah, uh, let me look up the exact time for uh, Moonchild. Yeah, and this is this is a you know if you're going to read one novel by Crowley, uh, you know maybe this one. Uh, it says it's a 1917 novel, but it was first published in 1929. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So out it goes. <laughs> the, the the reviews are interesting. Aberdeen Press and Journal says. One of the most extraordinarily fantastic and attractive novels we have read. And the New Statesman says, possibly the author may know what this nonsense is all about. <laughs> we, we don't. <laughs> so, you know, well, and it's, it's on the, the yeah, and it's the account of like a protracted magical ritual uh, that mm-hmm. uh, that went on at the Abbey to give birth uh, to the the moon child, kind of almost like a Rosemary's Baby type thing, but maybe mm-hmm. not quite not quite as. Um, Sat- outright you gotta satanic. be ready for it right yeah. yeah yeah it's a very interesting kind of weird novel it gets across some of his philosophy of course he makes himself seem very grand and very outsized and heroic and uh saintly uh 
and uh, he describes his magical system and, and as all this magical warfare and everything, it's kind of goofy and not the prose is not great. The only reason to read it is because you're interested in Aleister Crowley. Mm. For sure. Okay. Yeah. So mixed, mm. mixed results on publishing. And on the personal front, it's not well. Maria, she's an alcoholic and she's, this This is a recurring theme with this woman. I don't know if they started out as alcoholics or if having a relationship she with Crowley turned you yeah. into an alcoholic, right? But she she was an alcoholic. She makes scenes in public. She accuse, accuses Crowley and, and his associates of trying to poison her. He says, well, look, you're, you're trying to, you're screwing everyone in sight. I mean, a bit of a double standard there. She did attempt to, <laughs> to seduce Israel. He has enough. He moves to Berlin without her. He just leaves her in London with no support. And when he arrives in Berlin, he finds this 19-year-old artist and model, uh, Hanny Jäger. And he takes her as his new scarlet woman, right? And her magical name, well, she's Anu sometimes, but she's also the monster. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They go to Portugal. Crowley's meeting, uh, you know, one of his fans there, Fernando Pessoa, I think you pronounce it, the, the poet. He translated Crowley and everything, right? So Hanny and, and Crowley, they're performing drug-fueled sex magic on the beach. And this is funny. It reminds me, remember with, um, you, you know, Rose, where he divorces her, citing his own adultery. He, he mm-hmm. writes to Maria, you had better get a man who will stand for your secret drinking and your scandalous behavior. You should get a divorce. Like, not me. I'm not going to file for divorce. You know, you might want to do this. It's a strange (laughs) of responsibility. She would later end up in a a institutionalized for alcoholism, but also delusions. You know, apparently, according to the records, she thought she was the daughter of the king and queen of England and that she was married to her brother. You know, he he never divorced her, though, because he had already Hmm. declared bankruptcy and he was scared of the financial repercussions if he divorced her. Yeah. Right. So she stayed institutionalized until she died 32 years later. So yeah, but we're 32 not 32 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we're not there. We're yeah. we're in. We're on. You know, he's having sex magic while high on a beach in, in yeah yeah in Portugal. So that's where we're <laughs> in the plot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. So, uh, what? Well, yep. Yeah. Are we at Berlin now? Uh, I not yeah. yet. We're almost there. Okay, we're, we're at get, the, get us to the Berlin, hysteria. and I'll pick, it, I'll pick it up when we get to Berlin. Okay, so all this is going on. They've only been in Portugal for like two weeks, <laughs> okay? Hani became hysterical. She's threatening to kill herself. They're, hotel, they're making such a fuss, like the people in the hotel are complaining. The hotel kicks them out. They go up the coast. They find a new hotel, okay? And as Crowley is registering for the room, Hani just takes off. She leaves. He finds her the next night, but she insists, no, I'm not doing this. I'm going back to Germany. And he was just incensed over this and he tries a magical right to to force her to change her mind but it didn't do anything so he goes on with his trip at first and then he decides he's going to fake his own death at the, the Bogota Inferno rock formation and Pessoa helped him with this the papers report on his mysterious disappearance and then a few weeks later he reappears in Berlin for the opening of his exhibition and I I don't know what happened to to Hanny some accounts say she committed suicide shortly after I have no idea mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah. All we're right. Now we're in Berlin and we're going to we're going to keep on moving. Um, so he emerges in Berlin for the opening of an exhibition of his art at a gallery. He meets a 36 year old divorcee, uh, socialist and businesswoman, Bertha Billy Bush. Remember her? Crowley had met her back in Detroit in 1918. 
Remember, this is this gets into that thing that Brad and I have kind of a theory now that there's really maybe only like fifty thousand people alive at a given time, and everybody else is just sort of. Like, <laughs> that's, it's a bit of a joke, but like Art of Darkness is just like characters reappear, and it's just very. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Uh, I don't really believe in the NPC yeah. thing, but there's something there's, to be said. There's for been like, like, yeah, there's been like five characters we've talked about so far that are going to show up in our nice Nin episode. That we're right, doing right. Yeah. It's just like yeah. these circles move. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's like the, it's like our pod, podcast party circuit, though. Like once you meet one of these people and what you go on one of these yeah. pods, they know this person. So it's not really that surprising. Um, Later in his notes, listening, uh, listing her as Scarlet, uh, w- listing his Scarlet women, he wrote of Billy delayed assumption of duties, hence made way for number seven. So he seemed to want her to be his Scarlet woman back in Detroit, but it hadn't worked then. Now she became his Scarlet woman. Curly found her highly arousing, raving about her in explicit statements. Their relationship was ridiculously violent. They often physically assaulted one another. She even stabbed him once. And at this point in the bio, I probably deserved it. I yeah. understand. <laughs> Uh, he continued to have affairs with both men and women while in Berlin and met with famous people like Aldous Huxley, who we'll have to do at some point, who is already experimenting with psychedelics, uh, though apparently Crowley introduced him to mescaline. Little thing, introduced the guy who wrote Brave New World mm-hmm. to mescaline, no big deal. Here Crowley also met <laughs> Alfred Adler. Uh, in January of 32, Crowley befriended the communist Gerald Hamilton and took him as a lodger. Although Hamilton, uh, or excuse me, through Hamilton, he was introduced to many figures within the Berlin far left. It is possible that he was operating as a spy for British intelligence at this time, monitoring the communist movement. So here he is in America during the Great War. Now he's in Berlin during the interwar, the, the interwar period between World War I and World War II, the Weimar period. Very interesting. Okay. 1932, five more pages left in the outline. Uh, 1932, Crowley returned to London. Uh, His relationship with Billy continued, but by 1933, she was unwell. Their relationship faded. Ultimately, she ran off with a boxer who reportedly forced her into prostitution. In London, Crowley met a 34-year-old woman named Evelyn Brooksmith, Pearl. She became the next Scarlet Woman. Like many of the others, she was a heavy drinker. It may be that this is what drew Crowley to these women, or they may have taken up drinking during the relationships. It's hard to say. I'm leaning towards Um, the latter, honestly. (laughs) Could be like a yes and thing. I think that, yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So here he he underwent uh, nasal surgery, I assume for the asthma. Um, In 32, he- yeah, it must have been. I don't know asthma. much about that. I'm and assuming cocaine, a yeah. of coke. Yeah, um, right. I actually, right. I do know what this refers to. He had to. Ha- I think he had to have his septum reconstructed at one point from the coke. Hmm. Oh, yeah. David Bowie did the same thing. All right. So <laughs> it was here in 32 that he was invited don't, don't, to be. I sh- was going to say, don't quote me on that, but I mean, I'm saying it on a podcast, but I might be wrong. But I think, I think that was also. People look that up. Don't assume I'm right. I'm probably wrong, but mm. <laughs> I think that's what it was. He was invited to be guest of honor at Foyle's Literary Luncheon, also being invited uh, by Harry Prince to a price to speak at the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. In need of money, he launched a series of court cases against people whom he believed had libeled him, some of which proved successful. Libel laws are very serious in the UK. They don't have the Second Amend- mm-hmm. Amendment. He gained much publicity for his lawsuit against Constable and Company for publishing Nina Hamnett's Laughing Torso, a book he claimed uh, libeled him by referring to his occult practice as black magic, but lost the case. The court case added to Crowley's financial problems, as in February of 1935, he was declared bankrupt. During the hearing, it was revealed that Crowley had been spending three times his income for several years. 
And this is Justice Swift in that um, libel case writing about it, the one he he didn't uh, win. I have been over 40 years engaged in, in the administration of the law in one capacity or another. I thought that I knew of every conceivable form of wickedness. I thought that everything which was vicious and bad had been produced at one time or another before me. I have learned in this case that we can always learn something more if we live long enough. I have never heard such dreadful horrible, blasphemous, and abominable stuff as that which has been produced by the man, Crowley, who describes himself to you as the greatest living poet. <laughs> he did not get on the side of the of the judge. Um, no, apparently not. No. Crowley noted that Evelyn Brooksmith had frequent visions and that two of them were psychically connected. He also claimed she exhibited signs of insanity, throwing tantrums when he slept with other women. <laughs> This woman's insane. Honestly, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Take my wife. Take my scarlet woman, please. Um, <laughs> he asserted that the aim of this relationship was to produce an heir. What Pearl thought about that, I cannot say. This is you writing, Stephanie, but it was not successful. Crowley began to distance from her uh, by December of 33, and she ultimately ended up in a mental asylum. So, again, this is a bit of that chicken the egg question, Pattern. right? Is he, is he attracted yeah. to women who end up in uh, mental asylums or, yeah. you know, or hospitalized or alcoholics? Or is it more – Is it, maybe it's a yes and thing again. Um, I think it's well, probably, Scar yeah, yes. Scarlet Woman, I mean, you know, it's a sort of a spiritual, religious, mystical thing. I mean, there could be some correspondence between people who tend to be boozers and people who can be Scarlet Women. Mm -hmm. right? A certain yeah. A certain vibe. sort of psychological disposition or, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here's the, the remainder of the episode, and I'm going to pepper it another Patreon patreon.com slash art of dark pod we we love our subscribers we appreciate you if you're still listening to this <laughs> god love yeah, you hope, yeah god love you uh master Therian, the great beast 666 approves uh i, I assume it, uh, he would he would approve of your uh your fortitude you you are persevering you have endured the end. yeah yeah you have endured until the end uh i'm gonna take us through to the book of toth the tarot then uh stephanie i'm gonna ask you to cover that and then i'll take us to sure. the end and then we'll we'll come back for the after dark where we're gonna do tarot we're gonna look at grimoire we're going to look at the Parsons and Hubbard connection to Crowley. But for now, I'm going to, I'm going to keep, keep on keeping on. Uh, please support the effort pod. Go give five stars uh, on, on Apple iTunes, on Spotify. We put the work in and we really do appreciate it. Um, all right. At the age of 58, Crowley begin, begins an affair with 19-year-old Deirdre uh, Patricia Doherty McAlpin. Is this a different 19-year-old? <laughs> yes, it's a different 19-year-old. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, ah, Curly, Curly's really, I mean, he's gone off the rails, uh, you know, but here we are. He, uh, so they're friends. She offered to bear his child. This is, this is some serious animal magnetism he, this guy has. He's I looking mean, for like, a magical heir, right? He is important right. to him to have a magical heir. So, yeah. and I guess mm. she was a believer. So I guess. And they they did it. I mean, she's nineteen. I yeah. mean, you know, and his boys can swim. So uh, Randall Gare, Crowley nicknamed him Alistair Ataturk. He died uh -huh. in a car accident in two thousand two at the age of sixty five. Crowley he continued was an to interesting yep. fellow. Oh, was yeah. he? Oh, yeah. He is. Um, did I did I add it in here? Okay. He uh, 
<laughs> this is a fellow, I think we discussed this long ago when we were first talking about this episode. Um, in 76, he attempted to take over the UK government by persuasion. So he he, um, he <laughs> argued that there was this sort of supreme council. Um, he argued also that everyone should sit at the bottom of a Cornish mine shaft and be transformed into a super being when shafts of sunlight um, struck them. But um, it, he walked into, I can't remember the exact details. It's been probably a year since I've read it, but basically walked into some government uh, offices and proclaimed himself basically the leader of England. <laughs> you can imagine how this went over. Like it started with ridiculous. But he, so he was he was an odd fellow, a little odd, but uh, it's an interesting life story. Yeah. Mm, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so many, so many rabbit holes we could go down. Um, really? So Crowley, it's it's 34, uh 37. So in 36 he publishes his first book in six years, The Equinox of the Gods. It contained a facsimile of the Book of the Law. He's giving lectures on yoga, uh, yoga, yoga in Soho, <laughs> and he's living off of contributions supplied by the OTO's Agape Lodge in California, led by rocket scientist John Whiteside Jack Parsons. So now Ooh. they're they're sending yeah. money back to him. Crowley was intrigued by the rise of Nazism in Germany and influenced by his friend Martha Kunzel, believed that Adolf Hitler might convert to Thelema. When the Nazis abolished the German OTO and, and imprisoned Germer, who fled to the U.S., Crowley then lambasted Hitler as a black magician. It's always <laughs> it's always Hitler. It's Every, everything everybody yeah. you don't like is Hitler. Yeah, Hitler is a black magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So in this case, well, yeah, Crowley's ego just knows no limits. All right, yeah. so now we yeah are, everybody you don't like is Hitler. In this case, it is Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. Especially <laughs> when it's Hitler. Literally <laughs> Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And meanwhile, Arto is writing magic spells, uh, jabbing at uh, at Hitler. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting. It all. I mean, everything is everything is driving us toward one day, the episode that will kill Art of Darkness, that will put the stakes yes. through the heart of the. Not for a long time, not for a long no. time, yeah. but yeah. we know when when it's time to retire after we have. 10,000 Patreon subscribers and we've done we've yeah. done it all. And you bought your compound, your yes, island. Uh, <laughs> right. After we've rebuilt Boleskin and resettled mm-hmm. Chefalu, the private jet, all yep. of it, then and only then, Brad, <laughs> do we do our episode on Hitler and drop the episode and disappear. Yeah. Yeah. But not for yeah, a long time. That's right. We'll do the the episode on the not that great artist. Adolf right, Hitler. the mediocre <laughs> artist, watercolorist. Yeah, you're going to be waiting a long time for the Hitler episode. Is the joke <laughs> that we're making? Uh, Toth Tarot, Stephanie. Yes, talk about it. I have a deck right here. We're going to throw it on the after dark. So do I. Actually, yep, right awesome. Here. And it's beautiful. Been reading tarot a, for decades. It's a beautiful work of art that you it can uh, carry with you. I love the Toth Tarot. So, yeah, it's gorgeous. About it. I mean. So, well, for those who aren't familiar with tarot, and I mean, Brad, this is, I won't say much, Brad, Brad is an expert on this. It's a form of cardomancy. So divination using playing cards, but these are special cards, right? They're not like a regular deck, although you, you can use a regular deck for divination. People do. Um, so Crowley had been reading tarot cards for decades and pondering his own understanding and he, around this time, he sets out seeking an artist. He's he's going to make his own deck. And, and 
initially it was going to be quite traditional, right? He, he, he's directed to this woman, Lady Frida Harris, who, you know, was also an occult practitioner. She was an artist interested in occultism. She was involved in, um, you know, co-masonry and Indian mysticism and so on. And by 37, she had developed an interest in ceremonial magic. And she became Crowley's disciple in 38, in the, you know, mid-May. She joined the OTO, she joined the AA, and, and Crowley started to teach her divination. And that summer, she bought an issue of his Equinox that included some writings on the tarot. And the two talked about it. And he said, okay, look, I'm thinking of my own deck. Why don't you design it for me? Right? She was a bit reluctant at first. He had, you know, thought he was producing a fairly traditional deck. Um, but, you know, as they talked back and forth, I guess and she realized the other had a you know, particular vision and there was a lot of scope for creativity here. She, she agreed. And it was supposed to be a six-month project. <laughs> But it consumed five years, kind of like this podcast episode. So <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> she, she created oil paintings for every card. And, you know, when I say every card, when you're you're dealing with tarot, you have first the minor arcana. So these are four suits in the in the Thoth deck. They're swords, wands, cups, and, and pentacles. And each of them runs ace to ten, princess, prince, queen, and knight. So there's two female court cards and two male court cards because he wants to balance those of energy. And then, of course, there, there is your 22 trump cards, right? From These are, you know, the major arcana, as they're, they're called, you know, a whole other set of cards that are kind of like their own, you know, suit. And they're, they're concepts like there's a lover's card, death, the hanged man. You've probably seen pictures of some of these people who aren't familiar with tarot. I'm sure you've come across images. Anyway, Harris made oil paintings for each of these, and they're really, really beautiful. It's, it's an kind of Art Deco style, beautiful, vibrant colors, but they, they draw on a variety of, of artistic movements of the period. So you get constructivism in there, futurism, Ryanism. She's quite the artist. And they were exhibited in London in 42, but the deck wasn't published until the 60s after both of them were dead. I'm not sure why. It's a really beautiful deck. And you can still sometimes... the the original paintings crop up from time to time on the art market. Right? They're really interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, Crowley made some changes to it, the cards, to the traditional deck. Uh, so within the minor arcana of the suit cards, he, he changed knights to princes and pages to princesses. Like I said, he wanted male and female balance. And in the major arcana, there's a traditional sequence of cards here running from 0 to 21, and they each have a traditional name and iconography and meaning. And he altered a few of these. So there, there is um, one card, it's 11 strength is what it usually is. And you've probably seen, it's usually a picture of a, you know, a woman, a, a young virgin prying open a lion's mouth. Crowley changed this to lust. And this is a depiction of a scarlet woman. And then there's a card, um, temperance, you know, which is 14. So this is balance. It's often shows a, a figure, sometimes blinded, pouring liquid from one goblet into another, or it might show scales or something. He changes it to art, which preserves some of that imagery, but he takes it in a more alch explicitly alchemical direction. It's really, really lovely and interesting. So I think you know, all of us, the three of us are at least familiar with this. I, I, I know it's your primary deck, Kevin. Do you have any kind of thoughts to add on it or anything? Uh, I just think it's the only tarot to throw. Um, I mean, for me, I am just a huge fan of it. I think it's beautiful. It's a mm -hmm. it's a great piece of art that you can have in your home. The cards mm -hmm. are always revealing something new. They seem to have a real authentic power. They're beautiful. Uh and it is the, it is the most beautiful deck, probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And having spent way too much time reading Crowley and being immersed in Crowleyana many years ago, it just, to me, it almost seems, I don't know, any other deck, it just seems silly to me. And I understand it's, it tarot is a very personal thing for people. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, do what works for you. But if you haven't, if you've never seen a copy of this deck, like, wow, I mean, uh, get, a, get a copy. It's beautiful. Um, do we, okay. So have we, are we satisfied with the coverage of Atoth Tarot? <laughs> I I we're gonna end I up am. talking a little bit more about yeah. it in the after dark, the so, yeah. the after dark. all right yeah. so we're gonna blast through the twilight years of of crowley and we're we're in we're in the twilight years i think i i think i promised a part three i think we're well into part three i think it's sort of like after I that so. death that we forgot Chefaloo, to mention mm-hmm. yes yeah yeah we're well into into the third part which is the death the death uh of of raul and the aftermath of that and uh the remainder of his life so uh the, we're definitely at the twilight period here so this is going to cover 39 to 47 which is um when he when he expires when the Second World War broke out, Crowley wrote to the Naval Intelligence Division offering his services, but they declined. He associated with a variety of figures in Britain's intelligence community at the time, including Dennis Wheatley, Roald Dahl, Ian Fleming, and Maxwell Knight, and claimed to have been behind the V for Victory sign first used by the BBC. This has never been proven. It's perfect. That's exactly something Crowley would declare. I came up with that. Um <laughs> In the in 1940, his asthma worsened, and with his German-produced medication unavailable, darn, don't talk about the war. Um, he returned <laughs> to using heroin, once again becoming addicted. As the Blitz hit London, Crowley relocated to Torquay, where he was briefly hospitalized with asthma, and entertained himself with visits to the local chess club. Tiring of Torquay, he returned to London, where he was visited by American Thelemite Grady McMurtry, to whom Crowley awarded the title of Hymenius Alpha. He stipulated that though Germer would be his immediate successor, McMurdy should succeed. Germer as head of uh, should succeed Germer as head of the OTO after the latter's death. With OTO initiate Lady Frida Harris, who did the deck, uh, Crowley developed plans to produce a tarot card deck. We've already done this, designed by him and painted by Harris. Accompanying this was a book, which is important, published in a limited edition as the Book of Toth by Chiswick Press in 1944. Get the Crowley deck if you're into this. Get the Book of Toth um, to correspond with the Crowley deck. To aid the war effort, he wrote a proclamation uh, on the rights of humanity, Liber Oz, and a poem for the liberation of France, La Galoise, uh, Galois. Crowley's final, I have no French. Crowley's final publication during his lifetime was a book of poetry, Ola, an anthology of 60 years of song. Another of his projects, Alistair Explains Everything, <laughs> which is so funny. Was Alistair that, Explains was, Everything. Was that, yeah. Was that his reality TV show that he did? Or? Can you imagine? <laughs> oh Dude. my God. God, there's like a movie about Crowley coming back today. It is insane that a Crowley biopic hasn't been done, by the way. Yes. That is insane that needs to happen it couldn't get it into uh, two hours who would get right plan? right well you yeah. could do dude the hbo 10 you know 10 hour it'd be a good series or like oh it'd be amazing yeah who would, who would um, play him who would you cast? it would be so it would be so cool you could do it over like eight different phases of his life and have eight yeah. different actors play him that would be very cool yeah um, vincent that, d'onofrio plays the old plays the old <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right 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 yeah. Um, Alistair Explains Everything was posthumously published as Magic Without Tears, and we'll look at a little bit of that here shortly. Um, 
That's a good read. That's like a good intro to Crowley, intro to magic book. In April of 1944, Crowley briefly moved to Aston Clinton in Buckinghamshire, where he was visited by the poet Nancy Kennard, before uh, relocating to Hastings in Sussex, where he took up residence at the Netherwood boarding house. I like that. Netherwood is where Crowley's going to live. He took a young, young man named Kenneth Grant as his secretary, paying him in magical teaching rather than wages. He was also introduced to John Simmons, whom he appointed to be his literary executor. This is all from Wikipedia, just to get us through these last years. Simmons thought little of Crowley, later publishing negative biographies of him. Corresponding with the illusionist Arnold Crother, it was through him that Crowley was introduced to Gerald Gardner, the future founder of Gardnerian Wicca. So Crowley influenced the early Wiccans. Um, they became friends with Crowley authorizing Gardner to revive Britain's ailing OTO. Another visitor was Eliza Marion Butler, who interviewed Crowley for her book, The Myth of the Magus. Another friend, other friends and family also spent time with him, among them Doherty and Crowley's son, Alistair Ataturk. So here we go. Here is the definition of magic from magic in theory and practice. Having everyone grab spent, your pencils, take notes, yes, be on the exam. Right. Everyone grab your wands. Uh, <laughs> all right. And put your wands down, actually. Magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Illustration. It is my will to inform the world of certain facts within my knowledge. I therefore take magical weapons, pen, ink, and paper. I write incantations these sentences in the magical language, that is, that which is understood by people I wish, wish to instruct. I call forth spirits, such as printers, publishers, booksellers, Patreon subscribers, and so forth. <laughs> I can't help myself. And constrain them to convey my message to those people. The composition and distribution is thus an act of magic, by which I cause changes to take place in conformity with my will. Every intentional act is a magical act. All right. I'm going to go to Perturabo here and just read like that. near the mm -hmm. end. Yeah, I do too. He was a philosopher, among mm -hmm. other things. Absolutely. All right. So we're coming to the very end here. All right. His condition became so severe that Pat and her children, including Ataturk, came to his side on the last day of November. Frederick Mellinger and his wife also made the journey, finding Crowley disoriented and unsure where he was. When he finally passed, the stillness of the day was interrupted by a peal of thunder and a gust of wind that blew the curtains across the room. It was the gods greeting him, recalled Deirdre. On Monday, December 1st, 1947, at 11 a.m., Alistair Crowley died of myocardial degeneration and chronic bronchitis. In his pocket was an abramelin talisman for a great treasure and an old letter tattered from repeated unfoldings and foldings. Dated September 10, 1939, it read, The Director of Naval Intelligence presents his compliments and would be glad if you could find it convenient to call at the Admiralty for an interview. Wilkinson took Ooh. the phone call. See, that's interesting because if he had been like mm. known as a traitor, I don't know yeah. if that happens. Wilkinson yeah. took the phone call at Netherwood where he was staying to arrange Crowley's funeral. Lifting the receiver to his ear, he greeted hello and then firmly replied, I'm sorry, but the funeral is a private affair. Since his death, everyone was calling for details of the evil Alistair Crowley's demise. Wilkinson grew intolerant of the reporters. 
remembering how his friend shortly before his death believed they were waiting outside his window for him to die. How right he was. The newspapers said it all in their headlines. Black magician Crowley dies. Wickedest man in Britain. World's worst man dies. Awful Alistair. Rascals regress. Alistair Crowley dies once the invisible man. Mystic's potion to prolong life fails. Worst man in the world dies. Leaves weird pictures. <laughs> they haven't changed. They've not. They really changed haven't one changed. Bit. Yeah, and there was somebody's weird pictures. There's always a critic. <laughs> That's the somebody Uber headline. Uh, leaves weird pictures. Yeah. We, for our pod, we've started to get it from the left. We've started to get it from the yeah. right. There are people who you cannot yeah. satisfy everybody. You simply can't. Oh, there'll no. always be no. someone complaining. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, and uh, we do our best. Crowley gained no respect while living and received even less in death. When it was discovered that his attending physician, William Brown Thompson of 12 Parkway in Greenford died within 24 hours of his patient, rumors of a curse fueled further headlines like Crowley's doctor dies, curse put on him. The fact that Thompson was 58 years old did nothing to deflect conspiracy theories of post-mortem mortem revenge. Hmm. I think I have one more little bit here. So, Kevin, one thing about, I want to note hmm. from this. Yeah. So, from the many episodes we've done, it seems like many of our figures, when they die, something spooky ooky happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's There's true. A, if Kevin, if I go before you, you tell people some weird shit went down. <laughs> all right. You make up whatever you want. But something you know, spooky ooky. If happened, God forbid an owl landed in my window, you know, yeah. whatever. You know what I'm gonna do if you die, Brad, is I'm gonna run. I have so yeah. many hours of your audio on individual channels <laughs> in the archives. I am going you to bastards. run it through AI <laughs> you... and continue to do the pod. <laughs> You son of a bitch. And then, I mean, statistically, statistically, being female, I may outlive both of you. I can also get yeah. your voice. And then, after you're both gone, yeah. I will piece together yeah. the Hitler episode as a tribute. <laughs> there you go. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Okay. Eva Braun. <laughs> Very good. All right. Yeah. Please don't do that. Please don't no, piece together the imaginary oh Hitler God. episode <laughs> from Heart of Dark Darkness. I love it. Uh, I think because I just don't, we're, that Hitler is not going to be honored with an episode. That is, right. Well, no, I no, mean, no. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, is, it is the joke. I mean, if we, but we just, we want to do yeah. this show forever. So, you know, it, we, yeah. it, the Hitler yeah. never ep- episode may never happen. All right. So here's the, um, <laughs> the funeral. Friday afternoon on December 5th was cold and dank. Mourners and spectators gathered inside the chapel at the Brighton Cemetery, where at 2.45, Crowley's flower-covered coffin was solemnly brought. Carrying a copy of the Book of the Law and Magic, Lewis Wilkinson took the rostrum and looked out at a group of 15 mourners, including, according to the press, five well-dressed women and six youths in need of haircuts. Presaging the hippie hair, right? Mm-hmm. Among those he recognized were Gerald York, Frida Harris, John Simmons, J.G. Bailey, Pat and Alistair McAlpin, and Kenneth Grant and his wife, Steffi. York counted three reporters. Wilkinson, tall and dignified, began without hesitation. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Mm-hmm. What a way to mm-hmm. uh, what a way to go. So I, I have this. He was age 72. They they did. They read from the book of the law. Excerpts from the Gnostic Mass, the hymn to Pan. Uh, it was called a Black Mass by the tabloids. Uh, his body was cremated, 
His ashes were sent to Carl Germer in the U.S., who buried, buried him in his States. garden in Hampton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Wow. Now, uh, Crow- Crowley and Frida maintained a correspondence until the very end. Uh, Frida Harris, who made the Toth tarot deck, he was very affectionate toward toward her. Um, she just she wrote. Uh, let's see here. Of Crowley, he was well taken care of. I made him have a nurse about three months ago, and he was dirt as he was dirty and neglected. And he had Watson, who was most devoted, and the Simmons were as nice as they knew how to be. At the last, Mrs. McAlpin and the boy were there. I saw him the day he died, but he did not recognize me. I think Mrs. McAlpin was with him, but she says there was no struggle. Just stop breathing. I shall miss him terribly. An irreplaceable loss. Love is the law. Love under will. Yours sincerely, Frida Harris. And in their correspondence, that's how they would correspond. Do it though; it shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. I mean, these were these were cultists um, of a high order and had a great deal of intelligence and compassion and foresight. And uh, they saw and invented a great deal of the world that we now inhabit, whether you like it or not. Particularly through the culture of uh, the '60s. I'm going to wrap us up here real quick by reading from. Do you remember uh, Wolf? I think it was Jane Wolf, Jane the actress. Wolf. Yeah. Yes. Uh, she helped found the Agape Lodge in California, in LA. On the 6th of June, uh, she took Phyllis Seckler as a student, making her a probationer of the AA, which later started up the Soror Estai AA lineage slash bloodline. So these people are still tracking this stuff. Uh, like you, you would have. Yeah, Agape like, is still there. Yeah. Like, like a serious, yeah. uh, like a, like a, Karate man tracks his sensei, his dojo thing. They they take it seriously. So this is what she wrote uh, about Raul at Chefalu. A vilifying report of what took place at the time of the death of Raul Loveday at the Abbey of Telema and Chefalu, having come to my attention, leads me uh, to write a brief account of that unhappy event. As I was not only there during Raoul's brief sojourn at the Abbey, but I took care of him on his deathbed. He arrived in Chefalu from London late November or early December 1922, pale and anemic, and had just recovered from a rather severe septic throat. The weather at the time was sunshiny and warm. Raoul basked in the sunshine, spent much time out of doors, and soon showed signs of improvement. By January, he was taking long walks, and, and on one of those occasions... Being thirsty, drank water from a small stream, which was polluted and was therefore taboo. No one roundabout touched this water and Rule had been cautioned about it, but forgot it, no doubt, at the time of his thirst. A diarrhea set in, which after 10 or 12 days became suddenly acute on the day of his death, causing a sloughing off of the mucous membranes of the intestines. Terrible way to go. During this period, he had been, been under medical care, but without avail. That ceremonies of a sensational or ridiculous character were performed during the passing is a part of the desire of some people to defile whatever they touch. As a matter of fact, no ceremonies of any nature took place during his illness or at the time of his death. Signed, Jane Wolfe. So I believe that was written during Crowley's lifetime, but she just wanted to set the record straight. And I wanted to put that at the end, too, because they put it at the end of the hagiography as a reminder that no, they did not, as far as we know, sacrifice a, a cat and force mm-hmm. Raul to drink blood. Crowley was a bad, bad, bad man by mm-hmm. most any any set of standards. Uh, but he delivered some very good 
and very interesting ideas and material. And if only looking at the productivity he achieved, forget about the Twitter influencers selling you courses mm-hmm. on how to uh, uh, you know, maximize your, your revenue stream. Read some Crowley. This guy got stuff done. And he had energy, <laughs> limitless energy, the kind of energy it takes to produce a six-hour podcast with the, great, <laughs> with the great Stephanie Leahy, the great Brad Kelly. Such a joy. I'm going to give the final word to uh, Freighter Perturabo, but not until we briefly just touch on the value and the legacy of Crowley. He's on the cover of, of Pepper. The Toth Tarot deck mm-hmm. still sells probably as many copies as anything except the Rider Weight deck. I don't know mm-hmm. for a fact, probably. but it's out there. Yeah. You can find it. Yeah. Yeah. There's still Crowley sections in every witchy bookstore in every every city across the the, the country, around the world. Uh, there's still Crowleyana happening. Like Crowley said, a thousand years from, from now, Crowleyanity will be on the lips of, of people after I'm long gone. It's it's been a while already. The band mm-hmm. Tool, my favorite band, Danny Carey, the drummer, is a is a very I don't know if I would say is he's he a devoted. Thelmite? He's he's very very interested in Crowley, and he I uses yeah he had he uses Crowley material. Uh, he collects the books. Yeah, he's I don't know I I can't speak for Danny Carey. Danny, yeah, it might Danny not be initiated, this, but come yeah. on the show, Danny would love to have you <laughs> talk about you Crowley. Could do, yeah. You could do a twenty minute drum solo. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, buddy. Yeah, but it's everywhere. And people uh, are still yeah. writing biographies frequently. And honestly, some of these people, if if you know Mr. Kaczynski, your your fantastic work, any of these other people who actually yeah. know what they're talking about would love to come on and correct our errors. I have inevitably yeah. any. I acknowledge that. It'd be, I mean, yeah. you know, come fantastic. on. Er- Come on for a dark room. That's why we do those. Yeah. Uh, these core episodes yeah. are the spine of the show, but then we have these dark room episodes. And yeah, f- for the dark rooms, I think we're going to have to get you back, uh, Stephanie, because you're so you've been so <laughs> instrumental in this. Uh, organizing I, you two is like herding cats. I don't know. Ah, <laughs> well, we have our method. We're just not. <laughs> I'm not accustomed. Too. There's a reason Brad and I were both jettisoned, like failed initiatives <laughs> from academia. Right. There's a reason. For sure. Uh, we push all the I'm wrong buttons. You. and no, we're well, done. I'm, te- no, no. I'm teasing you. Yeah, no, I'm you did a fab. Yeah. This outline was just <laughs> staggering. Uh, and, you know, the the band Ghost, the campy, yeah. uh, satanic, their their well, latest Bowie. album. Yeah, yeah. Bowie. Their latest album yeah. has, the, has the picture on the front that's clearly a, a reference to Crowley. It's everywhere once you start to look for it. And, uh, you know, maybe you grew up in a household where your parents say, hey, we can't have that album in the house. That's devil music. Now you can tell them, Mom and Dad, you were right. I'm still gonna <laughs> yeah. play this. I'm still gonna play this music. Uh, I'm gonna play it that, anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's that that Bill Hicks that Bill Hicks about like I uh, I think I want to go to hell where the good albums are. <laughs> uh, so um, that's just a little bit about the legacy. We could go on and on. We'll talk a little bit about that on the After Dark Art of Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. And I'm going to read one last thing from Crowley. This was not written at the the end of his life, uh, but it was um, 
It's at the end of the confessions, and I feel like it's an appropriate uh, way to conclude. Before I do that, though, just one final thing. Stephanie, do you want to give any plugs? Do you have anything that you're pitching? Are you grifting anything, or are you just – you're an established I, academic, so you don't have anything to grift, Yeah, huh? I wouldn't say I'm, I'm established yet. I mean, I'm a, I'm a postdoc. No, I, I I don't have time or energy to grift. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so, the way to be. Yeah. It's, it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> But I'm delighted we, to be here. This was great fun. I mean, oh, I, I, oh, I, I tease you guys, but I enjoyed it <laughs> immensely. It was it was really, really yeah. interesting. It's so much fun Good. and really rewarding. So, I think it's anyway. appropriate that we're going almost exactly six hours. Uh, yeah, or, so, so I might we, have to. We are exactly six. Well, yeah, we started yeah. by the mayor too Close. late. Yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah. we're right here. It's going to be right at the, at the six. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Crowley would approve. Here he is writing one last paragraph. Just a reminder on the Patreon, we're going to talk, we're going to do the tarot, we're going to do the uh, grimoire business with uh, Stephanie, and then we are going to talk about Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard and the Babylon work, and probably talk about some other stuff. Please consider subscribing to the Patreon. The book club is going to be awesome. Uh, Mm -hmm. People, there's not another podcast out there doing what we do, and uh, we're not for everybody. We're not trying to be for everybody, but if you you enjoy this show, if you're listening to these core episodes, please support the pod. Chuck us some bucks. Help us buy these books, if nothing else. (laughs) All the biographies. Yeah, we're buying a lot of biographies. And again, 2023, we're going for 333 or more Patreon subscribers. And it's going to go up to $5 on January 1st. All right. Here's the last word from the Master Therian, the Absissimus himself, Alistair, Alec, Crowley, the Beast, 666. It is heartbreaking to have to write on this matter. So much to do, so little done. I am so overwhelmed by the multiplicity of urgent work. I need the cooperation of a whole cohort of specialists, and my helplessness lies heavy on my heart. Yet the word which I uttered at my first initiation, perturabo, still echoes in eternity. What may befall I know not, and I have almost ceased to care. It is enough that I shall press towards the mark of my high calling. Secure in the magical virtue of my oath, I shall endure until the end. Hmm. All right. And you made it this far, right. so you also endured until yeah. the end. We're going to come back for the after dark. Brad, love is the law, love under will. Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Stephanie, that was amazing. You're so good. That was great. That was great. You guys did awesome. Awesome. That awesome. Was All right. So much material. Oh my, oh my god. It was just that was just so much to I cover. I don't know how just... we got how we got and the stuff we cut out. Uh yeah, right. I mean, we could have we could do you could do an entire podcast on Crowley indefinitely and that and would you be could. a niche thing that people really there could. are. There are podcasts, but yeah. that's not our podcast. We are no. the Art of Darkness, yeah. artofdarkpod.com. We love you. Thank you for listening. And we're going to come back on the After Dark for Patreon subscribers in a little bit. See you there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm going to try not to pick up a uh, Scarlet Woman during the break. I can't help it. What's that? Try not to find a new lover on my way downstairs. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) A couple Scarlet Women in here in the bathroom. (laughs) 